time, I'm sure, for a Feldman vacation. So go up to Nantucket, find the man who can suck it. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. Oh, I wish I were Mike Steinel. Oh, how I wish I were he. Mike Steinel will not be with us today. Mike, he's a little under the weather. Too bad. Welcome to the mop-up for Jesus Christ. October 24th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature, I'm going to start saying the temperature, is 63 degrees and sunny. Rishi Sunak will be Great Britain's new prime minister. Liz Truss, if you remember, resigned last week amid economic blowback from her deranged plans for using debt to finance a massive tax cut for the rich. Yes, even conservatives in Great Britain recognize the very thing Republicans are running on, that balancing the budget and fighting inflation by giving tax cuts to the rich and powerful, even conservatives in Great Britain know that this is a recipe for more debt and more inflation. But here in America, you repeat that lie until half this country either believes it or pretends to believe it. There is chaos within the Conservative Party in Great Britain right now, deservedly so. By the way, the Conservative Party, this is the party of Brexit. Like, you know, who needs Europe? You know, I have a feeling if Great Britain didn't leave the EU, the EU would have kicked them out. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who handpicked Truss to be his successor, so the Conservatives, after suffering through about two minutes of her craven thirst for power at the expense of everybody else, after about, you know, two minutes of that, the Conservatives would say, you know what, on second thought, maybe we should bring back Boris. But uh, Conservatives have moved on. Boris, turns out Boris Johnson wasn't as indispensable as he had hoped. Turns out the Conservative Party has a deep bench of ambitious, cold-blooded frauds who, wanted, who want their turn at flying the jet into the mountain. Boris yesterday took his name out of the running and when he realized members of his own party decided to go in a different direction, which would be the same exact direction just without Boris and that Direction would be right into a mountain. They're just crashing the jet right into a, a mountain. And it, it turns out anybody can crash a jet into a, into a mountain. You just have to be willing to destroy everything around you. And like our Republican Party here in America, that's what we have with the conservatives over in Great Britain, right? Anybody sitting in first class is qualified to crash the jet. That's how it works if you're a conservative or a Republican. You can't trust anyone in coach. They are not qualified to crash the jet. In fact, they might care too much about everybody's well-being. They, they might have second thoughts about crashing the jet into the mountain. Now, maybe if a couple of people in coach uh, try to prove that they, that they really want to, to sit in first class, you know, prove to us that you want to sit in first class, slap a bottle out of a baby's mouth 
then maybe you can earn your way into first class and then maybe you'll get an opportunity to crash the jet into the mountain. But the conservatives, like the Republicans here in America, are more comfortable with someone who was born in first class. They can trust somebody who was born in first class to crash that jet into the mountain. Uh, Because if you were born in first class, you have absolutely no knowledge in landing a jet safely. You're you're born in first class. We give you access to the cockpit. You're crashing that jet right into the mountain like George W. Bush. Right. Or, Or Donald Trump. They were born in first class and they can crash a jet into the mountain without even having to try. Comes naturally to them. So Rishi Sunak won the latest election for you know, leadership of the conservative party. And in lieu of a general, that makes him, lieu of the general election, makes him the, the prime minister. Sunak, great guy, my kind of guy. He's 42. His parents came to the UK from East Africa. He graduated from Oxford and then went to work for Goldman Sachs, managed a hedge fund, and married the daughter of an Indian billionaire. He and his wife are worth more than King Charles. They have an estimated fortune of $830 million. This new prime minister is the creme de la creme of creamed shit. The Labor Party says Sunak clearly has no mandate and it's time to call a general election. there is an advantage to a parliamentary system in that things move very quickly. The, the British are able to go from one shitty prime minister to the next. I think they've had 500 prime ministers in the past three months. Uh, but we have a sclerotic system here in America. Countries like England can pivot very quickly. Uh, so... They ended up with Rishi Sunak. Now, Canada, on the other hand, also has a parliamentary system. And I love Canada. I do. If they would take me, I would move in a second. I would renounce my citizenship and move to Canada if they would take me. Canada is America's younger brother who says, "Okay, I'm not going to make the same mistakes as that overgrown flatulent piglet that I grew up with. And Justin Trudeau is the prime minister of Canada. I like him because I love Canada and he's better than anything we've got down here. I'm sure if you're a leftist and you live in Canada and you're on, you know, you 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 despise him. I get it. I get it. But try living with Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden, you whiny Canadian bastards. You couldn't last 30 seconds as a leftist living here in the States Come, come, come to America, you leftists in Canada. You'd be, you'd be on your hands and knees begging Justin Trudeau to take you back. I'm sorry, Justin. And, and you know what Justin would say? He'd say, I'm sorry, too. In America, we have 5,000 words for I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry for anything in America, right? That's, that's America, like gun violence. We're not sorry for gun violence. There was another mass shooting at a school today. And you know what we say when we see another school shooting? Bring them up more. We want more. 
Canada, a little different. After an assault-style weapon was used in a mass shooting in Nova Scotia two years ago, Canada banned 1,500 types of assault-style weapons. And this year, in response to mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde here in America, Trudeau introduced legislation banning handguns, and that went into effect on Friday, which means you can no longer buy a handgun in Canada. You can keep the ones you own, but you can't buy any more. See, they can pivot very quickly after a, a tragedy, especially when it comes to guns, because Canada doesn't have a constitutional right to bear arms. The same way we don't have a constitutional right in America to bear arms. We think we do, but we don't. What we have is a gun industry that finances the Federalist Society, which handpicks Supreme Court justices who promise to misread the Second Amendment in order to guarantee the sales of more and more AR-15s will not be infringed in order to ensure at least one well-regulated school shooting per day here in America. Take me, Canada, please get me out of this hellhole. Well, the, uh, the war in Ukraine is now eight months old. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuliba, on Sunday called Russia's claim that Ukraine was planning to use a dirty bomb in eastern Ukraine on its own people to win back territory annexed, annexed by Russia is false. The, the uh, Ukrainians say they have no intention of using a, a, a dirty bomb. Ukraine, by the way, gave up its nuclear weapons in the early 90s. And the United States says Ukraine has no radioactive material to put inside a bomb and make it dirty. Hey, I have an idea, Ukraine. Why don't you borrow some of your radioactive material from those nuclear reactors? Then you can make a, a dirty, but damn. Why did I have to go and open my big mouth? I just gave the Ukrainians an idea. Now they're going to borrow radioactive material from their nuclear power plants and put them in a bomb. Me and my big mouth. Well, in Rome, a three-day cry for peace summit organized by the Catholic Church is taking place right now. It's a cry for peace in Ukraine. Pope Francis will close the conference tomorrow, speaking inside the Colosseum. Pope Francis says Ukraine has the right to defend itself, but warned that providing more arms to both sides won't solve the dispute. Europeans, like Americans, are growing wary of the war in Ukraine. One third of Europeans this summer said they want it done with. And now with winter approaching and the cost of heating going up, along with the price of food skyrocketing, not to mention even more refugees pouring into Eastern Europe, calls to put an end to the fighting in Ukraine grow louder. Well, the president of France spoke at the Cry for Peace conference on Sunday. A few weeks back, Emmanuel Macron came under fire for suggesting that the road to peace is paved by providing a graceful exit for Putin, one that wouldn't leave him humiliated. You know, kind of like what Kennedy did with Khrushchev to solve the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, said Macron was the one who was humiliating himself. He thought it was a bad idea. Henry Kissinger, of all people, you know, the war criminal who 
is still alive because God doesn't want him. Back in May, Henry Kissinger, war criminal, said the road to peace is paved by concessions to Putin. Kissinger, the war criminal, said Ukraine must cede some territory to stop the killing. Kissinger, the war criminal, said that humiliating Vladimir Putin in Ukraine would only lead to more destabilization in Europe. Henry Kissinger, war criminal, said further war in Ukraine could be averted if the Russians were informally given Crimea, as well as some kind of influence over the eastern parts of Ukraine that Putin has now illegally annexed. French President Macron yesterday says there must be constant dialogue between Moscow and the West. Biden is not talking to anybody. Our defense secretary, Austin, is speaking with his Russian counterpart for the first time in a couple of weeks. Nothing going on in terms of negotiation. In his speech on Sunday, Emmanuel Macron, president of France, said the question of war and peace is ultimately in the hands of Ukraine. Macron went on to say, quote, we want the Ukrainian people to decide at a certain point peace, the moment and the terms of peace. He went on to say peace will be built with the other party who today is the enemy. It will be built around a table and the international community will be there. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? On Sunday, Congresswoman Liz Cheney accused House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of being a member of the GOP's pro-Putin wing after McCarthy said when he becomes speaker, after the midterms, Ukraine would no longer be given a blank check by the United States. Cheney on Meet the Press warned of an isolationist streak within the GOP. Apparently, Liz Cheney misses the good old days when the Republican Party under her father, Dick Cheney, was all about foreign intervention. And we all know how good that turned out for everyone, everyone who invested in Halliburton and Raytheon. Liz Cheney's dad is a war criminal. By the very definition of war criminal, Dick Cheney, Liz Cheney's father, is a war criminal. And only in America could the daughter of a war criminal end up becoming a profile in courage when it comes to saving our democracy from Donald Trump, who she voted for twice. Cheney voted against impeaching Donald Trump in 2020. So did Adam Kinzinger. They were fine with everything until January 6th. I wonder what happened. Oh, that's right. It affected them. All of a sudden, Liz Cheney says there's a pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party. But back in 2000, when Congress impeached Donald Trump for withholding weapons to Ukraine in Ukraine's war against Putin, he withheld weapons that Zelensky needed because he said, you got to give me dirt on Biden first. According to Liz Cheney, there was no Putin wing of the Republican Party back then. And she didn't vote to impeach Donald Trump for withholding weapons to Ukraine and making them weaker against Putin. There was no pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party in 2000. 
But suddenly, according to Liz Cheney, there's a pro-Putin wing in the GOP. She literally kept her mouth shut for four years under Trump's presidency. She opened it to praise him, to encourage people to vote for him. Suddenly, with only 15 days left in his administration on January 6th, suddenly Trump is a horrible person and there's a pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party. But she's our ally now, I guess, right? Jury selection began today in the Manhattan District Attorney's trial against Donald Trump's company charged with tax fraud and falsifying documents. If convicted on all counts, Trump's corporation could be fined $1.6 million. It's funny, isn't it, how corporations are people, according to the Supreme Court, except when there's a criminal trial, then they just have to pay fines. Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer for Trump's company, pleaded guilty to 15 felony charges over the summer and is expected to be the star witness in this trial. Weisselberg agreed to serve five months in jail, that's good, and pay $1.5 million in back taxes and testify in this trial openly, not plead the fifth, or he would face anywhere between five to 15 years in prison. This is an interesting trial that we should pay attention to. Fascists, and let's uh, again make no mistake about this, the GOP is now the party of fascists. And they succeed in first creating doubt about the integrity of elections. That way, when they lose, they can claim the election was stolen. They also sow doubt in our criminal justice system so that when they lose in court, they can claim they're the victims of massive fraud. And if anyone's an expert on massive fraud, it would be Devin Nunes, who currently heads Truth Social, Donald Trump's social media disaster, which faces several investigations, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority are all investigating Devin Nunes's Truth Social, Donald Trump's Truth Social for fraud. And so is a separate grand jury. Odd that a former president and Devin Nunes would be accused of fraud. And so, like election fraud, uh, the Republicans immediately start saying our justice system is broken. They claim there's a two-tier justice system. There's a two-tier justice system, one for Democrats and one for Republicans. Here is the head of Truth Social, the former uh, House chairman of the House, the Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who covered up for Donald Trump, so he was given about a million a year to defraud investors in Truth Social. Here is Devin Nunes on Fox News talking about how on how hard it is to get a fair trial these days, how hard it is for Republicans to get a fair trial. If you get tried as a Republican in a one of the large cities, large jurisdictions in this country, there is a high likelihood that you are going to be on the losing side of that argument in court. Um, and this is what's this is what's developed now is this two tier justice system. Right. There's no two tier system for, you know, black people, people of color, poor people. There's just a two tier justice system for Democrats and Republicans. But don't take Devin Nunes's word for it about our two tier 
justice system. He's in trouble with the law. So, of course, he's going to complain about a two-tier justice system. See, Nunes is just priming the, the sympathy pump for when he gets indicted. But you need to listen to this guy. This guy. What the fuck just happened? God damn it. This guy. Rudy Giuliani. Where we've basically uh, criminalized politics just on the Democrat side, kind of like the secret police do in fascist countries. Yes, uh, Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, a former New York prosecutor, says uh, that the Democrats have criminalized politics. I didn't know that. The Democrats are locking up, I guess, their political opponents for no crime other than being Republicans. And that's horrible. We're, we're like a banana republic. Go ahead, oh, wise, sober, and not completely batshit crazy Rudy Giuliani. What should we do about this? Why is Hillary Clinton not prosecuted? How is Joe Biden not prosecuted? What's Joe Biden doing sitting in the White House rather than prison? He's a major criminal. I see. So the way to stop the criminalization of politics is to arrest Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a major criminal. I, I get it. Lock him up. I see. Yes, the criminalization of politics can only be prevented by criminalizing politics. Seems counterintuitive, but Rudy Giuliani, he's smart. He's playing three-dimensional three-dimensional cirrhosis of the liver. He, he's such a great legal mind. Great guy. Not insane, not broke, doesn't owe back alimony, no drinking problem, the exemplar of moral rectitude. Do you realize the best day in Rudy Giuliani's entire life was 9-11? He sees videos of the World Trade Center coming down and goes, ah, good times, good times. Well, Sidney Powell is an attorney. And the lawfare has just been atrocious, Sydney, for example. Sidney Powell is an attorney, and uh, she's now facing disbarment from the legal profession, and, has been, and that's really hard to get disbarred in America. For a lawyer to get disbarred, you got to be really bad. Uh, but she's facing disbarment in Texas from the legal profession, and she's being sued by Dominion Voting Systems for defamation. I think it's for hundreds of millions of dollars. She doesn't have that kind of money. She's just a crusading attorney who defended General Michael Flynn, and the two of them are loyal members of QAnon. I mean, her integrity speaks for itself. And yet, just because she tried to steal the election in 2020 for Donald Trump, she's got one lawsuit after another because the Democrats have criminalized politics. And the lawfare has just been atrocious. For example, over 19 people, I think it is now, filed grievances against me with the Texas Bar Association, which decided to elevate those grievances to a lawsuit that has been filed against me in Texas state court now. They want to make us toxic in our communities, to destroy our reputations, to eliminate our ability to earn a livelihood. And it's not just me, but multiple other lawyers that now have to defend ourselves. If they're able to eliminate the ability of lawyers to stand in the gap for individuals who are unpopular for any reason or who seek to challenge fraud or the common viewpoint, we are in very serious trouble. Ooh, poor oxygen-deprived baby. 
It's lawfare. That's what it is. There's a two-tier justice system, one for the people who obey the law and one for dangerously ambitious right-wing degenerates like Sidney Powell. It's not fair, I tell ya. It ain't fair. The January 6th committee subpoenaed Donald Trump on Friday, ordering him to testify. Will he obey the subpoena? Steve Bannon didn't. And last week he was sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of Congress. Will will Trump obey the subpoena? Will he testify or is he above the law? Is there a three-tier justice system? Let's ask Nancy Pelosi. I have to ask you about the January 6th committee. On Friday, they officially subpoenaed Donald Trump. Do you think he'll actually appear for the deposition? And what does it say to the American people if he doesn't? I don't think he's man enough to show up. What was, I'm sorry, Madam Speaker, I, I, I literally could not hear what you said. I said, you asked me if I thought he was going to show up. And I said, I don't think right. he's man enough to show up. I don't think his lawyers oh. will want him to show up because he has to testify under oath. But I don't, I don't think he'll show up. I don't think he's man enough. We'll see. Let's see if he's man enough to show up. Ooh, Nancy Pelosi challenging Donald Trump's manhood. She's challenging his manhood. Nancy Pelosi, we know who wears the pantsuit in that family. Nancy Pelosi. You know, I lived in San Francisco. Nancy Pelosi was my congressperson. And one of the things anyone from San Francisco knows is that there is a precise definition of what constitutes manhood. That's what all the, I lived in San Francisco for 15 years. And what I learned in San Francisco is that the definition of manhood is strength. A man is tough. And all the people who support Nancy in San Francisco were all on board the LGBTQ rights. And, you know, and we know and we tell all the, the boys growing up in San Francisco, there is only one type of man, and that man is tough. He is a fighter. And women are only looking for men who are tough, men who are strong. That's what it means to be a man. What a brilliantly consistent mind Nancy Pelosi has representing San Francisco, which has been a beacon to every troubled gay man in America. Come to San Francisco. Come to Nancy Pelosi, San Francisco, and you can be the man you want to be. As long as it's a tough man, a strong man, a macho man, a man who doesn't back down from a fight because there is only one definition of manhood in Nancy Pelosi, San Francisco. And if you walk away from fights, if you back down, you're not a man. Good choice of words, Nancy. You're brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant, Nancy Pelosi. He's all talk. He's all talk. Yeah, Pelosi and her entire family. They're like, they're like uh, Joe Pesci. He's all talk. Yeah, he's all talk. Pelosi and her entire family of gris grifters are a national disgrace. Trump's all talk. Trump's all talk, like uh, promising to raise the minimum wage, rein in Wall Street and take on the greedy landlords. He's all talk. Yeah, like, you know, codifying Road, you, you, you've been Roe, you've been in and out as speaker since 2006 and you had a, you could have codified Roe. You were promising to do that. 
eight of the top 10 states with the highest murder rates. He's all talk. Yeah, he's all talk. Well, the midterms, the midterms are two weeks away. And according to NBC, uh, an NBC News poll, 71 percent of Americans think this country is on the wrong track. 52 percent of Americans disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing. And in a generic congressional poll, the Republicans lead by one percent. That's popular vote. They lead by one percent. But we don't elect House members that way. We do it district district by district, where the GOP has a structural advantage, meaning the Democrats have to be leading that generic poll by at least five points to signify a blue wave. This is looking really bad, bad, bad for the Democrats. Most Americans, if you look at the polls, care about wages. That's what they care about. They only care about Wages, right? But the Democrats can't run on wages because two years ago, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi promised to raise the minimum wage and they didn't do it. The minimum wage, which is seven dollars and change per hour, hasn't budged in 10 years. With inflation, that means there is no minimum wage in this country. Thirty six states don't go any higher than the federal minimum wage. Poll after poll in every state shows that the single biggest concern for voters right now is wages, what they're getting paid. That is what voters care about most. And the Democrats can't run on what voters care most about wages because they didn't keep their promise and raise the minimum wage. They can't run on jobs because Americans have gotten too savvy and we know jobs don't mean good, good pay. It means just being the working poor. So the Republicans have something that they can run on, crime, which is a dog whistle for people of color. We're gonna lock up people of color. They get people to vote their bigotry, and that's a winning message for Republicans. We will keep you safe, not really, but we'll punish people of color, so vote for the Republican Party. I talk about this in my latest newsletter, uh, which you should subscribe to, and please subscribe to this podcast. Uh, please uh, hit the like button and uh, subscribe to this podcast. If you're listening to it, if you're watching it on YouTube, please subscribe to this channel. Subscribe to my newsletter where I basically said that Republicans claim they fight crime, but they are the number one cause of it. When you spend more on cops than you do social workers, you create crime. Here is Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, explaining that the Democrats actually have a serious messaging problem when it comes to crime. Eight of the top 10 states with the highest murder rates, all are Republican states. How do Democrats not know that? In fact, it's really nine out of 10. Georgia went for Biden, but it's really a Republican state, or at least a red state. Eight out of 10. And we're losing that message? They're losing that message because the party's run by imbeciles. There is a homeless problem in San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco. They have a problem with human feces on the streets, and that's not Nancy Pelosi going door to door with her three children 
asking for your vote. There is actual human feces on the streets of San Francisco. It's up 400 percent over the past decade in in San Francisco. Human feces is up 400 percent over the past decade, which is about in line with the rise in cost of housing there. Right. You raise rents 400 percent. You get a 400 percent increase in feces because that creates more homeless. The rich white liberals in San Francisco won't build more public housing. So they end up stepping in shit, which seems only fair since most of the people living in San Francisco stepped in shit. And by that, I mean, they got lucky being born to rich parents. Most of San Francisco is trust fund babies. So San Francisco isn't building more housing. But to stop the shit problem, they built more toilets. No housing, but they're building toilets for the homeless to get the shit off the street. In fact, they just spent $1.7 million on toilets for the homeless. And that's a lot of money. Guess how many toilets for the homeless, $1.7 million, will get you in San Francisco? One. One toilet. That's right. For $1.7 million, you get one toilet in San Francisco. For $1.7 million, I want that toilet to wipe my ass and blow me at the same time. $1.7 million for one toilet in San Francisco. Greed, greed, greed. Nancy Pelosi and all those liberals are they are the reason they are the reason we're turning to fascism. They offer no alternatives to fascism. The 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, but they added a little loophole. Prisoners could still work for free that way in the South and other parts of this country. Uh, But especially right after the 13th Amendment, uh, Southern police officers could arrest freed slaves for loitering and put them back to work. But this time, instead of on a plantation, inside a, a prison, it's slavery. Because of that loophole in the 13th Amendment, the police, they don't need to solve crime. They just need to look for people of color and get them into the system, you know, fingerprint them, get a mugshot. And eventually you lock them up so they can provide cheap to almost free labor. For example, the repairs done to the Capitol after January 6 were performed by federal prisoners working for pennies. And that's only fitting since the nation's capital was built by slaves. Who better to repair the capital after January 6 than the people who built the capital? Slaves. This is slavery. And slavery is on the ballot in two weeks. Yes, it's been 150 years since the Civil War when we thought we freed the slaves. But we didn't. And so five states will vote in two weeks on whether or not to get rid of slavery. Voters in Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont will decide whether or not to change their state constitutions to outlaw not just slavery, but 
the involuntary servitude going on in our prisons as well. Incarcerated workers earn pennies per hour. That is slavery. Paying somebody pennies is slavery. If these prisoners refuse to work, many are punished. They're placed in solitary confinement or they're denied parole and they can no longer talk to their family or see their family. And by the way, the $7 and change per hour that is minimum wage in this country, that's not slavery, but it's sure close. As Professor Harvey J.K. said on my show Thursday night, a minimum wage that low creates a cycle of debt that turns tens of millions into indentured servants. Max Parthas, state operations director for the Abolish Slavery National Network, told the Associated Press over the weekend, quote, we've never seen a single day in the United States where slavery was not legal. He added, we want to see what that looks like, and I think that's worth it. So the Democrats, they should win on crime, but they can't because they have a little problem. They have a little problem. Uh, Joe Biden is a pathological liar. He ran, as I said, promising to raise the minimum wage. He didn't. So voters don't believe him when he says he's going to put an end to the worst crime of all, mass shootings. Here is Joe Biden on the campaign trail lying. I'm coming back and I'm going to eliminate assault weapons again. I promise. I did it once. When you have a, a, a candidate, when you have a president who's a pathological liar, voters don't trust him. It sounds good. It gets an applause line, so he keeps saying it. He's going to eliminate assault weapons, but he's lying. He's not going to eliminate assault weapons. He could have done it already. He could have signed an executive order yesterday. I've said this countless times. He could sign an executive order right now that says the Pentagon will not purchase assault weapons from any company that sells assault weapons to consumers. He could do that today, but he won't. He's not getting rid of assault weapons. He's a liar. He's a good liar, but he's a liar. He lies. We have a problem. He, we, we have a president who can't stop lying. Here he is lying to young voters this week. I told you a true story when I uh, um, when I left the vice presidency I, after my after Bo died, I wasn't going to get involved in politics anymore. So I became a full professor at the University of Pennsylvania. But before that occurred, three universities came to me and said they wanted to interview me to consider my being a president of the university. That is a lie. That is a lie. Biden is lying. He lies. You know who doesn't lie? Bernie. Bernie Sanders doesn't lie. And he thinks the Democrats also, he also thinks the Democrats have a messaging problem. In several interviews over the past two weeks, Bernie says the court overturning Roe v. Wade is not going to put the Democrats over the finish line. He said abortion is important, but the Democrats have to run on the economy. And like I said, they can't. They can't because all Americans care about is wages. I have looked at the internals, the polling internals in practically every state. Wages, 
more than Ukraine, more than crime, more than abortion, voters care about wages. How much are uh, how much am I going to get paid? See, and Biden didn't raise the minimum wage. He promised to. He promised to. And it turns out, Joe, wages above everything else is the only thing voters care about. Biden, Biden and the Democratic leadership, except Bernie, sound like every boss I've ever worked for. Yes, I get it. You want to be paid more. But this job is about so much more. No, boss, it's about wages. You promised me a raise, and now you're telling me I have to worry about the soul of our nation, about the future of our democracy, that the Republicans, that MAGA is an existential threat to the soul of our country. You promised me a raise. I can't afford to live. This is what your boss does, right? Joe Biden is your boss. He makes it about everything other than promising keeping a promise, and that is to pay you more. The Democrats are run by morons. The Democrats are going to lose because they're run by lying morons. They never figured out that the one thing that they care about more than anything else in the world, money, is the same exact thing that voters care about. Money, wages. You want to win? You, you, you buy votes. You give voters a, a raise. You raise the minimum wage. That's how you get. That's how we get your vote by giving you money. You get the American people's vote by giving them money. Where is the raise in the minimum wage? Ten years without raising it. You you it's been eliminated is what's happened. Seven dollars and change per hour. In, in this economy, with this inflation, is no minimum wage at all. So congratulations, Joe Biden. You helped the Republicans succeed in getting rid of the minimum wage without having to get rid of it. We no longer have a minimum wage. Under Joe Biden's leadership, we lost abortion and the minimum wage. They still haven't codified Roe. But it's mansion, right? It's mansion. Keep saying it's mansion. The, the, the American voters will be very understanding when they're told uh, we can't do anything because of Joe Manchin. Yeah, that's how you win elections. Blame it on someone in my own party. They lost the minimum wage and abortion. Meanwhile, there are reports that the economy isn't in as bad a shape as we are led to believe, you know, despite warnings that we're entering a recession, Bloomberg is reporting that the economy is still growing. But most Americans, for some reason, don't see it. Why is that? Because the economy is growing. The economy is growing, but all the money is going to the richest one percent. Voters, like I said, are concerned about wages. They don't give a shit if the economy expands or contracts. They care about wages. That's it. Wages. You didn't give them a minimum wage. They're not voting for you. They care about inflation, too. And here is Nancy Pelosi with a new talking point that she took from me. This is what I said last Monday, and Nancy Pelosi said it yesterday, but she only got it half right. 
And the fact is, is that uh, when I hear people talk about inflation, as I heard him there, we have to change that subject. Inflation is a global phenomenon. Yes. The EU, the European Union, the UK, the British have higher inflation rate than we do here. It's not the fight is not about inflation. It's about the cost of living. Right. It's almost as though she watched my show on Monday and just took one line and didn't uh, learn anything. I said last week, Nancy, if you'd listen to the whole thing, I said that cost of living and inflation are synonymous and you can bring down inflation with a rent freeze. One third of inflation, Nancy, is rent. You freeze rent, you bring down inflation. But the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, owns $100 million in real estate. So inflation is great for her. Go back and watch Monday's show, Nancy. I explained that inflation is caused by three things. Rent, war, and climate catastrophe. The Federal Reserve cannot raise interest rates out of this type of inflation. You can't, you can't cure this inflation by raising interest rates. As long as there's a shortage of housing in San Francisco, okay, there will be shit on the street and inflation. Rent will be high. If, there's a, if, you're, if you're spending $1.7 million for a toilet, one toilet and not for housing, there's going to be inflation. I don't care how high interest rates go, you idiot. There will be inflation uh, and war. As long as there's war in Ukraine, there will be inflation, right? Food prices go up. Energy prices go up. You can raise interest rates to 100 percent. You don't stop that war in, in Ukraine or do a rent freeze. Inflation is just going to keep on going up. And of course, climate catastrophe. You want to talk about supply chain issues, you moron? What do you think is the biggest contributor to, to uh, su supply chain issues? Climate catastrophe, which causes uh, supply chain issues on a scale so unimaginable for the, for, for the people in Washington. They rather perpetuate the lie that inflation is all about lowering and raising interest rates. Go back and watch my entire opening to Monday's show, you murderous cretin. And thus, we're looking at a massive red wave. It didn't have to be this way. The American people hate Nancy Pelosi. Uh, she consistently polls as the least favorite member of Congress. Her unfavorability rating averages about 57 percent right now. She has a higher unfavorable uh, rating than uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Biden, Schumer and Trump. She's less popular than Donald Trump. The American people don't like Nancy Pelosi because she's not just out of touch. She's full of shit. Whether you like it or not, when it comes to the House of Representatives, the midterms are a referendum on Nancy Pelosi. Kevin McCarthy has an unfavorable rating that's 14 points lower than Pelosi's. In other words, Kevin McCarthy is 14 points more popular than Nancy Pelosi. Granted, the American people have no idea who Kevin McCarthy is. I promise you, when, once you get to meet this piece of shit, he'll be down getting the same numbers as Nancy Pelosi. Why does Nancy Pelosi cling to power if she's despised so much? 
what is her political capital? It's capital, money. It's capital, and that's it. She can raise money. She can't go out and campaign with any candidates. People hate her. She has money. She's from San Francisco, the banking capital of the West, so she can spread money around. That's her political capital. Kevin McCarthy, meanwhile, says when he's speaker, he's going to demand they balance the budget. He will enforce the debt ceiling. And that means Medicare and Social Security will be on the chopping block. Here is Congresswoman Nancy Mace, a Republican from South Carolina. Kevin McCarthy suggested that if uh, your party wins back the House, uh, he would refuse to lift the debt limit unless Democrats in the White House agree to spending cuts. Are you on board with that plan? Are you willing to risk the U.S. defaulting on its debt as leverage uh, to impose these spending cuts? I support that. Yes, she supports that. And that is what the red wave is going to do. That is what they're going to chop Social Security and Medicare. That's what the Republicans are going to do, because the Democratic leadership is morally and spiritually bankrupt. Meanwhile, early voting has started in 34 states and close to 8 million Americans have already voted in person or by mail. This is smashing the early voting record, the early voting record that was set two years ago at the height of the pandemic. Early voting uh, historically favors Democratic candidates. Let's look at the Senate, shall we? Well, the seat held by Republican Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa is now in danger of flipping blue. Michael Franklin, is, Michael Franken is the Democratic challenger, and he is within three points of striking distance, according to the latest Des Moines Register poll. That's good. They might flip Grassley's seat blue. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, an open Senate seat held by a Republican uh, is up for grabs. Republican Congressman Ted Budd is leading just by three points in the latest poll over his Democratic challenger, Sherry Beasley, who in 2019 became the first African-American woman to serve as Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. In Ohio, an open Senate seat that I'm hoping will flip blue is now a neck-and-neck nail-biter between Trump-ass-kisser J.D. Vance and Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan. Two new polls today show the candidates dead even. Vance, the Republican, was leading in the polls, but his recent comments about not wanting to fund the Ukrainian war against the Russians has infuriated thousands of Ukrainian Republicans who now vow to either stay home on Election Day or vote for the Democrat Congressman Tim Ryan. In Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is leading Dr. Oz, his Republican challenger, by four points. The two of them are scheduled to debate on Tuesday night. Dr. Oz has made an issue over John Fetterman's stroke. People will be watching that debate. Meanwhile, triumphant Silcomic Dog has been running around Pennsylvania impersonating Dr. Oz and recording commercials like this. Hi, I'm Dr. Oz. Some on the left are saying I switched my positions on gun control, immigration, and fracking. But isn't that what you want when it comes to doctors? A second opinion? I'm Dr. Oz, and I approve this message. I'm there for a minute. I'm meh 
for Mehmet? How does he think? How is that a winning campaign message for Mehmet Oz? A meh for Mehmet? Makes no sense. Triumph the insult comic dog. Meanwhile, Rolling Sun is reporting that Donald Trump is planning to challenge the election results in Pennsylvania and is preparing an army of election watchers and lawyers to challenge the results. Rolling Stone calls this election challenge in Pennsylvania a rehearsal for Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. Adam Laxalt, Republican, is leading Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto in the latest polls by 3%, which means Republican Adam Laxalt could flip the seat red from blue. I should point out that Adam Laxalt is the grandson of Republican Senator Paul Laxalt and the illegitimate bastard son of Republican Senator Pete Domenici, who had an illegitimate adulterous affair with Adam Laxalt's mother. You know, as long as Republicans are talking about the legitimacy of elections, we should talk about the legitimacy of Republicans, especially, you know, the legitimacy of Republicans like Adam Laxalt, who are all about family values. Laxalt opposes DACA for childhood arrivals of immigrants. He opposes same-sex marriage, gays serving in the military, and he wants to repeal Obamacare. Yep, that Adam Laxalt is a real bastard. But, you know, I'm the bad guy, right, for calling a real-life bastard a bastard. Adam Laxalt is a, is a bastard. Now, most children in America are born out of wedlock, more than 51%. That doesn't make them bastards. But being the child of a single, single mom whose senator father took years to step up and recognize his paternity, and then you run for office to hurt people, DACA recipients, uh, single moms and their children— that makes Adam Laxalt a bastard. Rotten hell, you piece of shit. Speaking of pieces of shit, Republican Senator Ron Johnson, who married into wealth, yeah, his get-rich-quick scheme was his shriveled chode, he's running for his third term against Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Two brand-new polls, one from CNN, another from CBS, showed Johnson leading by only one point. So that race is tightening up. Some good news, maybe, in the Senate. Uh, former RNC chair Rince Priebus is from Wisconsin, and he appeared on Fox News to talk about the tens of millions of dollars the RNC is spending on roughly 50,000 swing voters in Wisconsin. Listen to this. For 50,000 people in the middle. So we're spending... $200 million to influence 50,000 people. The Republican Party has done a great job. Yeah. They know everything about those people. They know what beer they drink, what car they drive. Yes, Republicans hate the deep, dark state spying on us, unless the deep, dark state can tell Republicans what beer swing voters drink and what car they drive. Yes, they're against the deep, dark state unless they can control it and get information. In Georgia, Republican Herschel Walker is running against Democratic Senator Raphael Warnick. This race should be a blowout, but it's tightening with Warnick leading most polls by just one percentage point. And we're probably looking at a runoff in Dece on December 6. Well, the factor in all this is MAGA. John Ross is coming up, and I, I just was speeding through. I want John to see this. <laughs> Ah, uh, the factor in all this is MAGA. Donald Trump, who is expected to announce he's running again right after the midterms, uh, he's expected to announce 
uh, that he's running again right after the midterms. But who will be his running mate? Certainly not Mike Pence. So he's got to pick another woman, a woman this time who isn't as weak and ineffectual as Mike Pence. There is talk that Trump is thinking of nominating Marjorie Taylor Greene as his running mate. Green right now is his opening act, and she meets all the qualifications to be Donald Trump's vice president. She's blonde, batshit crazy, and stupid, which is probably why Donald sees Marjorie Taylor Greene as the daughter he doesn't want to bang. But there are other possible running mates besides Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is equally as stupid and batshit crazy, like former reporter for CBS 60 Minutes, uh, Laura Logan, who was fired from Fox News and is now available after she was fired by Newsmax last week for saying that people who oppose Donald Trump's border policy are satanic and drink the blood of children. That might be too much for a reputable news organization like Newsmax, but not for a Trump presidency. Some are saying that Republican candidate for governor Carrie Lake should be Trump's running mate. But Carrie Lake in Arizona, she's running for governor of Arizona, says no, she's going to win the governor's seat and she plans to serve two terms as governor. Her race is against Democrat Katie Hobbs. And right now the polling shows that to be a toss up, uh, the latest polls show Carrie Lake leading Katie Hobbs by one point that's well within the margin of error. Carrie Lake is upset because Katie Hobbs, Democrat, is also Arizona's Secretary of State. That means she's in charge of counting the votes in Arizona, which is why Carrie Lake, Republican on numerous occasions, has said she will not accept the results if she loses. Here is ABC's Jonathan Carl with Carrie Lake. Why it is that you have not said, or maybe you'll do it now, you have not said that you will accept the certified results of this election even if you lose? This I, election. I will accept the results of this election if we have a fair, honest, and transparent election. Absolutely 100%. So, so if, 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 if you were to lose, and you're ahead, but, but if you were to lose and you went out and you had all your appeals, they went through... As long as it's fair, honest, and transparent. It's certified. I mean, who's going to determine that? Are you going to determine that? Or, or what, well, if, if it's a like certified... my opponent might have to determine that. Well, that's she is the Secretary That's she an interesting conundrum, isn't it? If the... Uh, that's right. Uh, in the Republican primary for the nomination, Carrie Lake... Lake kept shouting fraud at the polls until she won, in which case, never mind, everything is on the up and up. See how this works? If Carrie Lake loses, then it's dispositive proof there was fraud at the polls. Meanwhile, her opponent, Katie Hobbs, says she refuses to, to debate Lake. Hobbs says debating is all spectacle and it doesn't sway voters either way. For example, take a look at Val Demings last week. She's running for Senate against the incumbent Republican Marco Rubio. Take a look at this in the debate. How long will you watch people being gunned down in first grade, fourth grade, high school, college, church, synagogue, a grocery store, a movie theater, a mall and a nightclub Congresswoman, and do nothing? That is time. Well, you would think a great debate performance like that would put uh, Rubio in the dumper. Now, uh, Val Demings still down by six percentage points. So 
these debates, people have already made up their minds, which brings us all back to who will be Donald Trump's running mate. Has to be a woman, has to be a woman. She has to be tough and she has to know how to win. Plus, she'll be running against Vice President Kamala Harris, so she has to prove she can beat a woman. A woman of color. Prove to Donald that you can beat a woman of color like this one. AOC, right? If you can beat AOC, you can beat Vice President Harris in the debates. And that someone is probably this woman, Tina Forte. Tina Forte is the Republican nominee running against AOC in New York City, and she's got a lot of endorsements from a lot of communities. Can a blue state like New York be flipped red? And what are you seeing on the ground uh, to indicate that? I'm seeing a lot on the ground. I was just endorsed by the Jewish community, the Bangladesh community, Reverend Ruben Diaz from the Latino community. A lot of people are waking up to this. They don't want this anymore. Democrats are coming over to the right. She is well-spoken, gentle, but tough. And she's QAnon. And she was there on January 6th. She's loyal to Donald Trump. How you doing, everybody? I'm in front of the Capitol right now. We're fighting for the freedom of our country, the Constitution. This is what Nancy did to our Constitution. One place, one time, one purpose. Get your answers to the Capitol. This isn't about listening to music and having fucking rallies. We need to fight for our freedom, fight for our country, fight for our president, fight for our constitution. See, right? Am I right? You see what I'm talking about? And not only that, she's great on social media. I'm pro-life, I'm pro-Second Amendment, I love my country, and I'll never be fucking silenced, motherfuckers. Fuck out of here. Come at me. Keep it coming. Mrs. Gina Forte Feldman. I, this is the, the seventh Mrs. Feldman. I am so in love. She's got a little fire in her belly. I like that. And you need that in politics. Plus, just like Carrie Lake's opponent, for some reason, AOC will not debate her Republican challenger, Gina Forte. AOC, I can't wait to fucking debate you. If you even have the balls. The balls, that's why I said balls. What are you gonna do? Oh, she used the word balls, watch out. If you have the balls to debate me, we can do it on fucking pay-per-view, bitch. Huh? How do you like that, motherfucker? Fuck out of here. <laughs> I didn't know that Andrew Dice Clay, I had no idea that Andrew Dice Clay had a younger sister. Uh, anything else? I said balls. <laughs> yes, you did. You said balls. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please subscribe to this channel. Please do that for us. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, do me a favor, smash the like button and uh, subscribe to this channel, please. We have uh, John Ross. Is John here or is he is he on time? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Uh, hello, hear me? Hey, uh, John Ross joins us. He's a, a brilliant, brilliant comedy writer, comedian. And Fuck I- Fuck out of here! <laughs>
<laughs> what do you think? Get out of here. <laughs> now let me ask you a uh, question. Go ahead. Look, well, why why does his running mate have to be a woman? But to get the female vote? Yeah, he already has the female vote. I thought in the run up to the 2016 election, they kept saying, oh, Trump can't possibly win because women won't vote for him. And then every time they showed a rally, it was all freaking women. (laughs) Wait, wait a minute. How come there are all these women at his rallies? And they're all them going, hey, fuck out of here. (laughs) They are. (laughs) Every time. Every time they, they show one of these guys who's making fun of the people at the Trump rally, he's interviewing somebody. He's interviewing a woman. Women love this guy. He doesn't need a woman to get the women vote. Women don't care if, if there's a woman on the ballot. She might, might He can have anybody he wants. Might as well have a Kevin Sorbo or somebody yeah, like that. Gina, I like Gina Forte. I like her, too. It's hard not to like her. <laughs> it's, I mean, come on. This is... Yeah. This is... They said balls. I grew up with women like that. Yeah. I did. I'm from New Jersey and you've you've seen New Jersey smackdowns, right? They said balls. You ever ever go into an emergency room in Hackensack? Uh, and, no. and you ask this woman, I'm taking my mother to the emergency room in Hackensack, New Jersey. Excuse me, Gina Forte, could you put your mask on? They said balls. And it's like a it's the Jersey yeah. smackdown. She's maybe giving you a hernia exam. <laughs> so how are you? I was with a friend of mine. We were driving through, not your neck of the woods, but in, in Massachusetts. And the leaves were spectacular. It was a spectacular year yeah. uh, because, you know, the way the weather. Uh, it's came. almost normal, right, Matt? It's, it's almost there was drought, but the seasons changed on time this year. Uh, yeah, there was, there was drought for a long period of time. Uh, but then there was this tremendous downfall, but I'll tell you the farm that my daughter would, uh, farm at in the summer, which was just one of the most prolific, um, producing natural farms, uh, anywhere in the country. They're basically going out of business. They had CSAs, you know what a CSA is, you know? that's um, community sharing agriculture. That's where you like you order and you you pick up a box Mm -hmm. and make the box for you. But you can also kind of shop there. But they also, uh, you know, um, delivered to co-ops and stuff. Um, They're going basically from 70 acres down to 10. And it's because there's not enough rain. Right. They just can't. They don't have the water. And so they're just going to like kind of go be an all carrot or something and just sell to the co-ops. Or, it's it's pretty sad. It, it's it it's climate catastrophe. The price of food is going up. Got to. And but it'll all be solved because Jerome Powell is going to raise interest rates. That's going to get inflation under control. Look, I don't think democracy can really work in this country. I you agree. Do no. think democracy? No, we no. Gave, no, we're done. Fascism is starting to make sense. Well, because <laughs> how if you give people this like kind of obvious choice and I know you're running down the Democrats for not, you know, doing all the things that they could have done. But still, there's this stark choice between um, Democrats who were like 
we're kind of going to try some stuff. And Republicans who are basically just saying, yeah, we're going to cut the Medicare and, and Social Security and we're just going to give all the money to the rich people. And everybody's going, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do that. I mean, what 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 message are Democrats supposed to um, here's here's the conundrum. OK, do you talk about your policies and your platforms or do you spend your energy and time trying to convince people that you don't drink children's blood? <laughs> right, because that's really the issue. They're not going to vote for a Democrat because well, come on, they drink kids blood. That's not right. So, you know, I may not love the Republicans, but at least they don't drink kids blood. <laughs> You're right. What choice you left with? Right. So you drink kids' blood once or twice, and all of a sudden, that's what you're known for. Yeah. Yeah. I. I mean, I really do think that should be the Democrats' uh, platform. We stopped drinking children's blood. Um, I. I I think it's sex. It really gets down to sex. The Democrats are standing naked above the bed. The voter is lying on the sheets Uh and they're 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 telling the voter all these wonderful things they're going to do once they get it up Uh and they can't get it up. Wait, the voter can't get it up. No, no. The Democrats. Democrats. Help me out here. Yeah, I don't follow. Okay, let me, the Democrats are the guy. The Democrats are me, right? Okay. Standing naked. Yeah. In front of the bed. Talking a big game. Talking a big game. Lost lost your blue pill. Can't find find my blue pill. The the voter is the woman lying on her back. Uh Uh-huh. Who's getting all excited because I'm telling her all the things that we're going to do for hours right. and hours and hours. Right. But 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 here's the thing. But the Republican is is there. Hang on. Let's look with nails in it. And they're going, yeah, I guess I'll take that. Guy. Like, what? what are they, I mean, you'd rather have somebody do nothing to you than somebody who's going to beat you to death. Well, at least it's something. At least it's something. <laughs> at least I'll tell you, I'll take it. They're afraid. They're, the Democrats are afraid of getting an erection and actually placing it in the voter and and doing it. I'm being, I, you know, I, it's a horrible analogy. It sure is. So I'll stick with it for the rest of the show. I'll keep working it out. Um, anyway. Well, so I'm up against the Koch brothers tonight. You're up against the Koch brothers. Yeah. I got to get to town meeting. That's why I got to I got to blow out. Of oh, here. is there fracking? No, the Koch brother. My little town of Deerfield. OK, is the home of Deerfield Academy. Deerfield Academy has, I, I think, the third or the fourth largest endowment of any private school. in the Heavily country. endowed, like Ron it's Jeremy four. endowment. It's it's maybe seven hundred million dollars endowment. Not bad for a high school. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's it's the Coke Brothers, the uh, the gym where I get to work out and hit baseballs. It's the Coke gym. Um, So anyway, it's a nonprofit. 
So they don't pay any taxes. So they don't pay any taxes to our town. And yet they use a lot of the towns like we need a new sewer system. And they they're on our sewer system. So they're like, you know, they make gifts of, you know, whatever they decide. They, they make wanna, deposits. Oh. They, they, they do. They do little gifts of things here and there. But the, so their kids like because Deerfield Academy goes nine to 12. So anybody who works at Deerfield Academy sends their kids K through eight to our elementary school. So we have to educate their kids, but we don't get any money. We don't get any tax money from them. They don't pay any property tax. The people all live on Deerfield Academy property. So uh, so there's, there's a, a vote about the sewer. That's one thing. Then also we have a library. We got a, uh, we're trying to get a new library or uh, expanded library. We got a $4 million grant from the state, okay? which was going to pay for half of it. We were going to just have to raise the other $4 million. And it was right before COVID. COVID hit, price of, uh, you know, supply chain, everything else. Price of the library's gone up to $12 million. So now everybody in the town is like, oh, we don't want to pay more tax for, you know. And so we're trying to get Deerfield Academy to pony up, you know, some of the money. And so anyway, we have some votes tonight in town meeting to uh See if we can get some of this stuff on the ballot. And uh, it, there's, oh, you'll love this. No, I, so, I'm like, right, my head is about to, like, yeah. this is Deerfield. That it's, place it, should be outlawed. Yeah. So get that. So a lot of the people, you know, who are kind of against the new library because it's going to, you know, one is like the police chief. He doesn't want it because it's going to take money away from the <laughs> things that, uh, he, he wants like he wants new police cruisers and all this other stuff. Right. And so this uh, announcement goes out uh, like a robocall about town meeting. And he says, uh, remember to be at uh, um, Frontier High School for town meeting at 7 p.m. First of all, starts at six. So he, he's already given a little misinformation. Wow. And then he said, so we can vote on. The twelve million dollar library. So he he like drops the price to ch- you know it's just political chicanery. And how do you keep your mouth shut? Well, my wife's uh, she's a firebrand. She's doing a little bit of fist shaking and, and yelling. I, I there's a senior there's a senior citizen who I help uh, on my floor. And he needed medication at CVS yesterday. And I don't want to get into it, but I I went out on the street looking for the police. Uh I was going to arrest. I swear to God. Who were you going to arrest? CVS. Uh, That's how I went that crazy on a Sunday trying to get a prescription filled and, and it, it, it took me four hours and they wouldn't fill it. And then I had to pay $400 out of pocket. Wow. And I went looking for a cop and I was going to arrest. The, 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 <laughs> I, can I do that? Can you make a citizen's arrest? No, well, you, well, you, you're going to drag the person who's working behind the counter to jail? Well, how, what you, the no. manager. The, ma- the, the pharmacist. I, I, the head pharmacist. Yes. I don't, I don't know the... The particulars of the situation, so it's hard for me to... The, the system 
This system yeah. is designed to wear you down. Mario Savio, who ran the free speech movement, who came up with the free speech movement in the 60s, said you have to throw yourself on the gears of the machinery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the Republicans, the credit card companies, and Big Pharma, and the health insurance companies, they... They took that advice and they've thrown they, they throw themselves on the gears of the machinery. They're the ones who are doing it. Yeah, I mean, they're all so I, I just uh, I want to sort of keep a promise I made and, and shit on AT&T for a minute. Good. Uh, well, because I, I promised them that I, this would be uh, every time I came on this show, I would uh, I would uh, tell people. To leave AT and T. Good. And so my daughter. But well, start off with the headline: Leave AT and T. Leave AT and T. They're ripoff artists. Um, I don't know if, if any of the others are any better. Um, that's so, not. Uh, that's not. That's not that's how you not get how to do it, right? No. All right, all right. So here's the quick story. So she is leaving for uh, ten days for to France. Stops over in Iceland. While she's in Iceland, she's not even there yet. I get an email from AT&T. It says, hey, we noticed you're making uh, international calls on your plan. You don't have an international plan. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're adding an international plan for $10 a day. Talk, test, test. $10 a day? Yeah. And I said, fine. Uh, she's only gone for 10 days. Cost me an extra 100 bucks. 200 bucks. Totally worth it. $10 a day. She can talk, text, use data, blah, blah, blah. Right? So she's gone for 10 days. 100 bucks. Who cares? She comes back. A couple days later, I get a phone bill, $1,800. <laughs> and I, I, I call. And I'm like, and the thing is, when you call, you wait on hold for, you know, 45 minutes to get somebody. And you tell them this whole story. First person I talk to, guy goes, huh. Don't worry, we're going to waive the charges. That's not a problem. Big mistake. Forget about it. We're going to waive the pro we're going to waive the charges. And I went, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I go, thank you. Um, you know, 17-year-old kid, they didn't know, but plus I got this email. I thought, but look, you guys are going to do that. Look, I've been a customer for 20 years. So, now I'm a lifelong customer. I'll never say anything bad about AT&T. Thank you very much. Hang up the phone. A couple of days later, I get the bill. It says, you owe us $1,800. <laughs> hey, what? And so you call back again. You wait on hold. And 45 minutes, you get somebody. And you tell them this whole story. Go, so, yeah. so anyway, my daughter was there for 10 days. And blah, blah, blah. I go, what's your uh, phone number? And I go, okay, here's my phone. What's your PIN code? Okay, here's my PIN code. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay. Hello? 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 And the line just went dead. Oh, it dropped, whatever. So you call back, you wait for 45 minutes. And like, honestly, over and over and over again. And I kept telling the story and they said, no, these are legit charges. And I go, but wait, can I just forward you this email that says, they go, there's no way to forward an email to us. And I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? And so this went on. They, can't, was, they, they don't do email. They don't have email. The people right. who provide internet service don't have email. And so then- then it was, all right, a case has been, it's been elevated. A case has been opened. It will be adjudicated on September 22nd. And on September 23rd, I like, I, I don't hear anything. I call up. This has gone over and over and over for weeks. Again, 
I, I get somebody and I tell them the story. I go, look, before we go any further, I want to give you my phone number in case we get disconnected. I want you to call me back because this has been happening. Tell them the whole story. Hello. 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 <laughs> I want this job. I want that job. And, I want to do that for a living. And then, of course, no one calls me back. I want to do that. Yeah. It's that you can just imagine they're sitting there and they're waiting and they're just like, <laughs> bang. <laughs> just hang up on you. <laughs> From their home. They do it out of their home. You and I should take jobs like that and sit around and hang and, up on do customer service. And finally, I, I said to him, I said, I said, listen, here's the thing. I said, it's eighteen hundred bucks. I, I have it. I said, I will scratch you that check. I will write you that check. But then I'm done. Then I leave AT&T. You make eighteen hundred dollars off of me in six months, maybe a year. And like, do you want to say you don't want my business for the rest of my life, the rest of my family's life? Is that really a smart business decision? Like, even if these were legitimate charges, even if you hadn't sent me that email, shouldn't you just let this go and keep my business? And like, I guess no. not. They, what do they care? They don't. I mean, what they couldn't care less. I had an ident. I had to cancel AT and T cable. And so the, fir the first woman I speak to, oh, this the same thing. Yeah, no problem. And she goes, and we're going to prorate this and blah, 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 and you're all done. I go, that's it. That's it. She says, I just have to transfer you to billing. I said, I thought I was billing. Now you have to speak to you have to do an exit interview. Oh, you know, what? I, I had a similar thing in that I had a business account. And so every time I would tell my whole story and they go, oh, oh, this is business. This is a, we don't deal. We're wireless. You have to go to the business. I got, and it's like, you know, I got it, transferred. It, I swear to you, John, I got transferred five times yeah. around the world. And I'm the ugly American. And I have to repeat the same story. And I'm trying not to be a phone bully, right. which I am. Well, you know, one of the things that I said to these people a bunch of times, it doesn't seem to work, um, was I would say, look, I'm being treated terribly by AT&T, but it's only during this one phone call. You work for them every single day. I feel sorry for you. I'm sure you don't have health care. I'm sure you don't have dental. I'm sure you don't have a pension plan. They're treating you much worse than they're treating me. Like, let's join forces. Mm-hmm. But none of it works. And then when they, whenever they say, oh, I'm, I, I apologize. I'm so sorry. You're a valued customer. I go, save that shit. Right. Do not come at me with you're sorry. Because those are empty words. Either right. help me with this problem or fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, that's so, right. Hey, my wife just texted. She said the moving, meeting's moving along. I got to get there. And All vote. right. I love you, buddy. So I, I love you. I'll talk to you next time when we have more time right. and I'm feeling better. I'm a little bit under the weather. Okay. I got to wear my mask at the meeting. All right. I don't have COVID, but um, I got the cold from the kids. They said balls. <laughs> that should be our, our yeah. reading from now on. Hello, it's like Shalom. Hello, <laughs> I said balls. They said balls. All right, Johnny Ross. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Let us now go to Great Britain. A lot of, a lot of stuff going on in, in Great Britain, where Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling is, uh, is standing by. Are you there, 
Ahoy! Can you hear me, sir? Salute, David. Salute. It's great to Hello. hear. It's great to hear your voice, Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling joins us. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling, he grew up with King Charles yeah. uh, over at Remington Hall in East Anglia. It abuts Sandringham, one of the palaces, and. You dated you, you you dated Princess Anne, correct? I did in the unconventional manner beyond the realms of horticulture, yes. Yes. And uh so have things calmed down in England now that you have a new prime minister? Well, I think calm's an operative word. I I, I fear the uh uh Fellow aristocrats are Ted Mift at uh, giving the reins to a brown chap. However, he seems to be very rich and uh, keen on making us richer. So, all power to him, I say. Good look on the old fella. Yes. yes. Making you richer. Now, as I, you've been pretty open about being destitute, that R Remington Hall is on life support. So. Well, I I wouldn't say that I don't have ready cash like the the average chap in the street. However, I don't really need ready cash like the average chap in the street. My title is enough uh, that people tend to want to give me things. So, yes. so you're land rich. Yes, I have property and heritage. Goes a long way in this country still. How do you pay your bills, though? How do you pay for electricity and food? And you, you have ser how many servants do you have? Uh, I have, well, in theory, one uh, servant, one uh, dog's body, one could say, um, called um, Quentin. But that's, again, in theory. Uh, there are actually a multitude of people, but... For tax purposes, uh, there is just one Quentin. Yes. There's just Quentin, your nephew. Quentin, my... Well, you can say he's a multitude of... He's a, well, a multitude of personalities, I'll put it like that, yes. I see. And yes. yet, when I look at pictures of Remington Hall... Yes? How, how big is Remington Hall? It's enormous. It's far too big, and, and I, I don't know. I've... The tape measure I've got merely stretches to three and a half meters. Uh, it would take an eon to go around this place. There in the deeds, I've not looked at the deeds uh, at all, really. I left that to Mummy. Uh, mm -hmm. She just gave me the house, and uh, that's, that's where we are. So I, I live here. It's very spacious, even with the, uh, oh, sorry, singular uh, Quentin, um, all the Quentins. Um, it's, 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 it's cavernous, but it's manageable because I tend not to move into the other wings. I, I say right here uh, in, in the main wing. Yes. I see. And has there ever been a Mrs. Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling? For the purposes, once again, of tax reasons, I would like to say no. So there, there's never been a wife? Uh, I refer you to my previous answer. Okay. But there has been a very 
uh, a very formal relationship with a woman, but uh, one cannot consider it a marriage. It was not particularly legal. Uh, Why was that? Well, it, it was done by a witch doctor in the in the Bahamas, and uh, it was a, it was a strange period. Of my and life and what was and what was the bloodline there with this woman? How close were you related to her? Uh, not at all. It has to be said, not at all. Um, there, I had a, a few. I had a wilderness period, David where I lost my way somewhat, um, or I felt somewhat of a failure, and uh, I took heavily to uh, rum and marijuana. So I found myself um, pretty much at the epicenter of that world. I ended up in Jamaica and living in a hut for approximately five years. Hmm. And during that period, um, I touched base with the... uh, Locals and um, yes, and highly selected. It turned out all right because this um, partnership, I'll I'll say, means I no longer pay tax in this country. I see. And you were good friends with the children of Haile Selassie in Jamaica, weren't you? (laughs) Well, um, good friends. How do we put this? Yes, I'll say yes, just to perpetuate the conversation. Yes, we were good friends, yes. Um, yes, they, they were not not fond of the uh, colonialists. I'll put it like that. But yes, I... I yes. And, and you, you believe that they are the children of God. Is that correct? They, they are the Yahweh, yes. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm not so sure now, because... Again, one has to, as an aristocrat from these isles, one has to be uh, very um, safe with their position regarding God. I'm an Anglican when I'm here, but when I am over there in Jamaica, uh, in the throes of a colossal rum and marijuana binge, well, pretty much anybody who says they're God, I'm willing to believe. Mm -hmm. And and you did party with Haile Selassie, is that correct? I partied highly with Haile Selassie, yes. And what's it like to party highly with Haile Selassie? Did you get high with Haile Selassie? It took me another five years to get down. You got that high with Haile? Oh, yes. Yes. I I lost my way. It was a a pleasurable journey, however. Uh, So, yes. Yes. And is he a good host? Or was he a good host? Well, I'm still alive. That's, that's right. good enough for me, because to be frank, that five years was pretty much a blur, pretty mm-hmm. much a blur. So, yes, I, I, I'm alive. I've came back to the landed gentry of this country and uh, seemingly nobody has any qualms about my spell and the colonies. So I, I, I seems seems to come out. All right. So I, I can't say he's a bad host, but. Equally, I can't say I could have been Rogered from behind and not known about it. Right, right. You see, I was what, completely when you off were, my box. Are you are you Cambridge or Oxford? Yes. So, uh, hey, well, we're talking education. I was on. A, I thought you meant the boat race. I was like, I, well, whoever 
I, I pick the form of the year, you see. So whoever's doing well in the run-ups to the bird race. I see. But I'll either choose education. I was a, I think you'll find, I was a Cambridge man. And, yes. and what and what did you read when you were at Cambridge? I read Latin, oh boy. Yes. You like read everybody Latin? Else who, I read Latin like anybody else who has no prospect of a career because they don't need one. And what did you think you wanted to do when you graduated? What what did you want to do with your life when you were a man of a rustabout at 22? I, I wanted to keep receiving money that was not due to me. And I wanted to converse in a language that the plebeians wouldn't understand. <laughs> so I took on the Latin. So that the was... The best way to, to sound um, superior and to sound um, academic, but without having any discernible intelligence whatsoever. So yes. your dreams, when when young men graduate from high school or college, they they all want to set their path in the world and they think they can achieve it. You you said to yourself when you were 22, I want what? To learn Latin so I don't have to speak to the general public. And earn, um, earn money. Need, need to live off money I have not earned. Earn, yes, live off money and have your dreams come true. Some of my dreams are rather weird, David. So, well, basically, I like to leech. Mm -hmm. I'm part of the aristocracy. We are born to leech off the backs of the workers. So in many ways, this is, you know, an inspirational story. Because if you, if you, through sheer perseverance. Yes. Through sheer perseverance, I've spent an entire life doing absolutely nothing of any worth whatsoever. And found myself in the old scrape as a result. So, yes. So you're a role model to future generations, not just of the aristocracy, but to anybody. If you put your mind to it, you can achieve anything. Because it sounds like you've achieved most of what you wanted. Yes, I've achieved. I didn't. This is the point, you see, David. Um, One doesn't have a great deal of uh, aspiration when one is at the the peak of the, the... mountain mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking with Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling uh, from his estate in Remington Hall, East Anglia. And don't, don't forget one thing, David. Yes, sir. Amor omnia vincit. Love conquers all. Ah. Uh, yes. Wise words have never, wiser words never spoken. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. That is Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please subscribe to this program wherever you get your podcasts and hit the like button. If you're watching this as a uh, YouTube stream, please subscribe. We would like you to subscribe. When we come back... We will be joined by Derek Marshall, who is running for California's 23rd Congressional District. We'll be right back.
traveling light. Got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road. Got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. Hi, it's my Hannah. Uh, I'm to make sure everything is okay. My gender, I'm traveling light. That you hadn't done all of your show stuff and it was... self-esteem I'm traveling light I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants my very valuable Hummel collection a menorah made of fish heads a Christmas tree I like to keep my options open don't you know a shoe shine kit a skill saw a crossword book a large supply of mechanical pencils a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read 
some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A. and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list. Thank you so much. That is Professor Mike Steinell, who will not be with us once again. He's got a bit of a cold. Get better. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, David Feldman Show. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Please subscribe to this show. It helps. It really does. Now let's go to California, California's 23rd Congressional District, where Derek Marshall is standing by. He is running for office and everybody has to donate to him. He's one of the good Democrats. Hello, Derek. How do people what is your website? Hey, David, thank you so much for having me on the show again. Thank you for doing this. I feel like the last time I was on the show, I, I talked and we ended up with a super volunteer that has moved into my house uh, here in, in the high desert and is out doing that that cool progressive thing. Uh, my website is DerekMarshallCA.com. Uh, that's D-E-R-E-K uh, Marshall, like the Marshall Plan, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-C-A for the wonderful state of California.com. So DerekMarshallCA.com, DM, the number four, CA.com is the short version to get to it. Uh, or if people are struggling, uh, since there's a hundred different ways to spell Derek, uh, two different ways to spell Marshall. Actually, there's multiple <laughs> ways to spell Marshall. It's uh, just Google my, me, Derek Marshall. You will find me uh, online as well. Thank you. So it's great to see you again. You are an organizer. You organize for Bernie. It was breathtaking what you did at office hours Friday. You came in. We were talking burnt out. It's the end of the week. You came in with so much energy and you (laughs) brought in some campaign workers with you. I wanted to fly out to California to hang out with not just you, but everybody. It's it felt like a real movement. And that's what leadership is. Leadership is, I really got a sense of it when you showed up at office hours. Like, I just wanted to be around you and that energy. That's how you get things done. Explain to me what what you learned from Bernie about organizing. Absolutely. Well, it's funny because I, you know, I I kind of, and I'm sure people have thought about this, this term in in different ways, but I I call them my honeypot moments. And the honeypot moment is, you know, this moment where all the flies kind of come out. So whether it is, you know, dinner at my house on Wednesday, whether it's just a casual Monday afternoon where, you know, some of the organizers are here and super volunteers are here and we're, we're joking over, you know, pizza or a sandwich that someone bought for five bucks at a, at a, you know, local shop. Um, you know, it's, it's that magical energy that just attracts, um, really, really great people, um, that are civically minded and it's just fun. You're in community with other people, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're, uh, you're, um, you're kind of realizing uh, an esprit de corps, right? This like spirit of, uh, you know, the spirit of, of organizing uh, all coming together. And it's, it's wonderful because it is wonderful to be around. It makes you feel great. And you're actually doing something really important. And you're, you know, you're building, um, you're building local power and you're teaching people how to realize, uh, realize the, the, realize that that power in, in terms of uh, achieving everything from, you know, big picture Medicare for all canceling medical debt uh, right down to, 
you know, fixing uh, a pothole in a local road. Exactly. And I think that's something that's really great about this campaign. I spent the weekend looking at polling. The number one concern of every voter above the environment, Ukraine, abortion, wages, not inflation, wages, 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 wages. That's all the voters care about. What do the Democrats need to do when you go to Congress? What are you going to do to improve our wages? What we get paid, you know, like it used to be jobs. Well, since Clinton, we were promised jobs, but those jobs turned out to be low paying. We became the working poor in America. What what are you going to do to increase our wages? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the the ultra wealthy in this country have too much of the pie. Uh, You know, the top one percent owns just a ridiculous amount of wealth in this country. And so we have essentially become an oligarchy. Uh, not, not we, we are an oligarchy at this point. And I think that what we need to do is we need to fix the redistribution uh, mechanism that exists within, uh, within the society uh, in order to support working people. Uh, so whether that is um, ensuring that there is a livable wage, uh, whether that is uh, fighting for Medicare for all, what I believe that the Democratic Party needs to do, what working, uh, well, what the Democratic Party needs to do is it needs to get back to being a working class party, a party for the working class. Uh, I don't think in my lifetime, I'm 39 years old, I don't think the Democratic Party in my lifetime has been uh, a left of center political They don't party. trust the working class. They don't think no. the working class can get the job done. The workers can't get the job done. They have to only rely on Ivy Leaguers, the privileged elite, the the noblesse oblige of the Harvard graduate to give us some crumbs. That's not how you get a livable wage, by relying on hyper-credentialed, over-educated buffoons, which they're in charge of my party. Precisely. And so what I would like to do, like, you know, just being constructive here is, you know, we have run a corporate free campaign uh, in a district that has been forgotten, frankly speaking, by both political parties, by both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And, you know, we we began, uh, you know, when we decided to, to launch, I think we were like in our, you know, 17 district. And everyone in the world was was, you know, what what are what is this campaign you know doing? And from the very beginning, uh, for me, I was just saying what we need to do is we need to organize. We need to organize working people and we need to get back to doing that and forget about the numbers, forget about the polls. Just get back to organizing the working class, because I think what we have done uh, and what the Democratic Party has done by by ignoring working people and working class districts, uh, what we have done is we've just kind of rolled over and are playing dead in the rural and exurban communities of this country. And it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, my my mom is from Buffalo, New York. Right. So she grew up in the Rust Belt. Uh, my dad is from Wallingford, Connecticut. Uh, you know, family was, uh, you know, German and Polish immigrants working in the factories. And what I can tell you is that uh, the Democratic Party, probably since the 60s or the 70s, has not you know, really um, robustly 
uh, stood up for uh, for the working class. And so what I am doing with our campaign is really uh, changing that and changing that that narrative. And I think that when we win this race and we prove that when you organize working people and you come together uh, and we're, we're, we're in the fight together and we, we flip a district into the hands of an unapologetic progressive, the narrative changes and we can suddenly uh, make a real uh, claim to some of the headier intellectual members of our party. Like, look, actually, our model is the better model to, to you know, to build uh, to build a stronger worker party. And that's, right. you know, just speaking from a philosophical perspective, that's what I'm uh, right. interested in. I, I disagree with you on one word, intellectual. Yes. I don't think the people running the Democratic Party are intellectuals. I think they're <laughs> ambitious, craven, and they love money. I, I think, I don't think Biden's an intellectual. Pelosi's not an intellectual. I, I think Obama was an intellectual, but now he's hanging out with Bruce Springsteen. Uh, it is it is reprehensible that they have not raised the minimum wage in 10 years. They, they have gotten rid of the minimum wage. It doesn't exist anymore. If, if it's seven dollars and change, we don't have a minimum wage. Yeah, Nobody can I mean, I'm, I'm looking in, in some of the, the, the comments right now. I mean, it it really is. It's it's neoliberalism and it's kind of it's our generation's uh, uh, it's our generation's uh, economic battle uh, between progressive uh, economic policy and neoliberal economic policy. And it's funny because, you know, I lived in Germany for a number of years and in Germany and in most European countries and most countries outside of the, the U.S., uh, there is a political party that is the, the liberal party, right? It's the, the centrist economic liberal party, which is essentially a conservative right of center, uh, you know, or center center right political party. And, you know, my by my analysis, it was funny because oftentimes I would have uh, European or international friends that would joke and say, oh, well, you know, uh, the uh, the leadership of the, the Democratic Party in, in our respective countries would actually be center right or center. And uh, and, and they're not wrong. They're actually they, they are correct. And so what I'm interested in doing uh, is to actually build a left of center uh, political party uh, in this country because uh, we oh my gosh, we, we really need the help. I mean, right. the working class is just getting screwed. If I had to do messaging for the Democrats, this mm -hmm. is what, like if I were to, if you said to me, how do I message? What, what would you say after looking at the polls this weekend and seeing what, what I think the Democrats should be offering the 99% what the Republicans offer the richest 1%. You mm -hmm. say to the American people, Check your savings account today. I promise you there will be more money in your savings account in two years if you vote for me. And if there isn't more money in your savings account, don't vote for me. But give me two years to put more money in your savings account. I'm going to run on one issue, and that is money. Because that's why the Republicans march in lockstep. It's mm -hmm. all about money. They'll say a lot of things, but in the end, it's about feathering the nests of the richest 1%. <laughs> you know, I don't know why Democrats can't say, 
I, I'm not running on this. I'm not running on this. I know you care about that. I care about your financial security. If in two years, if there isn't more money in your savings account, don't vote for me. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think when it, when it comes down to messaging, um, and, and by the way, we, we've done internal polling as well, and, uh, and it just confirmed, uh, you know, kind of what we, um, what we have been, uh, you know, what, what our best guess was, which is, you know, run on economic, uh, you know, run on economic issues. And, and I'm doing it not because that's what the polls are saying, just to be clear, I'm doing it because that's what I believe deep in my heart is that people are struggling and in the richest country in the history of the world, people uh, should not be struggling. No, no, they are. It, it, no. it is, it is it, to me, it is an immoral uh, reality that we're living in this country right now. And, uh, and, and yeah, it's clear as day. I mean, I, I love the framing that you just said, David, it's, you know, just ask, say, Hey, you know, m- more money in the bank account. And, you know, I'll go one further. I mean, that's, that's what the, the you know, left-right political conversation used to always be, right? You'd have the industrialist or you'd have the, the, the wealthy capitalist of a, of a conservative political party that would be saying, oh, lower taxes on the rich or lower taxes on business. And then the working class party would be shaking, no, we want to, you know, we want to make the rich pay their fair share in taxes and we want more money, you know, into the pockets of, of working people. So that was the, that was the old dichotomy. Um, but now there's only one piece of the Democratic Party, the progressive piece of the Democratic Party that's actually arguing for that. And I I think that what has happened is corporate donations uh, have bought and paid, uh, unfortunately, a lot of, uh, they they bought the silence. Let's say it like that, right? Let's be nice. They bought the silence of a lot of uh, corporate Democratic politicians. Uh, And so assuming good faith for a second, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our, our democratic leadership uh, have been bought and paid for by big corporations. And, uh, and that is, uh, to me, that that is an unfortunate reality that I would like to change. And I think the yeah. way that we change it is by number one, creating a norm where uh, Democrats don't accept corporate donations, right? We don't accept corporate donations. And uh, then the second thing is that we're fighting for you know, the Medicare for all, livable wage, tuition-free college, canceling medical debt, universal pre-K, uh, you know, in, in addition to uh, vast expenditures into infrastructure, green infrastructure uh, through um, through the Green New Deal. Why don't people organize? Is it they're, they're overworked? They're depressed? They, there isn't time? What, what is it that yesterday I, I had an experience at CVS, which I think is owned by Walgreens, it was a five-hour ordeal of trying to get my friend's prescription filled. Mm-hmm. I was essentially working for Walgreens four hours to get a, and I ended up getting charged four hundred dollars. And I just wanted to get under the covers and sleep for fifteen mm-hmm. hours. I felt so violated by the process, and it's depressing because these are necessary medications for this gentleman. And I'm thinking. Why would the pharmacist do this to, to, to this old man? What, why, what happened to us? Why do we allow this? Why do we do this to each other? Why? Yeah, well, I think what's happened is, is, is you know, the wealth, um, 
you know, the wealth concentration in this country hasn't happened overnight. It's been a generation, a generation and a half. And so it's kind of, uh, you know, it's like the frog in boiling water. You put the frog in normal water and then it gets worse and worse right. and worse. Right. Uh, we've suddenly woken up to an America where we're the frog in, in boiling hot water mm-hmm. and we know that something needs to be done, but uh, it's almost, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're the frog that's in boiling water and we know that something, uh, that something needs to be done. And I, I think what's, what's challenging is, is that, uh, very few people are able to, uh, members of the working class are able to have the luxury of time because they're struggling so much right now to pay a median $2,000 a month rent. Right. Uh, in, in my district, you know, the median income, at least in the last census was, uh, or through the, in the last district, which is very similar to the current one was 24,000 bucks uh, a year. The median rent was $2,000 a month. Unbelievable. And so it's already starting underwater. And so what that does is, is you, you know, in, you know, you know, in, in your mind that a change needs to happen, you know, that people are struggling and you need, you know, better politics. But what's happened is, is people, they're, they're running themselves ragged in order to just be able to survive. And so it makes it really hard to, uh, it makes it really hard to, uh, to organize. It's kind of like we're in that space in between it being so awful that you just have to throw everything down and, and right. life line. And, uh, so we're in this really, um, unfortunate situation. And the issue, uh, was my tone of voice yesterday. The, the, the issue wasn't that this gentleman was being denied life-saving medication that he needed. The issue was my tone of voice. These are the, the systems of control that they, they, cha- they train mid-level management to make it about the victim. It's the victim's fault. That's why I think people, I think they broke, I think they've broken us in America. That's why I was so glad to see you and your mother and your organizers, because <laughs> you, you, you're not going to allow them to break you. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think, you know, part of it, and this is me just being real and authentic right now. Um, you know, I think part of it is because I had the privilege of, of living in Europe for a couple of years of living outside of the U S in a society where, uh, where there is um, economic stability and where you're a little bit freer. And, right. and I think that have like, it's almost like that has, it's like a vaccine. <laughs> it's, it's like right. a vaccine to, uh, to know that, Hey, actually there is a, there's a, a life that can be easier. And, and actually I know things feel really hard right now. And uh, you know, and, and I struggle every month to pay my bills and to pay my rent. And I have to figure out, you know, which bill I'm going to pay first and how many, you know, going to do this, especially running as a you know candidate and running as a corporate free candidate. Um, but I think it's the, it's the story in my head. It's the vision and knowing the deep knowing that there is um, there is a better way and I've lived it. Uh, and I think that that's what keeps me, keeps me happy. It keeps me going uh, and keeps joy and love in my heart is because, you know, you just pull together with community and, it's really wild. I mean, I have, I have friends that I organize with that are, that are, you know, almost unhoused. 
they you know are struggling with addiction. They are uh, the most marginalized of society, and it's it's absolutely amazing that we've all come together and and we just make it work. You know, we link arms together, and we're we kind of feel in the you know in the fight together. And I think that really. Um, I don't know. It, it's something. It's something special, and I think that we're actually going to pull this. Uh, we're going to pull this off. Well, I tattooed your logo to my forehead. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> uh, let's call At Howie least. Klein. Let's say hello to Howie Klein, then I'll let you go. Cool. Uh, Thank you. So, hang on for one second. Everybody needs to go to DerekMarshallCA.com. I don't ask for much on this show. Go to DerekMarshallCA.com. Donate either time or money to, uh, and there's a, one of my listeners has joined the campaign and is hanging out with you. And that's fantastic. Let's say hello to Howie. Howie Klein, Derek Marshall's on the show. Hey, I I knew Derek was coming on. That's great. Yeah. He is the best. And we, uh, and I want him to come back. So say hello, Derek, and, and then I'm gonna. When you go, we'll really try to raise money for you. So. Awesome, Howie. Oh, it's, it's great. It's great hearing you, David. Thank you so much for having me on again. And uh, I'm gonna get back on the dialer right now. So I've been making calls, and uh, we've got an election to win. So thank yes, you guys. Thank you. Come back before the right. election. Before we'll I do. before I bring in Howie Klein, uh, let me order everybody to go to DerekMarshallCA.com, D-E-R-E-K-M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-C-A.com and donate $5 or five hours or $50 or 50 hours. Join the, join the party. It really does. Howie, they popped in at my office hours on Friday and it looked like a lot of fun to be hanging out with Derek and his friends as they get the campaign going. So thank you, Derek. All right. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Derek. Bye, Derek. Howie Klein joins us. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, raising money for candidates like Derek Marshall, which uh, is a noble pursuit. I'm kind of... You know, speaking, speaking of Derek, I wanted to tell you that um, I was speaking to him earlier today, uh, you know, because I was trying to get someone to donate, uh, you know, a substantial amount of money to his campaign. And he said, the person I spoke to said, well, you know, it's late in the game. You know, it's all set. It's not going to matter anymore. And they, what are they going to do with the money anyway? And Derek, and I, then I called Derek and told him that. And he told me what they're going to do with the money. He told me exactly what they're doing with the money. You know what it costs to make a phone call, uh, an outreach phone call? to a voter is 3.5 cents. That's what it costs. He's got a great uh, team of people willing to do these calls, and uh, but it's, you, you still have to pay. Now, 3.5 cents doesn't sound like a lot, but when you when you multiply that and make it like $35 or $350, that's a lot of phone calls and, and a lot of opportunities to persuade someone to vote and to persuade someone to vote for Derek and to tell them why they should. So it's not, it's not it's definitely not too late to uh, right. to donate, especially if you got a great campaign, a uh, great campaign like Der- Derek's campaign, which is so um, oriented towards uh, the grassroots and so oriented not to uh, for TV advertising. That isn't what they do. Right. Win. 
I had a temper tantrum at the top of the show. I, I made the mistake. Is everything okay? Yes, everything's great. What, what, what is that? Is there a crunching sound or what is that? I don't hear a crunching sound. I hear somebody. Uh, do I need to mute somebody here? Hang on. Uh, okay. I don't I hear a weird sound. Um, okay. Over the weekend. Is it like, uh, is it like someone singing? No, no. It's like, uh, like somebody shuffling papers or something, but this is a lot better than I screwed up last week. So it's, anyway, uh, so I made the mistake this weekend of looking at polls. I, uh, instead of Ukrainians? Yes, instead of Ukrainians. We're, they're pretty much becoming the same thing with this refugee crisis. So the number one concern in every state is wages. That Ukraine, climate change, abortion, doesn't, nobody cares. What? It's, it really, because the poll that I looked at um, today uh, said um, number one was um, inflation. I guess you could say that those are the same thing in a way. Right. Uh, and so I, I just got really angry at the Democrats. And, and I just, I, I, you know, you should do the talking. But as I said to Derek, if the Democrats want to win, there's one message. How much is in your bank account today? Check it two years from now. If there's more money in your bank account, vote for me. If there's not more money in your bank account, don't vote for me. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not here to talk about anything else other than your wages and your financial security. Uh, if I have time for the other stuff, I'll get to it. But I'm here to put money in your in your checking and savings account. Isn't that the ultimate winning message? Um, well, well, some people might not believe it, but it, it could be a winning message. And then you deliver but, on it. I mean, yes, if you can deliver on it, it's important. But the but the thing is, is that you've got to make the point that the Demo that Democrats and Democratic policies are going to be good for uh, your income and your and your family's livelihood. That's the most important thing. I think that's what you're trying to say. Right. Do you think Americans really care? I mean, I want to see Donald Trump locked up and I want to save the democracy and we should be prosecuting. Absolutely. But I don't think most Americans care. You know, if I don't think locking up Donald Trump and the future of our democracy is the, the number one concern of most Americans. It's absolutely not the number one concern. You know what the number one concern is? The number one concern is always going to be kitchen table issues, and that's what it is. Right. So last week you said that the head of the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, could lose his seat, and you were— Well, I, I said I hope that he would lose his seat. Right. And today in the New York Times, a week after Howie Klein says it— they said he's in trouble. So what what are you hearing? You write about this over at Down with Tyranny. Uh, right. And I have a post coming out about it soon, I think, uh, which is that 
um, Sean Patrick Maloney, who, who, you know, he had a moderately uh, blue district, but he just south of him was a more blue district under the new uh, the new uh, maps, and he he decided to push out the congressman who was in that one, a young congressman named Mondaire Jones, who's absolutely a great congressman, and um, so he pushed out Mondaire Jones and told him to go run somewhere else. And he took over Mondaire Jones's district. I don't think Mondaire should have left, but you know, that, you know he couldn't face the kind of uh, kind of finances that are commanded by a crook like uh, Sean Patrick Maloney. But in any case, the the slightly blue district, just it, where he was, that looks like it's going to stay Democratic. Whereas his district is now fifty-fifty. Uh, Cook, who does ratings of all the uh, houses, of all the uh, house seats, just. Uh, Re, uh, re-rated this one from leans blue to uh, toss-up. So now it's a toss-up. So now the DCCC is, is, is which he, he rules, is um, putting finances, lots and lots of money into this district, and that means they're not putting into other districts, which, which is tragic. I just tweeted a few minutes ago that the DCCC uh, has abandoned, as an example, They've abandoned uh, Michelle Vallejo in South Texas. Now that's she's in a 50-50 race. Uh, everyone who every poll shows that either she's up one point or the uh, the Republican is up one point, and the D, and the DCCC should be spending money there. And instead, they're, they're not. They're spending money on their own uh, chairman, Sean Patrick Maloney, in a, in a very blue district that he should be able to win. And he's got tons and tons of money, millions and millions of dollars that he's collected on his own. And yet they're putting DTRIP power behind him now. Uh, tragic. And so Bernie is rushing down to McAllen, Texas, to to do a um, to do a rally, a big public rally this weekend with Michelle. Yeah, I, I've spent I've spent the summer defending the Democrats. Uh, I still want them to win. I want Maloney to win, but they are. Well, if it comes down between Maloney winning or or Michelle Vallejo winning, I'd much right. rather have Michelle win. Exactly, since she's on the same side as we are in, of all our policies, and he's not. Right. He has one of the most conservative voting records of any Democrat in Congress. And he's, on, and he's on a leadership track. We don't want people like that on a leadership track. If he's on a leadership track, he could wind up one day, you know, being a senator, uh, being a vice president, something like that. And, and you know, you got to kill these things in, in their infancy. So, so uh, <laughs> I like that. That's the real pro-choice. I'm really pro-choice. The race seems to be tightening up. It looked bad for the Democrats, and now it seems to be tight in every sw- swing uh, race that I'm seeing, at least in the Senate. Right? Yeah, the, 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 everything is very tight. I mean, it, it was going in favor of the Democrats for a while, then it moved back to be in favor of the Republicans. Now it's sort of right down the middle, and we don't know what's going to happen. No one knows. Anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen, they know, they're wrong. What, what? One thing that did happen that we do know is that CAA dropped uh, Kanye West. We do know that. Oh, okay. That's huge. It, That's well, huge. I, have something, I have something even more huge. A scoop, and I broke the scoop today on, um, on Twitter a few minutes ago, but I'll tell you what it is. Probably, unless you're following me on Twitter, you don't know. 
And that is that um, I have it on good information that the reason that Biden didn't fill the ambassadorship or even propose an ambassador uh, to Italy is because he plans to give that to Nancy Pelosi. She's not going to uh, she's not going to stay in Congress. She's running again. And, you know, for various reasons. And then she's not going to remain in Congress and she'll go and be the ambassador to Italy. And I heard that. And at the same time, that several of her um, her top aides have been applying for jobs uh, on, uh, on K Street. Gee, what a surprise. And is the daughter, is the Pelosi daughter going to take, is, is Newsom going to appoint her daughter? As- no, Newsom doesn't get to appoint. No, no, no. Uh, it would be a special election. Newsom only can appoint a senator, not a uh or an attorney general like he just did. He can't appoint a um, a congressperson, not even for one day. The the members of the House, uh, will they only get elected. So what Newsom will have to do is as soon as Pelosi announces that she's leaving, he'll have to call a special election. I've heard that the daughter, not the documentary, Chris, the Chris, other one. Christine Pelosi, yes, Christine. Wants her mother's seat. Have you heard that? Yes, 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 of course. That would just I be. Mean, that, is, that is. What are these? All right. This is. I'm not going to go there. It's just so. Tell me some good news. Uh, that, that's interesting. So everybody should follow Howie on Twitter, by the way. It's at Down With Tyranny. That's, that's uh, Howie's uh, handle on Twitter, Down With Tyranny. And everybody should go read Down With Tyranny. Are you seeing something? Before we turn to the House, I I wanted to ask you uh, about some races that I have uh, some emotional skin uh, in. Uh, The Senate, is, is there any way? I saw a tightening in Wisconsin, or is that, am I wrong? Well, if it's tightening in Wisconsin, that's good because it really looked like um, right. Uh, what's his name was going to win? Uh, Ron Johnson would, right. would would be reelected. So I hope it's tightening. I know that uh, that's another state. You know, Bernie is gigantically popular in Wisconsin, and not only did he beat Hillary in 2016, but he also beat uh, Trump uh, in 2016. Overall, beat Trump, and over and county by county, even in counties that are Republican counties, that Hillary. One lost in the general election, Bernie beat Trump in those counties, in many, not all of them, but in many of them. So he's very, very well liked, very respected, and he is definitely flying in and spending the last weekend before uh, the, t- the Tuesday voting in Wisconsin, also Michigan, uh, where he's very popular, in Pennsylvania. So he's going to those three states to try to help, um, and certainly in, in Wisconsin, uh, try to help in the Senate race for Mandela Barnes. Okay. Carrie Lake running for governor in Arizona. (laughs) I know it doesn't matter. She's just going to be the governor of Arizona. But I just. Well, it does matter. I mean, you know, I mean, she's certainly someone who could help steal the uh, 2024 election. It it matters. So what, what are you saying? Uh, you know, a not great Democratic candidate uh, in terms of, you know, not knowing how to campaign properly, not knowing how to frame messaging properly, 
uh, Carrie Lake is has a very a big media presence, and she's a media person, so she's you know way out ahead. I see her probably winning this thing, which is a shame. She's you know probably the, one of the craziest people running, and and does not deserve a job right. uh, like governor of anything. And unfortunately, the Secretary of State is running against her and, you know, not doing a good job of it. I mean, Carrie uh, Lake challenged her to a debate and she refused. So now that's become a big issue in the campaign. And And, uh, it's unfortunate because she's on the wrong side of that issue. Do debates debates matter? I mean, I watch Val Demings, who I know you don't like. She's too conservative for you. But she, but she did a very good job in the debate. Amazing. Yeah. But and, is it going to sway the election? No, I don't think so. Maybe, I mean, I don't think enough people watch those debates for it to make that big of a difference. But in the case of uh, Hobbes returning down Carrie Lake, that's what the issue becomes. Not if, you know, it, it's a bigger thing than if she would have gone and even lost the debate. Right. Uh, you know, usually no, usually in these debates, your side says you won. The other side says they won. And no one knows who won. And no one did win. You know, you may sway a few people one way or the other, but generally not. So, you know, anyone is better off being part of a debate and doing it. And uh, for Hobbes to say she won't do it, that becomes the issue. And people are saying, well, what's wrong with her? Why won't she debate? Right. And uh, among independents, and there are a lot of independents in Arizona, it's a huge factor. They they don't like that. Can you they don't be, like someone refusing to debate? Can you be too good at a debate? Do you think Val Demings was too good that she roughed up no. Marco Rubio? Too? People just no. didn't see it. Now, he, he can't do that to her. You can't really rough up a black woman and get away with it. But she can rough rough him up. It's it's OK. He's a sitting U.S. senator. And he can take it. And if he can't take it, that's, uh, you know, people don't like that. So she did fine. She, she, she turned out to be much better than I thought she would. I thought she was amazing. However, I wonder, since she's down by six points in the polls, I'm wondering if it just solidified Marco Rubio's base, who has a, pro- a problem with black women. I don't think that many people, you know, no one's going to, she can't hide that she's a black woman, but no one, uh, I don't think it's a thing like that's going to change many minds one way or the other. She had a good night. I don't think it's going to get her more votes. And he had not a good night. I don't think it's going to lose him many votes, you know, on the margins, but not, not when you get down six points, it, you know, it, it does not sway an election by six points. It doesn't even sway an election by three points. So, uh, of all but the she re- did good. Of- it, it's good that she did good. Am I wrong to say this? Of all the Republicans, Rubio gets on my nerves the least. I think he's his policy is shambolic and a disgrace. You know, he reversed himself on immigration. He is, I think, the smartest Republican in the Senate. Or can or canniest, maybe. Canny, articulate. Uh, sly, sly, but I think he held his own against Trump uh, in the debates. Uh, well, you may, but Republicans uh, voters didn't. Right. I mean, Trump Trump beat him in Florida. Right. <laughs> yeah. For that, yeah. That. 
there is word that Trump is zeroing in on the Dr. Oz campaign, that he is using this the way uh, Hitler used the Spanish Civil War, that this is going to be a dress. Pennsylvania is going to be a dress rehearsal for stealing elections, that they're going to try to steal this election for Dr. Oz. After Basically, what Trump wants to do is to challenge uh, the entire voting process in the city of Philadelphia uh, on a racist basis. You know, like, you know, why are blacks voting? <laughs> Jesus. Is this a dream? Are we going to wake up from the midterms and say uh, we were overreacting, that, that this country cannot be this broken? Is this just a bad dream? Well, no, it's not a bad dream. And we don't know what's going to happen on the midterms. I, I mean, I, every day I check the, uh, the early voting in Georgia. I just fixated on that. And it's shocking. I mean, it is absolutely shocking. The number of basically African-Americans who are voting is gargantuan. I mean, just more than voted in the now 20 percent more than voted in the presidential election in the 2020 presidential election where they, they voted in very heavy numbers. I don't I, I mean, I don't just mean blacks, but Georgians voted in very heavy numbers in 2020. And it's now it's 20 percent more than it was then at this time in the early voting. So and, and from what I'm hearing that it's African-American precincts in Georgia and uh, I'm sorry, in Atlanta and around Atlanta, in Savannah, in Augusta uh, and people coming out to vote. And that's really good. I mean, if that is true and it holds true, uh, Michael Moore will be uh, considered the smartest prognosticator in the country. And he got Trump right. He said in 2016 that Trump was going to win. And everyone laughed at him. Right. Now he's saying, in fact, here, I just got a um, I just got a text a few minutes ago. I don't know if you heard it come in. I think you did uh, from um, one of the smartest and, uh, you know, best uh, connected operatives, Democratic operatives in the country. And he's, I'm going to read it. Is Michael Moore on drugs? Hello? Yeah. Oh, oh, that's, his, oh that's, that's what he said. That was the text. Is Michael Moore on drugs? This is a Democratic operative who's absolutely convinced that there's going to be a blue, a red wave. Yes, absolutely. And thinks Michael Moore is crazy. So that was exactly what was happening when Michael Moore predicted that Trump would win. People were saying that he's crazy, that he's on drugs. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is he was right and they were wrong. And now maybe the same thing is happening again. I don't know. He thinks there's going to be a blue wave. How could there, logically, how could people look at the... Re to me, the only thing that I, I, I think you talk to them, they're fucking I mean, they're they are morons. Talk to them. Listen to them when people interview them they're, It's amazing how stupid they are. But I think they're too. The I, I think they're too stupid to fill out a ballot and get it into a mail. I don't think they have the, the cognition. Well, they don't, they're told not to vote in advance anyway. They're supposed to vote on Election Day. But I don't even think they can do that. I don't think they can find their your precinct i don't think unfortunately they, they can <laughs> they can and they do 
these are the worst people. I mean, I hate to be cruel. Uh, well, they would say the same thing about you and I. Right. But they, they, these are, there was a, uh, okay. Uh, Go ahead. Be cruel. I'm, I'm, no, I'm waiting I, I was going to say something about how the Civil War should have ended. That it should have been. With hang hanging? I'm sorry? With hangings? Well, the reason Japan and Germany are way more civilized now was because we, it was total war. We just flattened Tokyo and Berlin and we raised it in our image and we didn't do that to the South. We ended right. reconstruction. Right. Well, we had two things. We had an idealistic Abraham Lincoln and he was assassinated. And then his, uh, his vice president, who he had picked specifically, I mean, remember, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, and he picked a Democrat. And the Democrat that he picked was uh, very, very sympathetic to the South. Yeah, but that second inauguration included the phrase, with malice towards none. And right. I said, well, he was very, mal he was very uh, idealistic. Yeah, malice towards none. Uh, slaveholders? Really? Nah. Hey, it's, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I, I would have been much more harsh if it was up to me. Uh, and uh, but, you know, do you admit that Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest presidents? I'm forced to. You, All right. You, you have no you have no choice. Now, tell me, Hochul, how do I pronounce my governor's name? I don't know, Hochul. Hochul? I, I woke Hocum. up yesterday and found that that's tightening up? According to the poll that you read, it's tightening up. I don't know if it's really tightening up. We don't know. Who knows? Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine Zeldin winning. Uh, on the other hand, Hochul is one of the, you know, she's a nightmare. She's just absolutely terrible. Right. right. You can't blame people for not wanting to vote someone for someone who's as bad as she is. Now, to vote for Zeldin is something else, and you can blame him for voting for wanting to vote for him. Right. He's terrible. She's terrible. You're making a uh, lesser of two evils choice there. Okay. And for some people, they don't want to do it. Before you go, what are you reading? What are you watching? Let's, let's change the subject. Oh, I'm watching something that I'm really, really enjoying. Mostly I write uh, rather than anything else. But I, but I am watching something now. Now, probably a, a lot of your audience read the original um, interview with a vampire by Anne Rice. I'm assuming you did as well, right? Mm, no, but go ahead. Really? You didn't? Well, there's an updated version that uh, I believe is on. Uh, let me see. Oh, I should upstairs or downstairs. I'm watching it. Upstairs. Oh, it's on Prime. Yeah, AMC. So um, anyway, so so yeah. Uh, since you haven't read it, I don't want to start going into the whole thing because it's just going to be boring for you because you're not going to you're not going to relate to it. So so I'll leave that aside. So I did I did although there's one thing that I did use in, in writing my memoir which is called um, the Odyssey of Remembrance and it's very interesting. Um, here's this the the guy who's interviewing the vampire gets angry 
because the vampire gave him an answer that was different from the answer that he gave him 20 years ago. So he's saying to the vampire, in, uh, you know, in this updated uh, version, you know, you're not a good, you're not a good source. Either, you know, basically he was saying either you're lying to me, or you did lie to me, or you're you don't remember the way things happened. And, and it was a it was a very interesting moment because the vampire claimed that his partner, vampire Lestat, had in, uh, was the actual writer of a song that became a really really famous song by Jelly Roll Morton. You know who that is? Yes, of course. Of course. So, uh, so the, the interviewer got angry, and then the vampire grabbed the interviewer's own memoir and started reading from it, and in, in a place that he knew where, that he knew where he would find it. And he said, "Here, you wrote this." And it was basically he's writing this thing about how he was driving in his Buick and his daughter was in the car seat, and then his boss reminded him that that year there were no car seats yet. And then his wife said, and you never owned a Buick. Now he wasn't trying to deceive anybody. It's just part of the odyssey of remembrance. And I'm finding that as I'm writing my own memoir, I'm finding that constantly. Uh, you know, I, I sent it. So my old girlfriend who I lived with, I, um, and my dog autumn didn't get along. They hated each other. My girlfriend hated the dog and the dog hated autumn. <laughs> and I found an old picture of the two of them together. And it was the only moment where the two of them were looking like they were friendly. They, you know, I hadn't seen this picture in, in decades and decades and decades. And, uh, so I sent it to, to, to Martha and I said, what do you remember about this picture? And she said, well, I remember the blouse I was wearing, but I don't remember that you had a dog. <laughs> she didn't even remember there was a dog. Wow! So you know, mem memory is a very, very funny thing, right. and I'm 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 coming up against that in a big way now. Interesting, interesting. Well, and you're putting snippets of it on Down with Tyranny, which is yes, and on my Facebook page, uh, and 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 by doing that, uh, in many cases, I'm getting more complete pictures from people. You know, like uh, I had written that I brought the band Devo to a club called Mr. B's Ballroom and that they then wrote a song called Mr. B's Ballroom. And then I had, after I published that, I had a long talk with Mark Mothersbaugh, the guy who did write the song. And he said, no, you never brought me there. You just uh, told me about it. And I wrote the song after you told me the story. Interesting. Yeah. Before you, and I remember distinctly, I remember being with the band in Mr. B's Ballroom, but that's, that's a, I, uh, that's, a false memory. Or he has a false memory. No, he's right. <laughs> he's right. I'm wrong. There was someone else uh, with, with us, another journalist who I think you know, uh, Michael Snyder. Michael you know Snyder, right? yes. He was there uh, as well. And he said, no, it was just you and me. Uh, Devo wasn't with us. Wow. Wow. Howie, Cl I love you, Howie. It's great to hear your voice. Thank you. I I love you, David. Thank you. I, I'm going to come out. We go. to, we're going to come out to California. You keep saying that. You keep saying that. Uh, I hear it's horrible out there. I hear it's it's fabulous. Huh? What's to be horrible? It's fabulous. With the 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 people living on the street. Oh, that that is horrible. There's a lot yeah. of that. Yeah. You must have that in New York too. No. Not the way. Not. Not really. Not really. I mean, we do, but it's really? not, not, well, 
I should keep my mouth shut. I remember when I was a kid, there were people like sleeping on steam grates in Manhattan. Billy Boggs. Remember Billy Boggs? No. Was he a bank robber? Billy Boggs was uh, a woman who was living on, uh, you know, subway grates. And the police wanted to to move her. And she fought for her right to sleep on the streets. And she named herself after Bill Boggs, the, the host of the Midday Afternoon talk show on dub. Goodbye. Thank you, Howie Klein. Thank you. I'm, See you next week, I'm going down a, a rabbit hole. Thank you, Howie Klein. Uh, if you want to thank Howie Klein before we bring in David Cobb, please go to Derek Marshall's uh, website and donate to Derek Marshall. There, we don't ask you to donate to candidates. Uh, unless we think they're special, and Derek Marshall is uh, worth donating to. If you, uh, if you have five dollars, please give it to him. You will feel better, right, David Cobb? That's the only way to fight the sense of apathy and cynicism is to get involved. So, however you choose to get involved, you got to get involved. Now, I understand that it might be. I suspect it's John Hayes, the great John Hayes who is uh, down at Derek Marshall's headquarters, phone banking and knocking on doors. I, I suspect it's John Hayes. Uh, he said that one of my listeners uh, donated something more important than money themselves, which is... Now, you ran for president on the Green Party ticket. You ran Ralph Nader's... Uh, campaign in Texas. All this money that's being spent on advertising, on television and radio and the internet, the ground game is not advertising. It's the retail politics of shaking hands and getting people out there to sell the candidate. How true is that? How, how important... Oh. So, Feldo, I, I got to say, like, uh, the, 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 the hard science is absolutely crystal clear in terms of uh, what is going to have the most impact to be able to sway a voter, right? Uh, now, that is voters who are swayable, uh, because there are many people who are not swayable, like, I, and I dare say you, I, and, you know, 99% of your listeners, because of who we are, we don't have just casual opinions, we have deep convictions, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not really swayable voters. Uh, so I just want to make it very clear that this, we're talking about swayable voters. What are the ways to influence a, sway a swayable voter? Number one, far and away, more than anything else, number one, the candidate herself or himself talks to the voter, asks for the vote. Like, that's that's number one, far and away. Number two is somebody that the voter knows and respects, uh, 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 sort of campaigns for or vouches for, or says, I'm voting for somebody and you should too, and here's why. Number three is a live conversation with a human being who has contacted them either from a phone bank or a door knock uh, to get it. Then there is a, like, so number one is way up there. Then there's a 
slight fall uh, uh, because the difference between the direct uh, conversation and the uh, the uh, the conversation with somebody that they know, and then there's a pretty good drop between a stranger has a direct conversation, but then there's a precipitous drop, uh, and uh, the rest of the things cluster, which are mailers and television, radio ads, but they're very, very ineffective. The reason that you do those things are for name recognition alone for viability stake, for getting somebody to vote for something. But you know what the data also shows, Feldo? That what what you can do successfully with radio and television and big media corporate big corporate media buys, you can downgrade your opponent's support. You can undermine. That's why the reality is negative, negative ads. campaigning and everybody complains about the sad reality is it works. It it, it has a tendency to decrease uh, participation, a decrease of uh, uh, voter turnout. Again, there's been a lot of studies on this. The data is clear and unequivocal. In races where there's not, quote, uh, negative campaigning, you have a tendency to have uh, higher vote totals. It's just that it's just that obvious. And does that so work? Would in, you ask me how important is it? There you go. Does that work in other facets of life? Do you get ahead by trashing other people? It, I, I have found in my exposure to corporate America that backstabbing doesn't work. People don't trust you if you backstab. I've been backstabbed and I've watched the people who've stabbed me in the back fail because the boss goes, well, if you're doing this to David, you're going to do this to me. Uh that's a that's an astute observation, Feldo. I've never actually thought about it, but as you lay it out, my quick reaction is, you know what? I think that's my experience too. I mean, I, I think that I think about the people that I know are two faced or or otherwise backstabbers in your vernacular, and no, they they, they tend to always get caught. But in electoral politics, no, it 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 actually works. Supposedly, our vice president. This is what I've read wanted to be vice president, met with Biden and stabbed everybody in the back to be vice president. That's what I've read. Now, maybe that's sexist. Maybe it's racist. Good. Po very possible. But I've read and I've heard that she went in there and said, you can't trust this person. You can't trust that person. And Biden took the bait. And as a result her vice presidency has been a complete and utter blowout. I mean, it's just she gets no support from anybody because of what she did to get to get there. It, it, it doesn't work. You 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 get something you don't have to be a relation. I'm sorry. Uh, look, uh, it's interesting, right? Because I know that uh, our, uh, what I've heard is that uh, 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 Biden and Harris are actually, quote, backstabbing each other, uh, that there is a uh, real challenge uh, within the that there are deep tensions between President Biden and Vice President Harris. Now, whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. But 
I do think it's interesting, right? That uh, look, there's a like again, there's a difference between backstreaming in in the real life and doing negative campaigning in public, and it's horrific that it works so effectively. The negative campaigning again, it's not. The, the negative campaigning doesn't have a tendency to to sway the swayable voters, right. but it does it to, to vote for you. It's fuck it. I'm just not going to vote at all. Right. right. Uh, and that's a that's an interesting phenomenon. Right. What did you want to talk about tonight? I'm in a I'm in a foul mood today. So well, <laughs> I really there's, am. there's plenty to be foul about. You know, the thing that I was thinking about uh, is uh, how the head. <laughs> Stay with me because I don't want you to start listening to me and get more foul. But I'm going to say it's like the the folks that I that I trust that, you know, Nate Silver, like the, the folks who are really tracking this. Uh, it looks like the in the midterms that things are skewing for towards the Republicans. Uh, and that is something to put any progressive uh, in a foul mood. And what really gets me is that what seems to be driving this so much is uh, pocket, so-called pocket issues, pocketbook issues and inflation. And Feldo, what gets me is that the Democrats have an absolute winning message uh, that also has the advantage of not only being a vote getter, but also the added advantage of advantage of actually being true. Right. Uh, And what is that? And that is to blame corporate profiteers for the inflation uh, that is spiking in the United States. It is not covid. It is not uh, Democrats. It's not Republicans. It's the corporations. Right. It is corporate America that is absolutely putting the screws to ordinary Americans And what galls me is the Democratic Party and their operatives and their leaders, the neoliberals who are actually running the show, are unwilling to bring that message hard. Biden did it a little. That populist message is a winner. Biden did a little with the oil companies. That much. That much. But let's be honest. It was it was it was a very, very weak sauce faint. And yes, he did. I'll, I'll grant you that. But what I'm saying, Feldo, is if you want to inspire a progressive populist base to to actually come out and vote and work towards it, but also win swayables over on issues, that, I believe, is the winning message. Uh, And if if in the last two weeks, uh, as the Republicans look like they're surging, uh, the, the Democratic Party should go on the offensive and talk about the real villains. Uh, behind the rising cost of living, corporate profiteers. Uh, I, I I don't have any hard data on this, but every fiber of my political being has said that's the obvious way for Democrats to not only defend themselves from the the Republicans, but also to go on the offensive and say, yes, food, rising food prices and energy costs have absolutely created the highest rate in 40 years. But you know what's at its highest rate in more than 70 years? Answer, corporate profits. Exactly. That's a winning strategy, Feldo. And that, that again, it's objectively true. Right. They keep warning of a recession. The the, the bankers, uh, uh, Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan says, there's going to be a recession. There's going to be a recession. And they report 
they're beating uh, estimates. I, I read Bloomberg. I, I specifically follow earnings season right now because if there's inflation, we can see how much they're jacking up prices and their earnings calls. They say it out loud. We're 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 jacking up prices. We can get away with it because everybody thinks there's inflation. But the three I'm a broken record on this and then we'll move on. The three causes of inflation are rent. One third of inflation is rent. That's how they measure inflation. What is how much is rent going up? The second biggest energy and food, rent, energy and food. Those are the big drivers. And what drives up what drives up the cost of energy and food, war and climate catastrophe? Listen, and and let's also because, you know, you know, I come on here and I just I dog the neoliberal uh, leadership of the Democratic Party. I want to lift up the Progressive Caucus and especially uh, Representative Pramela uh, Jayapal, who just came out and the entire Progressive Caucus is calling for an end to the war in Ukraine uh, and uh, uh, pointed out that the longer this goes on, uh, not only the more death and destruction will happen, uh, but the more the higher the risk and increase of this becoming a true global devastating uh, conflict. So once again, it's progressive Democrats fighting against their own uh, leadership of their own party, as well as the the Republicans uh, that are the only sane voices. So again, uh, like I think it's important that we really remember that when we say the Democratic Party or the Democrats, well, which Democrat are you talking about? Right? Are you talking about uh, Pramaya Jayapal? Uh, or are you talking about Mansion? Right? Like like in any other. In any country with proportional representation, those two people wouldn't even be in the same political party. Fellow. Right. Like, right. like, and they really shouldn't be because their ideology and their core principles and values are so different. Right. Right. Uh, how bad is November going to be? Uh, listen, and I how don't much have a and you, ball. you don't fetishize you don't fetishize politics. But how worried are you uh, about Kevin McCarthy? I'm very worried that McCarthy is going to be the Speaker of the House. I'm even more terrified that either Donald Trump or uh, DeSantis is going to be president in 2024. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely terrified of what I see coming down the pike, and I'm disgusted by the Democratic Party's leadership continually either completely misreading the situation or not taking it seriously, right? They use, they'll, 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 they'll do a little like fetishizing or uh, that's the wrong word. They'll do a little saber rattling, right? Occasionally to try to like uh, get the base stirred up, but they will not do what's actually necessary to prevent fascism because to prevent fascism, yeah, I think it, it, it's it's actually going to take a couple of things. Number one, a clear, unapologetic description that this is what's coming, not the kind of backing into it. Well, maybe sort of like you've got to actually name what is happening and why. And then number two, you've got to create the conditions for which the hateful seeds of fascism cannot take root and cannot bear the bitter, bitter fruit 
uh, uh, the level of resentment. And you know what that means? That would mean healthcare is a human right. It would mean raising the the the, the minimum wage to a, a true living wage. It would mean a, a a kind of rearrangement of the political economy that would look like the world that Bernie Sanders is calling for. And honestly, the neoliberal Democrats would rather deal with Republicans, even McCarthy, than they would uh, embrace the kind of Sanders progressivism that's a winning strategy. And that, I can't even tell you how much that galls me, it infuriates me, and it frightens me. They would, Even though it would benefit the neoliberal order. Listen, I think that, uh, yes, it would. And what really gets me is, like, let's remember Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right, who now is considered a pariah by uh, capitalists and corporatists. At, even at the time, here's a quote. Uh, FDR said, I don't know why they hate me so much. I saved capitalism. Right. That's it, like literally. And you know what? It's true. He did. Uh, why? Because he was able to uh, to prevent the actual collapse uh, of the economic order. And what frightens me is these neoliberals actually don't understand that the whole thing is teetering. Right. It's greed. They're it's greed. It's, Absolutely. it's not capital. I mean, people will say, well, capitalism is greed. OK, that's for a different conversation. But what we're seeing now is just pure, short sighted greed Keep taking as much as you can right now, because eventually they're going to catch on. So take no, it. Listen, uh, like, uh, like here's the frightening, frightening thing. We know that fascism arose in the 1930s because of a, a, a collapsing world order political economy and a shift from uh, an agrarian society to an industrial society, right? right? We've had recessions, we've had depressions, but when you have a recession slash deep recession or depression and this bigger like shift of the entire political economic structure in that conjuncture, uh, that's when there is a real uh, possibility for both, uh, 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 you know, opportunity, but also for, for like, well, uh, for opportunity, but also, uh, Faldo, for uh, or, or something really frightening. Right. Are you on the chat in the chat? I'm not. I'm getting a quote for you because I okay. want to get it right. Oh, so while you're uh, looking up the quote. Yeah. Black people, Asians, women, the LGBTQ, since the time this country was founded, this was a fascist state. This was a police state. And you could be locked up arbitrarily. The definition of a of fascism coming to America is white people no longer asking to see the manager. When white people stop asking to see the manager, then people are going to say, oh, my God, we were living in an authoritarian regime. This has been going on since our nation's founding the police. Listen, that's absolutely true. Like I, I uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the difference is right. Like, so, so for black and brown people, uh, the, the kind of hyper militarized violence under Jim Crow was, was clearly by any, uh, definition of the word fascist. 
and the operation of bourgeois electoral democracy uh, allowed for uh, uh, changes, right? So what I'm saying is something different. I'm saying an explicit fascism a la the Nazis or Benito Mussolini would not allow for uh, those kind of changes that happened under the bourgeois democracy of the U.S. So was the U.S. uh, under Jim Crow absolutely uh, tyrannical and genuinely uh, you know, it, it was it was a level of violence. It was it was horrific. Legally, no sa- legally so, sanctioned like Hitler, legally sanctioned violence. Absolutely. Legally sanctioned violence. And what I'm saying is the qualitative difference, though, that the new era of fascism represents uh, is that they're not going to allow if they get control of the actual government, they will not allow electoral democracy and what I would call bourgeois democracy to ever undermine it. That's why there is a difference between even the horrors of Jim Crow segregation of the U.S. and what the Nazis uh, and the fascists did uh, in Italy, or frankly, you know, what we're seeing happening. And the quote that uh, you caught me looking up, uh, Faldo, when you thought I was in the chat, I did just drop it in because I wanted to get it exactly right. Antonio Gramsci said it brilliantly. Antonio Gramsci was a uh, philosopher, uh, a a communist organizer who predicted, along with everybody else in the 1920s and 1930s, we're about to win a completely new world. The 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 people are rising. The 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 proletariat uh, are coming together. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. And then, of course, fascism emerged. Gramsci, by the way, gets thrown in jail, uh, in prison uh, for basically his entire, the rest of his life he, uh, uh, by Benito Mussolini. And he writes essays literally Feldo on toilet paper, right? Like uh, Gramsci needs to be lifted up more and more. Uh, he writes, they're called the prison notebooks, right? Uh, and in it, the, the I, I'm getting goosebumps. The quote goes like this. The old world is dying. And the new world is still struggling to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And that by that, he meant Mussolini and, and Hitler. And I would say DeSantos uh, and Trump are the functional equivalent. They are monsters. And the problem is that the new world that is right within our fingertips is still struggling to be born. And one or the other is going to win. And these neoliberals who think that they can hold on uh, to, you know, the the regulated capitalism, they're just wrong. They're just flat wrong. And this is what fills me with anxiety. Hello, Dr. Frauds. Hi. We conjured you at just the right moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Also, it's a little bit like the American South is a little bit like being a Palestinian in Israel. Israel's still a democracy. However, there's a caste system. And if you're a Palestinian, you will be systematically discriminated against and you could be killed. You know, because there's systematic exclusion and discrimination. But Israel is actually a democracy plus apartheid. Right, right. Uh, So this is why, and by the way, ask any Palestinian, it's absolutely true, there are elections in Israel, and ask them if they fetishize elections. Right, right. Let me bring in Dr. Harriet Fraud. She is the host 
of It's Not Just in Your Head and Capitalism Hits Home. She also has a radio show on Pacifica. We'll plug all those. We'll find out who she does that with later. We're talking about uh, the midterms. I'm furious at the Democrats. I bit my tongue. I, I said to my listeners, I'm going to support Biden, Pelosi and Schumer and sell sell them to voters. And I couldn't do it today. I, I spent the weekend reading and I just went these MFers, these 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 lying yeah. grifters. Uh, I still want the Democrats to win, but although you want the Republicans to lose, I want the Republicans to lose. Exactly. You know, and I get that. Right. And this is why I like, look, when I take I, I take since you've had me on this show, I've been very consistent, right? I, I, I am no cheerleader for the Democrats, in fact. Uh, but but I, off, I will always say, when any elected official does something good, I will cheer. Right. And when they do something bad, I will jeer with a J, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the great uh, labor organizer Samuel Gomper said it best. Organized labor, uh, we will punish, we will punish our enemies and we will reward our friends. And in electoral politics, we will never have permanent friends or permanent enemies. Right. This is how we should be thinking. We make demands from the bottom up. This is what happens in the global south. You know, the MST, the Movimiento Sin uh, Tierra, the, the landless peasants movement, they absolutely engage in elections. But that's not all they do. And when they engage in elections, they build a force powerful enough that the elected officials are genuinely scared of them and they have to react to them one way or the other. That's not happening in this country. In this country, all the conversation around elections is just between the D's and the R's, and it's almost never uh, driven from the bottom up by movements that are actually making demands. It's instead that the Democrats uh, on the on the so-called left setting the term of the debate and the Republicans, I don't even know if on the so-called right. I mean, they're they're galloping to the right and the Democrats are hurriedly following them. My point is, if we like, yes, yeah, so vote. Absolutely. Um, but if it, like, I'll say it this way, Feldo, if you want to see systemic transformational change and all you ever do is go pull a lever or vote every two to four years, you're wasting your time. Yeah. But there's a corollary. If you've got the opportunity to vote for a genuine transformational person uh, and you don't take advantage of it, you're wasting an opportunity. Right. So, like, I'm a green. I'm not going to join the Democratic Party. Uh, I'm going to advocate for transformational change and for genuine progressive Democrats like Pramila Jayapal, like Jabari Brisport. I can go down the list. There are some that are absolutely deserving of uh, Angelica Duenas. She's a she's a Democrat. I, uh, you know, Kenneth Mejia. There's there's a list of them that I will absolutely lift up. Right. But it's not because they're Democrats. It's because they're progressives. Yeah. But if look, I the way I see it is. If there's the two choices between Biden and Trump, you vote for the one who's less likely to shoot you all on a demonstration. And I think the Democrats are less likely to shoot us. Does that say that they are worth supporting? And, well, and in the back. In? No. They'll shoot us in the right. back. Right. 
But again, so so and, and look, I, I, I've got to go. It's it's uh, Dr. Fraud's time. But I'll conclude with this. I, I want to remind you and you do lift up that I worked on Ralph Nader's campaign. But you know what? I got my start in politics uh, in the 1980s, where I was a student activist in the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, and from that, it was just natural that I got involved in the Jesse Jackson for president campaign in both 84 and 88. Uh, and then I worked on Jerry Brown's campaign in 92. Uh, Bill Clinton turned me into a green, by the way, in 96. Uh, and in 84 and 88, especially with Jesse Jackson, but also with Jerry Brown, I learned a lot in those campaigns. Uh, I learned uh, as a white person how to put myself under the leadership of a person of color for real first time in my life uh, under the Jackson for President campaign. Uh, in addition to that, I learned about the intersection between organized labor, environmental movement, and women's issues. I learned about Palestine for the first time in my life and how foreign policy uh, actually operated. I learned a lot. But you know what else I learned? I learned that the Democratic Party primary is where progressive politics goes to die because all the enthusiasm, all the excitement, all the energy ends up being subsumed and corrupted by that corporatist, imperialist, capitalist party, right? And then we're told, okay, you had your fun in the primaries. Now sit down and shut up. Right. If instead of, of building alternative institutions to try to sway the Democratic Party, if all the money and effort that had gone into the Rainbow Coalition or Progressive Democrats of America or Democracy for America, or like I could go down the list of all these efforts, if instead we built a people's party mm -hmm. and, and actually did a dues-paying people's party with labor and environmentalists and women at the very core of what we're doing, we would win. Absolutely, well we would. Amen. Because we are the majority, the climate people, the progressive labor people who are making new unions like the new UAW union, or the Black Lives Matter people, the Puerto Rican independence people, the feminists, the LGBTQIA plus movements. We are the masses. And we have, you know, and the, this is the point. Right. And not if we don't. Neoliberal democratic talking points and policies will never build a broad based progressive populist majority. They will never be able to unite the, the supermajority that Dr. Fraud just described. They won't because they owe their soul to the company store. You know, they are corporate, they are dependent on corporate donations. And that that's who they owe their allegiance to. Pelosi said there is no alternative. Of course, I'm a capitalist. I mean, re and remember that, and that was a that was a young activist that she had the audacity to tell there is no alternative. It's like Margaret Thatcher, and you know there is no alternative. Tina, to which I say to her, my retort: Ta ta. There are <laughs> thousands of alternatives. There are so many different ways to do a political economy other than neoliberal capitalism, but the neoliberals and the fascists both agree capitalism and, and imperialism. Like, 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 make no mistake about it. There's going to be debate amongst the Democrats and the Republicans on a right, a woman's right to choose. That's an important distinction. There are, there are other differences at the margin, but at the core, U.S. empire, Uber Alice, and capitalism forever, Democrats and Republicans agree. It's a class agenda that they share. And what we share 
is a different class agenda. It's a socialist agenda in which every group is recognized. That's the difference. The difference is basically class. And everything that divides people arbitrarily from one another, whether it's sexual choice or color or whatever it is, is an enemy of ours. Right, right. Because we won't win without a unity. David Cobb, how do people follow you? How do people contact you? Well, check me out at David Keith Cobb on Facebook. Uh, Hit me up with a friend request. I'd love to do that. I'll tell you, Feldo, I'm also going to make sure that you and your support staff have the website for the Dishgama uh, Community Land Trust, which is the Weot Tribe's cutting-edge new effort uh, to do uh, heal generational trauma of both the land and of people by engaging in regenerative economic development and affordable housing constructive and restoration ecology to prove that socialism actually works. Okay. Thank you, Dave. I'll see you next week. Thank you. You and hear you. Yeah, great job. Thank you so much, David Cobb. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Coming up, Dr. Harriet Fraud will be with us. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. However, you get your podcasts, please subscribe and hit the like button. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, please subscribe to this channel and please hit the like button. Dr. Harriet Fraud, uh, I want to talk about what you want to talk about. But David Cobb brought up the uh, Progressive Caucus writing a letter to President Biden today asking him to stop giving Ukraine so many weapons and start demanding peace negotiations. Let me read you the letter that Pramila Jayapal wrote to President Biden. I'll just read you a paragraph. Given the destruction created by this war for Ukraine and the world, as well as the risk of catastrophic escalation, we also believe it is in the interests of Ukraine, the United States, and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. For this reason, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. This is consistent with your recognition that, quote, there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement here, and you're concerned that Vladimir Putin doesn't have a way out right now, and I'm trying to figure out what we do about that. That's what President Biden said. Your thoughts about the Progressive Caucus, the Progressive Congressional Caucus stepping up? I think that's great, but I also think that the United States got in there and fomented this war. You know, I remember what JFK, how he endangered the whole world with the Third World War possibility when Cuba had began to have a Russian base 90 miles from home. Well, there's 1,200, at least between 12 and 1,500 miles of shared border between Ukraine and Russia, and Ukraine had pledged neutrality. The CIA had cooperated with the Azov fascism in Ukraine to depose the Russian, pro-Russian candidate and replace him with Zelensky. And then inviting him to join NATO is 
I mean, what are you doing? Is provoking him to do something. So I think we provoke that in order to weaken Russia and exhaust them because we fear the Russia-China connection, which is the new power block of the world, the BRICS people. In fact, it's interesting that in Haiti now, as it falls apart, people are marching and saying, we don't want the United States here. We want Russia and China, just wild. Right. And, you know, that there is, as the U.S. empire fails, having lost four wars, uh, we no longer are what we were and are trying to weaken the Russia-China alliance and the whole BRICS alliance, which has a big waiting list of people to join, including Saudi Arabia. Wow, that's uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and Argentina is applying as well as many others. So the balance of power is shifting and the United States is trying to hold on the way you said before, hold on while it's no longer tenable. And therefore, there is this war that Zelensky has, he has closed the whole opposition press. Any male of fighting age is arrested if he isn't fighting or if he tries to leave the country. There is, he is a dictator and he depends on foreign armaments to fight. And they, Russia is a powerful country. It doesn't have a big, gross domestic project product, but it's a powerful country. And it doesn't look so good. In any case, this has thrown everything out of whack because our, rely, our deal with the NATO countries that we dominate is that they buy their armaments from the United States and that they reinforce American power. And so that they're all supposed to have a sanction against Russian oil, which is good, cheap oil that kept one of the reasons for the German dominance in their economy. And all over Europe, people are suffering because they don't have enough oil and gas for heat and electricity. Now, I want to, that segues nicely into what I wanted to talk about. Because Russian oil isn't abundant and cheap, and because the Saudis and the whole OPEC uh, nations told U.S., hey, go pound sand, we're going to cut our oil production, mm-hmm. not increase it the way you want, because you're no longer the king of the world. And so what you have is energy prices are going crazy. Everything runs on energy. And America is the biggest oil producer in the world. And the American oil companies are not going to sit back and sell to the United States cheap when they can sell abroad more expensively. So they've wildly raised their prices. And gas and oil run everything. It runs the trucks that deliver our food. It runs the tractors that help produce the food. It it runs our homes. It runs everything. And so there's an outrageous inflation. And Biden isn't the type to put a price freeze on them. Wow, never. Exxon made $17 billion since this happened. They have the figures for all of them. All I remember, you know, they're all over $10 that they made. 
And so we're getting socked and we have an inflation because our oil and gas companies are selling it to us more expensively because they can get more money. That's why we're suffering. It's not some supply chain, blah, 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 blah. No, that's why Americans are desperate because the most you can fight for in an in a strike, you might get a 5% raise, but with an 8.6% inflation rate, that doesn't do very well for you. And so that the oil companies are in charge. And Biden doesn't put price freezes on them. And so instead they explain it with this, that, and Russia, and so on. No, Russia wanted to sell its oil. Germany built up its its dominance in Western Europe because on the basis of getting that cheap oil. The oil pipelines that Germany could have used to get it were bombed by a highly technologically sophisticated nation. And of course, the United States is the only one who would benefit from it. So it looks pretty suspicious. But that's the problem. And I think everyone has to understand that. Because otherwise, it's sort of the inflation is... is Ascribed to all different things. You know, it's interesting. Wages. When, when you say that, you know, I refuse to accept that the CIA was behind the Nord Stream blowouts uh, in the Baltic Sea, because uh, that's what Tucker Carlson is saying. So if Tucker Carlson is saying it, I'm but but as a thought exercise, it's beyond my imagination that the oil companies working with whatever agency here in the United States would would allow all this natural gas to flow into the Baltic Sea. That's that's unimaginable. And then I look out my window and I see the greenhouse gases spewing right. into the air and they're I'm making thinking, money. That's what they're interested why, in. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they poison I- the Baltic? Of course not. I mean, that is what they want to do, get more. And they're getting more money. And everyone else in this country is suffering. And it's everything but what it is, greed. That's right. It's everything other than what the thing is, pure, unadulterated greed. That's right. And with someone like Tucker Carlson, I feel like, hey, the broken clock is right twice a day. Okay. Whatever. They all want to apologize for Russia because they don't want to look too closely to Russiagate and Trump's cooperation with Russia to win the election with all those Russian spy bots and other, you know, and distortions of the Internet. I'm not saying this because I believe in God and the devil. I don't think Putin is a sweetheart and, you know, nothing. But it's a geopolitical struggle. And... I think it's amazing that Americans don't know that we're all suffering to save an international position that is not salvageable. The old world is crumbling and also to keep the oil companies rich. Now you say the old world is crumbling, but yeah. they have, the old world is pretty resilient. They have a way of breaking our spirit. And we were talking earlier, if you look at 
the American people, uh, we're not taken to the streets. We're not, we're pretty. We're depoliticized. We're not taking to the streets. So the, the old world order, at least here in the United States, nobody's throwing cans of tomato soup at a Rembrandt at the Metropolitan mm. Museum of Art. No. Maybe in England, but here in the United yeah, States. Yeah. Germany, too, and there's huge demonstrations yeah. in France and Germany, Italy, and so on. They have big socialist parties, anarchist parties, communist parties. They have all sorts of parties. They have a much more active political participation. They have large percentage of the electorate voting. So they're different. They have lots of choices to vote for. And they don't allow private money in elections. That, of course, helps a lot. But no, the, the old world isn't crumbling because people are in the streets. It's crumbling because the dream that sustained America, that if you're white and male and work hard, you can have a decent life. And right, but that doesn't mean that. It's gone. But, but that doesn't, that's not the end of the dream or the, the dream never really existed isn't a threat to Davos. They, they couldn't care less about how poor they us do. Are. I mean, it's a threat to Davos because in England, which is in terrible shape, and in the United States, which is in good shape, people are not working. You know, there's that quiet quitting where people are not doing anything that isn't on their job description, which means nothing works very well. People are on strike they, in a way they haven't since, been since the 30s. England is full of strikes because those are an inherent recognition that there's two classes in this society, the employers and the employed. And the employed are getting shafted and they have to stand up. Even this whole thing with the UAW, that they've been, the old leadership is sold out, so they are starting, they have another union that's contesting it that the AFL model of colluding with the State Department and so on and having horrible hierarchies of highly paid officials and letting new workers get less than the old to bust up the union solidarity, that's being fought. And that's what I mean, crumbling. The old idea is crumbling. People don't have an alternative idea. They don't have a socialist dream the way they did. So, and that and that suits the just one percent. That that's perfect for the ruling class. Yes, but what isn't perfect is the workers aren't going along with it. They're either not going back to work or quiet quitting, and they don't believe in it anymore. You know, in Emily Gindelberger's book, which I refer to a lot, um, on the clock. She describes some guy during the rush hour, the, not the rush hour, the Christmas rush, telling her he just sat on his haunches and laughed for 48 minutes because he knew they couldn't fire him. You're not allowed to ever stop. But the level of animosity, and they, they have a 100% turnover. People don't want to be treated that way. Right. It was $8 billion a year. Because of turnover, because they mistreat people so much. That's the system is breaking down. It's they're, not so eager. They're definitely the workers are definitely on to 
what you've been telling me since your first appearance on the show is your boss will say anything not to pay you more money. Exactly. Exactly. Here in, in um, right in my neighborhood on 14th Street, Trader Joe closed their liquor store because they were unionizing. You know, they will do anything. But people, working people don't have the same consciousness that this is basically a fair system. I don't think anybody thinks so anymore. And you don't want to fight for it. Now, they did learn after Vietnam, don't have American soldiers go. You can have an economic draft where people have no choice, but don't have a draft because people mobilize because they don't believe in these wars. But we still tolerate almost a trillion dollars to go to them while one in four kids doesn't have enough to eat. I mean, Americans are very passive. I don't know when it will happen. I know the union thing is happening, that a groundswell happens, but it can happen very fast. I don't know. But this inflation bit, I just wanted to talk about because it's outrageous that people don't see that. Yep. It made a big difference when I saw it. They lie. Like Pelosi and Biden pretend they don't know what what is causing inflation. And yeah. it's... Well, maybe they don't want to know. Maybe that's how... Well, they're not, they yeah, they're not allowed to know. Right. Their minds don't allow that in. But for anyone who puts two and two together, four is right there. You could institute a rent freeze in America right now. I know the eviction, I know the, the Supreme Court ruled that you can't have a moratorium on evictions, but I'm pretty certain unless the Supreme Court is, well, who knows, rent freezes. Right. You could have a rent freeze. A national rent freeze. And, and look, just in New York, I live in New York, so I'm confronted with it. They have come out with the figures that there's 41,000 units of affordable housing that they just leave empty because the landlords are waiting for higher rents to come for them. And they there's also... And excuse me for one second. Thousand units that have of landlords that have let their places go, haven't fixed them for five years. Those should be taken over by the city. And, you know, all of this is possible and right there. But it would interfere with the private ownership of the um, rent of the landlords. They just came out with that news about how they uh, this realty company, well, really development company, got a three and a half million dollar benefit because of all their affordable housing. Well, they didn't have any affordable housing. They just rented at top rents and they're not going to pay a fine. Because we rather spend money on cops to beat up people of color than arrest these landlords and real estate agents and real estate investors and bankers politicians and the politicians it you know let's fight crime as long as that crime is people of color people poor people that's right poor people without expensive lawyers so you have somebody like trump with 25 sexual assault 
allegations, fraud in terms of his banking, and treason. Wow, they deported people and jailed them for up to 40 years just for saying that, just for believing in, in communism and say, in being in the Communist Party without saying they wanted to overthrow anybody. It's amazing that there is a whole group of these people that are getting away with it. Bannon Speaking of it, and when you put Trump on trial, his minions complain of a two-tier justice system. They have the mm-hmm. audacity to throw back in our face. There's a two-tier justice system. A Republican can't get a fair trial in America. It's so <laughs> brazen. They, they appropriate a real problem in this country and, right. and claim that they're the victims of it. That's right. Because, look, there are real problems. And so that Trump can speak to those real problems. Trump can speak to that there isn't a democracy anymore. And then he can appropriate that for his fascistic agenda. Right. But the problems are real and people are right to be upset. I mean, they they really it's it's a very evil manipulation of language. Goebbels-esque. It's like right out of the Joseph Goebbels, Frank Luntz playbook. No difference between Frank Luntz and Joseph Goebbels. Whatever the whatever they're saying on the other side, take it, appropriate it. Right. Not genius. Evil. Yes, that's right. You know, accuse them of projection, accuse them of being paranoid, of being deranged. Of being pedophile. Yeah, being pedophiles, right. Republicans that are found being pedophiles. Right. You know, but they're speaking with passion about real problems, unlike the Democrats, except for people like Camilla J. Apal and AOC, and there's a lot of them. But, you know, with the exception of those people who are outliers in the Democratic Party, there is no passion there. The Dem- Biden doesn't really capture anybody's outrage. And he's not outraged by the outrages against people. He acts like he is. He thinks he's outraged. Yeah, he says sometimes, but the passion isn't there. Trump is crazy, but he does come across as very passionate. And as I watched his rally in Texas, still sharp. Yep. He's shrewd. Yeah. And his followers want to believe in something because everything else has turned to crap. And so they believe in him, even though he's outrageous. So what earlier I was saying fascism in America is when white people no longer call the manager at the supermarket. They're too afraid to to ask for the manager. But we've we've been fascist since the beginning. What what those tendencies we certainly did. Well, if you were black, a woman, member of the LGBTQ, if you were a slave, if you were an indigenous American. That's right. right. This was uh, as fascistic as you can imagine. I mean, Mm -hmm. on the level of 
Mussolini and Hitler, what we did to the first peoples here, the black people, right. no, no question. So right. this threat of fascism happening here, it happened, it's still happening, but what does it look like uh, when white people start feeling it? What's well, the difference? White people are feeling it, but they're not politically organized. White people are feeling it because they have lousy jobs, too. Most of the people who work at Amazon and Walmart and a lot of fast food and call centers are white people. And they can't get by working very hard. And they can't rent an apartment that's got you know any kind of decent space in a nice neighborhood anymore even though they work full-time and often two jobs. It's over. That's what I mean. The American dream is over. Right. And people are shafted. And so what they're doing in sections of the Midwest and the South, they're dying. Deaths of despair. They die much younger. Our um, mortality rates <coughs> are, are now higher rather than lower than most countries. Do you know that? We're even getting shorter. It's interesting. Right. We're getting shorter. It's interesting. I, you know, I'm a broken record on this. There's a, a senior, an older man who lives on my floor and I help him. You know, I advocate for him and he needed some medication filled at Walgreens or CVS. They're all owned by the same. And it was four hours of him on the phone, then me on the phone, waiting on hold. And then I walk up. They said they're going to deliver his medication on Friday and it doesn't get delivered. So I walk up on Sunday. This is like three to four hours out of my Sunday dealing with the pharmacist at Walgreens. Uh, and this guy's going to die if he doesn't get this medication and they won't fill it. And I had to go out of pocket on my credit card, $400 to, to I put it. And then they charged me $400 and they charged him $400. And I went outside to look for the police. Good. And I thought, I'm going to I'm going to file a criminal. I'm going to get this pharmacist arrested right. or, or get a criminal and and. And I said to the pharmacist, you're protecting a company that nobody benefits from this. Nobody. No. You don't benefit from it. The CEO makes 5,000 times what you're earning. You're not benefiting from this. The stockholders aren't benefiting from it. Nobody benefits from this except your, 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 board, of directors. your, your board of directors. And you're going to end up killing this man. By they wanted me to wait till Tuesday for his medication, and uh, no, I, I wouldn't go to those. I had go to my little pharmacy in my neighborhood, which isn't always open. But when, but they always do what they're supposed to. But that's the breakdown. If everybody's just looking after their own dollar, it breaks down. And, and I'm still on the job too. And I I watch myself, and I'm pretty good at doing like that's this kind of street theater. So it's just on the margins of insanity. I know how to rein it. I 
I'm a performer, so I know how to just bring it right to the edge where they're going to where they're going to call the yeah. police on me. So I call the police on them. You know, I know how to. But everyone heard me. Nobody, nobody says a thing. Nobody. And, and I'm the crazy loudmouth. I'm the crazy one. They're looking at me. I'm the crazy one. And I kept saying to them, I'm not crazy. I am not sick. You're sick. That you're sick. You're, this entire pharmacy is deranged. You're sick. And they might have look. They might have agreed with you, but they didn't feel that they were powerful enough to do anything about it. You know what? It, what we we have to wrap it up. And I, I apologize. I'm just so fed up with. The, the, the system, you know, Mario Savio, free speech movement said you need to throw yourself on the gears of the machine and mm -hmm. grind it to a halt. They, yeah. they, that's what the machine does now. They've thrown themselves on the gears of the machine. There's more money if they if Walgreens or if Exxon, as you pointed out, can throw themselves on the gears of the machine and slow it down because... They can raise prices, supply chain issues. And who cares if the whole country suffers? They don't. They have thrown themselves on the gears of the machine to break us, break our mm -hmm. spirit. And I'm telling you what I'm going to do tomorrow, Dr. Fraud. I have tomorrow off and I'm going to spend eight hours on the phone mm -hmm. with Walgreens and this guy's insurance company and I'm going to sit outside in a park and go, hello, I am calling. I just slow talk these MFers. That's what I'm going to do to these bastards. I'm going to get them on the phone and I'm going to rob them of eight hours. And that's well, my advice. Well, I think you should report this or have the guy report it to the radio station, or, you know, your pet peeve and all that stuff, because they do respond to bad publicity. Yeah, but, but they, they're advertisers. Down. They advertise. They're not going to do anything. Yeah, look, this is the breakdown. And the workers at Walgreens, they don't give a shit. They're just putting in their time. Nobody cares. And, and I'm told... The system breaks down. I'm told the same thing to do, Dr. Fraud, is let it go. Why are you letting this upset you? Just you let it go. You don't to die. That huh? makes sense. You're fighting for his life. Right. No, it, it makes sense. But this is the breakdown I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a breakdown because, like the Europeans, there are tens of thousands of us in the street. Just everybody in their own personal life is backing down. Right. Doing the minimum. And so nothing works. We, we have to wrap it up. Okay. Dr. Harriet Fraud, we love you. How do uh, people contact you and who do you do your radio and podcasts with? I do my radio station either by myself or with my daughter, Tess Fraud Wolf, and that's Interpersonal Update on WBAI at 2.30 on Wednesday. They have fixed the tower, so now they're back in business. And I also do It's Not Just In Your Head, a podcast with mental health awareness to say to people, you know, all this 
it's not just in your head. If you're being addicted, uh, evicted, then okay, you know, that's a social problem, honey. It's not that you had a bad attitude. I do that with Liam Tate from London and Ikoi Hiro from California. Great. People can reach me, H-F-R-A-A-D at gmail.com or harrietfraud.com, my website. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. Thank you so much. I love your show. We love you. Thank you so much. Mutual. <laughs> uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is here, and I I was traveling, and I didn't get to your class on the Crusades on Saturday. I tried to do it through my internet, and I couldn't do it. So what did I... Let me introduce you. Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, host of the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History. Please uh, subscribe to both those podcasts, and we'll find out who's on at the end of this segment. He's also teaching a class on the Crusades on Saturday mornings, and I had plans uh, and I thought I could listen to it in the car. What did I miss? Because this was the big, this was the big lecture on the Crusades. You had done all the prep work. What did I miss? Every week is the big, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is the big show, right? Right. That's how you keep a class moving forward. Is you use this particular week to set up the grand revelations of the right. next week. I mean, so at any rate, um, there's always exciting stuff happening. This week, um, we were talking about uh, Holy War and traditions of Holy War. We managed to cover one part of the Mediterranean. We started with Augustine of Hippo's uh, arguments, basically on why you can use force uh, against heretics and also... Um, uh, sort of ideas about uh, warfare when you have uh, the Roman Empire in the midst of uh, adopting Christianity as its official, you know, religious doctrine um, and dominant faith. And now you have a kind of Christianized political authority that didn't exist in the early period, you know, when Jesus was railing against the Roman occupation uh, of um, Israel, right, of, uh, of, uh, of those lands. And subsequently, when Christians were a persecuted minority, uh, by, you know, persecuted by the Roman government, um, obviously uh, martyrdom meant a certain thing, a peaceful resistance uh, and adherence to your uh, understanding of truth took on a certain character. But when it became the official... Uh, religion of the government, suddenly you have questions of statecraft, and you have to rationalize the use of force. And so somebody like Augustine already began this work, is what we were observing. And then we looked at what changes and what, what was different about the announcing of the crusade. And we took a look at Urban II's speech, the various versions of the speech, and used those primary sources to try and articulate what some of the crucial themes were. And um, so next week, we will pick up with that theme and uh, turn to jihad and holy war in the Byzantine Empire and round out our sense of the Mediterranean as a whole. But we also did um, go back 
and look at some primary source documents to understand um, how the persecuting society functioned uh, by looking at Canon 21, uh, the very important Lateran IV Council, a universal church council called by Pope Innocent III in 1215, and the way in which they tried to, or he and the council tried to um, isolate uh, heretics and through guilt by association, widen the net of those who would be um, compromised by the presence of heretics and to establish a new regime for legitimate Christian political authority by forcing or actually demanding all political rulers and officials at various levels of administration and society to take an oath that they would suppress heresy, right? And that they would be actively involved in rooting it out. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting. I think the big thing is that with the background that we've covered in the first several weeks, um, I wanted to turn more fully towards discussion, reading and interpreting the primary sources themselves and using that as a lens to talk about the wider theme. So I think it's become very exciting because we're getting a lot more dialogue, discussion, people's responses and uh, interpretations of the sources. So it gives us a little bit less of me lecturing, although you can't shut me up. I mean, you know, I, I'm just <laughs> so excited by the stuff, but right. at least it's in response and in dialogue, right. filling in the context through the documents rather than the way the historians want to lay out everything in a grand narrative. Now we look at the pieces of evidence and see what, what does it tell us? Uh, what can we learn from them? Let me ask you about the Arab League. Uh, I was reading that MBS... The head of Sa the prince of Saudi Arabia won't go because his doctor advised him against it. I don't know, maybe <laughs> lead poisoning it's or something. Oppression doctor, yes. <laughs> yeah, hey. their their meeting. Uh, the Arab League was founded, I guess, right after World War II. They have been successfully divided. Is is it fair to say that America? They're, they don't act in a unified front, right, when they meet? They don't now, and in some ways they never really did. I mean, there would be occasions where during periods of war uh, with, say, Israel, you might have, uh, you know, a kind of united front presented. However, um, the Cold War you know, played out in conflict in the Middle East. And they're sometimes called the Arab Cold War in the 50s and 60s. And what you had, of course, was the division between these um, monarchies, especially the Gulf monarchies, Saudi Arabia, you know, Kuwait, um, and uh, it, their allies, these kind of conservative traditionalists who wanted to maintain some sense of monarchical rule and the radical republic, you know, republics that emerge in the post-colonial period, sometimes by throwing off uh, their monarch, you know, uh, monarchical rulers. So that's the case, for example, you know, in Egypt, um, in uh, Iraq, uh, for example, uh, you have the Hashemite kings in, in Iraq, and they end up being in Jordan, but that really wasn't the original plan. It was, you know, some much larger uh, state. 
Um, so these re republics were um, kind of populist, at least in the tenor of their of their political transformation. I mean, they may lead to military dictatorships, but at least they adhere to some kind of idea of a socialist and Arab nationalist ideal, uh, especially under Nasser, for example. And this pits uh, those sort of popular Republican forces under military uh, sorts of regimes against equally militarized but propped up typically by um, colonial, you know, or former colonial powers. Uh, you see Britain basically still having a large role to play in training and supporting the, you know, Hashemite kings of Jordan, these Gulf monarchies. I mean, they're the ones who brought the Saudis essentially into, into power. Um, and all of you, if you notice, all of the, almost all of the um, uh, monarchies of the Gulf um, are, you know, newish monarchies that are established essentially by Britain. So whether it's, you know, uh, princes of of uh, Bahrain or emirs in the Emirates or Qatar um, and so on, these are all uh, British, were British supported and were under British colonial control until after independence in the course of the 60s. And in the case of Qatar, for example, you know, the 70s, they were still a British um, sort of. And, and America, we were just all about spreading democracy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, you know, took up with, uh, uh, you know, where we had constitutional democracy under the British, and then we had um, a constitutional democratic monarchy under the British. And then, you know, the the U.S. Uh, like in Iran. Somewhat, yeah. Well, yeah. Most the U.S. wasn't necessarily that concerned about whether it was a monarchy or not. It just had to be a loyal person who would pursue right. the interests of the United States. And sometimes that meant a Shah of Iran or kings of of the House of Saud and so on. But they were a little bit less hung up on, uh, you know, the pomp and circumstance, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, of of the ruler and their titles. Yeah. The Palestinians, the, I, it seems to me that at one time there was something the, the Arab League, everybody could agree on, the Palestinians. Yeah. Well, yeah. at least um, pay lip service to it. I mean, I think if you look at the history of the Palestinian resistance movement, you can understand why in the late 60s an independent Palestine Liberation Organization that brought together different uh, groupings and factions and political orientations within the Palestinian political community together, uh, why they had to emerge. And that was because with the, uh, depending upon the Arab states neighboring uh, the newly established uh, state of Israel in 1948, um, didn't lead or amount to um you know, benefits for the Palestinians um, and resolution of the of the of the problem. Um, there was an awful lot of uh, hostile rhetoric, but there wasn't necessarily always that much done to foster an independent Palestinian political movement for their own liberation. That had to come initially from Palestinians themselves. So, you know, after the disaster of the 1967 war and the fact that there the you know, there was now an occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, Golan Heights, um, uh, 
and so on. And the refugee crisis was still, um, you know, uh, was increasing as a result of of the occupation uh, of the West Bank. After 67, you have the emergence of the PLO really organizing among the dispossessed in these camps um, and sometimes finding patronage. Um, among well, I, some I know of that these. I, I know that the Hashemites in Jordan kicked him out. Kicked, yeah. Absolutely. And then yeah. Lebanon wanted him out. Did he end up in Tunisia? Yasser Arafat? Yeah, Tunisia? he ended up in actually uh, Yasser Arafat ended up seeking asylum essentially in, in Tunisia after well, after the Lebanese civil war and, you know, Israel's uh, invasion and occupation in the southern part of Lebanon, and that they were sort of ejected, really, at that point, they, they, you know, they had tried to wage a kind of liberation struggle from southern Lebanon. Um, and that sort of tipped over uh, the delicate political situation in this odd, you know, kind of state of Lebanon that was a an amalgam, you know, very finely balanced constitutionally of different uh, confessional or religious communities uh, that all had a role to play constitutionally. But the problem with the refugee, uh, you know, the Palestinian refugees is that if you enfranchise them, it would dramatically overturn that kind of established. Uh, so they're, they're still in refugee camps in Lebanon. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, they're refugee camps in Syria, southern Lebanon, you know, um, um, and these are you know, these are sixty years old. These refugee camps are are sixty well, since nineteen forty eight. Some of them, and then of course, uh, you know, others as a result of uh, you know nineteen sixty seven. Uh, I mean, so yes, it's been uh, many many generations of of uh, refugees. That you know, meaning essentially that this was the first after World War II. This was the first really big refugee situation that was created, and um, as a result, a UN refugee um, UNRWA, you know, a special agency was was created to manage the very large population for the time uh, that was uh, dispossessed in an exile from. From uh, Israel and are they are, are they absorbed into? Do they well, they're different policies. I mean, in Jordan, um, you know, I think they've been granted citizenship and more fully absorbed. Though I will say that um, up to about sixty percent um, of Jordan's population are of Palestinian origin, and this has created tension. I mean, one will notice if you look carefully at the institutional uh, structures of power uh, that um, native so-called Jordanians, i.e. not Palestinians, are privileged in levels of, of uh, you know, uh, government, uh, other institutions, cultural institutions, economic ones, and so on. Uh, but their situation is a lot better than it is in places like Lebanon, um, or even perhaps the West Bank, um, because they're suffering under occupation as well as being refugees from 1948. Um, and um, I've spoken with some uh, uh, people who were uh, from refugee camps in the West Bank, and they felt that uh, there was even discrimination against them because um, uh, Palestinians of the West Bank felt that, you know, these people had been made, uh, uh, you know, refugee, uh, refugees from 1948 and that they, 
you know, were uh, living in these refugee camps and, you know, it was um, hard to integrate them. You know, uh, it was it was difficult to integrate them. I mean, you think a place like Turkey has integrated, although I think I talked recently about some of the tensions in Turkey and how I suspect and see a little bit of a kind of parallel in some of the far right politics in Europe with, you know, Erdogan's um coalition with the extreme Turkish nationalist right-wing uh, party in government, um, uh, the so-called so gray wolves, uh, that this has ended up meaning that the Syrian refugees, you know, so many millions of them, uh, you know, had, had, had fled and initially been somewhat welcomed. And, um, but uh, it tips the balance because uh, there was a point at which Erdogan was talking about actually enfranchising them. And of course, this would have given a pretty decisive electoral advantage, you know, to to him. Um, you know, that was in a previous uh, governing coalition. And subsequently, you know, we've seen that there's been uh, problems integrating Syrian refugees. Um, and now there's this attempt to kind of resettle them in this zone that um, Turkey has created uh, in northern Syria. That's under their military control, but is technically in Syrian territory, and that they've been repatriating, as it were, uh, a number of people, and they're trying to establish a kind of corridor that's under uh, Turkish control. So these are problems, you know, uh, anywhere, like, and especially poor countries, it's difficult for them to absorb these refugees. If you think about the greater region in the Middle East since the Iraq War, then adding this, you know, uh, Syrian uh, uh, civil war and conflict there, places like Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey have just absorbed millions of, of, of people. And so there's a real history in the post-World War II period of the region being convulsed by major conflicts and wars that have led to populations being displaced. Um, well, yeah, let's turn to uh, America. Uh, Canada, I mean, where they did take Syrian refugees. Uh, Some, yes, yeah. Not, not the United States. Um, yeah, Canada took, pro I think, more than the United States, a country with uh, over 10 times its population. Um, still, I would say, you know, we're not talking about a huge number. Um, you know, it's not what happened in Germany. I mean, Germany, you know... Angela Merkel really did absorb a large number compared to many other countries. But of course, even Germany, with its huge population and great wealth, is nothing like the the numbers that even the, that these poor neighboring countries, you know, absorbed. But yes, um, Canada did accept some under Trudeau, and um, you know we have them even in in uh, my community here in Kingston. There are a number of uh, of, of families. I think at least a couple hundred people have been resettled. Um, you know, and that ultimately uh, is good for Canada. The same way Merkel thought it was good for Germany, because you have an aging population. You need new blood to prop up your economy and to pay into your social safety net. Populations of countries, especially first world countries, uh, need new people. Otherwise, you go into a recession. I think one of the reasons Japan 
although I'll take Japan's standard of living over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But technically, they're in a in a recession all the time because they have an aging population. They can't uh, support, pay for the infrastructure, guns. Uh, your prime minister, Trudeau, introduced legislation after the shooting in Nova Scotia two years ago. You guys outlawed assault weapons, pretty much. And on Friday, it's now illegal to purchase handguns in Canada. It's, there's a freeze. When I was younger... It's liberty is disappearing uh, you yes. know, up here, uh, you know, as well. You know, uh, yes, uh, we're an oppressed, subjugated people. The it's government is taking away our, our guns. What is the reaction up there? Because I, when I was a, after Bobby Kennedy was killed by a handgun, there was talk of getting rid of handguns. Chuck Schumer, majority leader, made his bones in New York as a congressman pushing for hand, getting rid of what they called Saturday night specials, getting the handguns off the streets. And the cops were behind it. But we couldn't get rid of handguns. Uh, we've given up on handguns in the United States. Now we're tr giving up on <laughs> AR-15s. What has been the reaction in Canada to a, a freeze on handgun sales? It's well, there are, of course, um, I mean, we have basically analogs to U.S. conservatives in Canada as well. I mean, out west, uh, there is a kind of gun culture. I mean, Alberta is often considered the Texas of the North, you know. I mean, it has cattle industry, it has oil, and it has conservative politics, um, you know, people yearning to be free, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. And so there is, of course, um, a vocal group that, um, you know, will contest and, and basically absorb similar kinds of talking points and politics from the U.S. conservatives. But... I would say that there is a stronger core in the mainstream of Canadian politics that, um, you know, rejects uh, those sorts of ideas and just thinks that this is sensible and rational policy. I mean, people have been quite upset with an increase in incidents of gun violence, some of the larger cities or of uh, those with mental instability uh, or far-right uh, political grievances, uh, like what happened um, in the Quebec City Mosque massacre, like what happened in, in Nova Scotia. So there has been a sense that the rational approach is to restrict and control these, to maintain the possibility for hunting. This is a very rural country. Most people do live in um concentrated population areas close to the U.S. border, you know, where it's uh, the warmest, basically 100. Most of the population exists within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Uh, but, um, you know, Canadians like to hunt. They, you know, are proud of their outdoor, um, you know, uh, wildlife and, and so on. I mean, I would say, you know, I think myself hunting is 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 um Cruel uh, and uh, people like Andy Brown. For people, Andy Brown is a hunter. I mean, well, sure. Savage. I mean, you know, there. This is this is a part of of culture. And I would say also in the north, for example, in Canada, you have a lot of indigenous uh, groups that maintain and continue 
various forms of traditional practices of hunting, um, you know, or use of a rifle, <laughs> you know, um, and 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 so on. So it, you know, it's part of the culture, and I think people think that it's reasonable that you regulate guns and weapons that aren't used for hunting. So assault weapons and handguns, um, there isn't really the same purpose uh, involved. And it just seems like it's sensible. That's what I think most people, you know, most people's responses. Do we know, uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if you have time, but I think we're going to surprise Peter B. Collins with the quiz master. Dan, are you here or did I keep you waiting too long? Nope, I am here. I think we. I think Peter B. Collins has to be uh, subjected to. Has he not been subjected? He has not to, been. He's not been humiliated yet. Oh my goodness! Uh, he has not yet really come to appreciate your extraordinary intellect and uh, range of knowledge, yes. David. Yeah. Uh, wow. I don't know what your time is like, but would you like? Oh, to? I'm 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 free for uh, you know uh, for a bit. Um, if you want to humiliate me as well, I mean, well, why I'm don't used you, to it at this point. So. Yes, I. Uh, for, let's find out. One quick question: Is there a the type of gun industry? in Canada that we have here in the United States? Actually, I don't know if there's much manufacture. That's a question I've never really looked into. I mean, all the famous names of most of the guns that who man, uh, companies that manufacture guns that I know of are, are located in the U.S., but like many um, of the cars that uh, are associated with American, uh, the American, uh, you know, car industry. Many of the factories were actually in uh, Ontario, so it could be a case where there are gun manufacturers uh, up up here in the north. That's something I just just don't know. Who's on the Mudgeless podcast? Who's on? Well, we had Dr. Jean Bajalan um, talking about uh, the Kurdish uh, dimension of the protests that continue to today in in Iran. And we'll be having um, actually a couple of new episodes based on live in-person events that we had during this Islamic History Month uh, of October. So we had a Miss Marvel watch party and had a discussion with some colleagues about the first episode and about the series and what it means to have a, a you know, a, a Marvel superhero who is a young Muslim South Asian woman. Um, and so that was an interesting discussion. And um, upcoming very soon, a friend and colleague of mine, Lori Silvers, who is a medieval Islamic uh, historian specializing in religious culture, Sufi mysticism and gender, has turned uh, mystery uh, writer and does historical mystery fiction of murder mysteries and detective stories set in ninth century Baghdad. And she's going to talk about her series, the Sufi trilogy, the Sufi mysteries uh, quartet, sorry. And um, so that look for that uh, coming up soon on the Mudgeless. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, let me ask Peter B. Collins, who, who's just joining us. Uh, would you like to uh, spend five minutes in the quiz show segment of the David Feldman show? Yes, and I consulted with Carrie Lake, the uh, fabulous candidate for governor in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I just want to stipulate that if I lose, it was rigged. 
we'll, we'll be honest with you. Uh, it is rigged, just so you know. <laughs> so I'm all right. Already, all right. Then so. I'm prepared to put cash money down. Wow. I have wow. 50,000 50, lira turkia. Wow. That would buy you an orange juice in Istanbul. Uh, so I, I'm wagering. I'm ready. I, 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 I've always wanted to fill a suitcase with that kind of money, like 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 have like a hundred dollars worth of, you know, what currency would that be? Uh, the bot in uh, Thailand, I was there and it was trading 25 to one. But can you get uh, like what's the lowest denomination that you can get so you could fill a suitcase with it? Oh, well, maybe a hundred baht, something like that. Okay. Uh, pesos used to be pretty, uh, you know, weak against the dollar. I don't know the current exchange rate. Well, that music means it's time for the quiz master, Dan Frankenberger, prepared to be humiliated. I am. <laughs> What do you have for us, Dan? Can you put some money in the kitty? Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. We're playing for uh, real money here. Hang on. Well, uh, I will uh, uh, read off the description. On October 18th, 1988, this American sitcom premiered on ABC and became hugely popular, noted for deriving humor from the everyday struggles of middle-class families for, and for ta tackling controversial issues. Coming to us from Lanford, Illinois... Today's quiz is on Roseanne. Oh, oh God. <laughs> now, here's the great thing. I never watched her show. Here's the thing. That was my first writing job in television. Really? Was working on Roseanne. And uh, I had never watched it before I got hired. Yeah. <laughs> or after. <laughs> or after. <laughs> and uh, maybe I should have. Maybe she would. Maybe she wouldn't have fired me. I just. Uh, I remember, How long did you manage to write for the show? Uh, like uh, half a season, <laughs> maybe a season, <laughs> and the, and then they fired. You were stabbed me. in the back. I was stabbed in I the back. Uh, yeah, it was my first job in television, and uh, I was very arrogant and. At one point, the showrunner said, you've never seen this show. And I said, why would I? <laughs> why, why would I watch? It didn't sit well with, you know, the, I'm told it's a great show. I'm told it was like. Well, now you have a chance to prove to the boss that you knew it all. And I had and I was the minister who married Jackie to um, somebody. I, I oh, have that part. The, that's I play, the third question. <laughs> Bonnie Raitt's husband from the Great Santini, great actor. She married. He married Jackie, and I was the minister. Was it Booker? I don't know who it was. Well, tonight, gentlemen, we have six questions. Uh, the order is going to go: uh, uh, Peter Collins, then uh, Adnan Hussein, then David. Uh, it's multiple choice, Peter. So you pick, right. a, you pick one, and then the others will agree or uh, or choose their own answer. So, question number one is: What is the name of the department store coffee shop that Roseanne worked at? Was it Sears, 
Rod Bells, Lanfords, or loose meat in your mouth? <laughs> uh, I'm only <laughs> no guessing. Idea. I will say Lanfords. Professor Hussein. I, I would say that's the only one that sounds to me like a department store. What, what, give, them to, give them to me again. What is the name of the department store coffee shop that Roseanne worked at? Sears, Rod Bells, Lanfords, or loose meat in your mouth? <laughs> well, I do know that they sell loose meat. Pulled right. That, I, I'm going to go with Rod Bells. The correct answer is Rod Bells. Uh oh. <laughs> so Feldman leads four to four to nothing. Right yeah, now, right? I'm, I'm winning. Uh, you got it just pretty quickly. <laughs> By the way, I didn't pick this topic, just so you know. Yeah, sure. No, I, Question I, number two. And I Professor, was guessing, in, in my defense, I was guessing. Professor Hussein, you are first for question number two. What was the name of Darlene's boyfriend? Was it Don Tell, Derek, David, or Dan F? <laughs> you wish Dan F. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, what what was the second one? It was uh, what was the name of Darlene's boyfriend? Don Tell, Derek, David, or Dan F? I think it's. I'll guess it's Derek. Mr. Feldman, give me the choices again, please. What was the name of Darlene's boyfriend? Don Tell, Derek, David, or Dan F? Don Tell. Peter Collins. I'll go with Derek. The correct answer is David. <laughs> so who said David? Nobody. That was that was her boyfriend for like ten years, and nobody said it. So hmm. we're truly on an even playing. And who was Darlene? Was that Melissa Gilbert? Yep. Okay. Uh, question number three, David, you are first. Which couple got married in Las Vegas and had Roseanne and Dan as their only guests? Crystal and Ed. Who were Crystal and Ed? <laughs> <laughs> Nancy and Arnie. Jackie and Fred. I married Jackie and Fred. Or that Luke and Laura. Luke and Laura's General Hospital. I married. That's right. Jackie and Fred. I was the minister who married them. Um, well, was it in uh, Las Vegas? No, I know yeah. it wasn't. No, it was. I think it was in Roseanne's living room. I think. Uh, I'm, I'm up first. So, what are the first two? Which couple got married in Las Vegas and had Roseanne and Dan as their only guests? Was it Crystal and Ed, Nancy and Arnie? Arnie sounds like a name. That I've heard before. So I'm going to say Arnie. Nancy and Arnie. Uh, uh, Mr. Collins, which couple got married in Las Vegas and had Roseanne and Dan as their only guests? Crystal and Ed, Nancy and Arnie, Jackie and Fred, or Luke and Laura? This is a struggle because David appears to know even less about this show <laughs> than I do. <laughs> so I'm loath to go along with him. <laughs> he had uh, two acting classes once. <laughs> and these are heterosexual couples, right? I cannot say. 
<laughs> this was like the 80s, wasn't it? We, we had right. uh, some Sandra you know, Bernhardt. It was, the, it was the 90s. It was the 90s. Yep. Okay. So uh, early, early 90s. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry, Dan, but I need to hear them again. Sure. Which couple got married in Las Vegas and had Roseanne and Dan as their only guests? Was it Crystal and Ed, Nancy and Arnie, Jackie and Fred, or Luke and Laura? I'll go with the second one. That is Nancy and Arnie. Yeah. Professor Hussein. Well, just to be different, uh, although Arnie was one of the only names that rung a bell, uh, but I'll just be different. I'll go with Crystal and Ed. The correct answer is Nancy and Arnie. (laughs) So I get uh, one. Peter B. gets one. I haven't really been doing a good job keeping score. You're good at that. (laughs) My my, my mind wandered. Uh, How many questions? So you missed the three correct answers I got? Oh, let me. Okay, I'll give you three correct answers. There. <laughs> <laughs> I have two. Okay. Peter gets I've two. I've got zero. So Professor Hussein has three. Peter has three. I have two. Okay. I only claim two, but you just bumped me up to three. So that's yeah, great. It's Arizona. <laughs> Jake, it's Arizona. We have three more questions, gentlemen. Uh, Peter, how did Roseanne and Jackie get the money to open their diner? Was it from their grandmother, from their mother, from the bank, or they sold weed? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, they sold weed. Professor Hussein. I don't know. Somehow it seems like the bank just wouldn't give them the money. Um, this is a populist show, so I'm going to go with one of the relatives, let's say grandmother. I'm going to go with the bank. The correct answer is from their mother. You're all right. <laughs> now, was that Estelle Parsons or Shelly? I, I know that Shelly Winters or Estelle Parsons played either the mother or the grandmother. Estelle Parsons was Beverly, and that was the mother. And, and uh, the grandmother was Nana Mary. Well, what was Shelley Winters? That was Shelley Winters, Nana okay. Mary. And she so and the, the, nursing was, home, the nursing Roseanne's home grandmother. The nursing home was Whispering Pines. I remember that. Are you trying to give away answers? No, I'm just trying to remember. <laughs> oh, be careful! What I remember of the uh, okay. So what, who who got the point there? Uh, zero people got the point. I would have. I should have watched that show. I could have. I, <laughs> I think I would have. They couldn't I mean, fucking pay you to watch the show. I know. But I think I could have gotten rich. <laughs> I think I would have been rich if I if I showed a little respect. Two Go questions ahead. ago, uh, Professor Hussein. Question number five: What does Roseanne find in Dan's pocket when she is doing the laundry? Is it a candy bar wrapper, a movie ticket, a $50 bill, or a deep dish Connor sausage? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that could be taken one way, Dan. Whoa. I'm I'm imagining it's a movie ticket and she didn't go, so that created some controversy. I'm going with movie ticket. I agree. Mr. Collins. 
Uh, just to be obstreperous, I'll go with a $50 bill. Once again, you're all wrong. It's a candy bar wrapper. <laughs> what? And like, this show makes no sense. I come up with all these great reasons, and, right. you know, they turn out not to be correct. Well, he pro- it must mean that the show was lousy. I, ha- I, I would suspect that he's supposed to, he's got diabetes or something, right? And he's not supposed to be eating candy. I didn't watch the episode in the last 25 or 30 years, so I'm, okay. I'm not sure. Question number six, David, you are first. What is the name of the retirement community Bev moves into? <laughs> you fucking moron. Is it Shady Pines, Harvest Glen, Lanford Rest Home, or Peace Out Homes? So I didn't get it right. <laughs> I got it wrong. What, what are the choices? Shady Pines, Harvest Glen, Lanford Rest Home, or Peace Out Homes? I, I I thought it was Whispering Pines. Shady. What is the first one? Shady Pines? Shady Pines? I, I guess I... Yeah, Shady Pines. Peter. Um, shady Pines to block. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Hussein. What was number two again? That was, Har- that was Harvest Glen. <laughs> okay, I don't think it's I don't think it's Harvest Glen, but I'm going to go for it anyway, so I can be wrong on every answer. <laughs> the professor is good at learning as well as teaching. The correct answer is Harvest Glen. Oh, oh, wait a second! I lost by winning. There, I was going for the four. What? It's not Whispering Pie. I mean, I thought. It- it was one of the things I remember from a script was, was the Whispering Pines. Maybe they were looking at... Maybe Mom moved into one and, and Grandma moved into a different one? I, I don't know. I, I'm getting depressed because it had, had I not been so arrogant back then, I wouldn't be so humble right now. Well, you know, I'm not that concerned that you have amnesia about the show, but that you presided over a wedding and you can't remember the names of the lucky couple. Oh, I, you know, I can't keep track of every married couple I've put under the altar. How many weddings have you conducted? Oh, millions and millions. I used to work for the Reverend Sun Young Moon, so it's... (laughs) Well, I am a bishop in the Universal Life Church. I paid an extra five bucks to bump up from just a regular minister. Wow. And I have conducted one wedding. It's Devin and Dharma, and they're still married after 21 years. So I'm back... I'm batting a thousand. Pretty good. Hang on, my. You're sa- doing a great job. My sound effects machine. Hang on. I, I stuck think the on. The problem on. is, is that uh, David has had so many he can't even remember his own. Now you're asking him <laughs> to remember <laughs> the ones he's officiated on. <laughs> I hate when I'm fighting with my uh, sixth wife, and I call my old wife a nasty word instead of the wife I'm fighting with. Let me just restart the sound effects machine. Okay. Just, I have a, Peter, I have a diesel sound effects machine from the 40s. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, okay. 
Dan? Well, I think we should challenge you to name all of the women that Herschel Wathet Walker has fathered children with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the show is only seven hours. Uh, Dan, is that it? That is it. Great is job. That Holmes? Who won? The uh, audience. The audience won. Yep, the audience won. <laughs> the audience. Dave, you won by like four points. No. <laughs> secretly secretly I'm rigged not. it was rigged carrie lake's right well i think i should have uh known those i'm getting depressed I, I i just i should know i should have known that and i i was a idiot back then um donate to rahima.org please r-a-h-i-m-a dot org Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. We'll talk about Rahima.org behind your back. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. That, these are getting so much fun. They're really great. Thank you. Peter B. Collins joins us. He is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. And if you would like to thank us for this great entertainment, go to Rahima.org. R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. It is a food pantry for refugees in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they feed healthy food. And you know it's great because it's Professor Adnan Hussein's parents. So whatever you can donate, go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. Shock them. Shock them. Let, let, let them go, what the hell happened? Why People, you know what's going on right now with the high cost of food and inflation. Shock Professor Adnan Hussein's parents right now. Go to Rahima.org and, and donate. Look at their website. You'll see the kind of food they provide, and it's, it's great. Peter B. Collins. It's good to see you. Same here. I enjoyed the quiz. Yeah. <laughs> we're running. We're, by the way, let me, uh, uh, Mary, Professor Marianne is our last guest, and we're running, uh, we'll be a half, we'll, we'll, if you have time, we'll do a full segment. So, Yeah, I'm good. Good, good. Uh, what do you sing in the midterms? Well, it's not looking good. <laughs> and... The the latest polling out that I saw CNN report on today breaks out likely voters um, by who they're voting for and what is motivating them to vote. And the Democrats bet a lot that the uh, Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade was going to uh, turn out voters and motivate them. But. I uh, had my, you know, moment of clarity about 10 days ago when it cost me $88 to fill up the gas tank on my car. And we were in the middle of a, uh, a fresh round of price gouging here in California where it's, it's, the it, price it, of gas went up. It's very expensive in California. Yeah, but it spiked 85 cents when the price of crude had dropped. And we are captive to just a handful of refineries right. in the state. I believe there are five main ones. 
And so they routinely, during this period of time when we move from our summer blend of gasoline to the winter cocktail, uh, they jack up the price. And they do it by shutting down one or two refineries. And uh, you don't even have to believe that they coordinate this. They don't have to because they just know uh, that they can extract a higher price at the pump from Californians. And this, to me, is a, an indicator of the bigger picture, that corporate profits are largely uh, <clears throat> pretty good right now. Even though the Fed is raising interest rates, they've slammed the brakes on the real estate industry uh, initially, uh, and they're going to raise interest rates again because they don't believe that they are uh, slowing the economy enough. And Jay Powell, the guy that Trump put in charge of the Fed, uh, he has made it very clear that this recession is going to be fixed on the backs of working people. That until unemployment gets back up to four or five percent, uh, or maybe even higher, that he will not be satisfied that demand has been reduced. And this is a, a, a Fed entity coupled with an administration that will not do anything to rein in the profiteering of American corporations. Biden, you know, <clears throat> got all upset the other, I guess it was last week he gave a speech. And he didn't talk about trying to uh, force the oil companies to cough up their obscene excess profits. He said, well, you know, they should take these huge profits they're making and build more refineries. Well, that, of course, is a complete contradiction of his uh, climate change policy. And what I think that American voters have figured out particularly those who lean Democratic, is that the Democrats staged a bunch of stunts to try to market the Democratic Party for re-election in this midterm. And we know the history of midterms, the party that doesn't have the White House almost always loses. And the Democrats were hoping to change that with abortion rights and by taking the uh, minimalist packages that Joe Manchin would permit the Congress to enact and claiming them as big victories. And, you know, Joe Biden is reduced to touting uh, lowering the cost of hearing aids. Now, I have a lot of friends who've got one of those little batteries showing behind their earlobe, and I'm not making fun of people who need a hearing aid, who suffer from hearing loss. But that is such a small subset of the population. It's old and mostly white. And those people are going to turn out and vote anyway. But the people who look at that and the fact that the college loan forgiveness is now stalled in the courts and may not become a reality, people know when the attempt to buffalo them is being made. And so... The realization that a lot of people have come to is that prices aren't going down anytime soon. The Fed is going to make sure that the cost of buying a house is out of reach for people who didn't get in the club 
uh, in the last 10 years. The cost of gasoline is now subject to the whims of the world market. Uh, so far, the Biden administration has not reopened uh, uh, relations with Venezuela, which I have long argued could offset the power that the Saudis and to some extent that Russia has on the world oil market and the spot price. And this dovetails with one of the issues that liberals aren't paying much attention to, but is hot button on the right. And that is the surge of Venezuelans at our southern border. And most <clears throat> Democrats are not really acknowledging this, but Biden is using the illegal method that Trump used, this Title 42, to send Venezuelan uh, Venezuelans with a claim of asylum who make it across the border back to Mexico or even further south into Guatemala. Based on the fear that they're going to bring us a communicable disease. That's what Title 42 is? Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's a canard. And so <laughs> the you know easing of the blockade of Venezuela <clears throat> could not only help the world oil market, it could also ease the pressure on our southern border. And so the consistency, the commitment to the status quo ante, that's Condoleezza Rice's favorite phrase, um, that Joe Biden and his team have shown, while adding a new war that we could have hopefully defused before Putin invaded the proxy war over Ukraine, which is a neocon wet dream to take out the Putin, Putin regime. We always describe a government that we want gone as a regime. Right. And so we see this <clears throat> as we hurtle toward the midterms. And there are a couple of other factors in play, again, that most people who watch CNN or MSNBC don't know about. Number one, I want to recommend that people uh, look up a new documentary film by Greg Palast. It's called Vigilante. And I went to a screening in Oakland last week. It is a powerful takedown of Brian Kemp, who, of course, is neck and neck with Stacey Abrams in the governor's race in Georgia. Neck and redneck. Okay, thank you. Well, just to that point, Brian Kemp is a descendant of slave owners. And he owns a whole lot of property in Georgia. And the holding company he uses is called Plantation Properties. Mm. Isn't that politically incorrect? <laughs> and so Brian Kemp was the Secretary of State before... He ran for governor. Every prior secretary of state of Georgia who ran for governor resigned the secretary of state job to preclude any conflict of interest perception. Not Brian Kemp. He supervised his own election. He purged hundreds of thousands of voters who had been registered by Stacey Abrams nonprofit organization. But it didn't end there. He became governor. He then uh, certified the election that Trump lost. 
and his secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, became a corporate media hero because he resisted Trump's siren call on January 3rd when it was too late to do anything about the election. Raffensperger said, I'm sorry, I can't find those 11,783 votes. Well, Raffensperger tried to purge enough voters to rig the election for Trump in 2020 before the election occurred. But afterward, he decided he'd probably get busted if he tried to re or to further rig it at the vote count tabulation and certification stages for Trump. So, uh, you know, the only thing I can say to Kemp's credit is that he withstood the attempt by Trump to take him out uh, with uh, Purdue. Uh, Frankie Purdue, what's his name? I don't know. Uh, Sonny, Sonny Purdue, who was urged by Trump to run against Kemp and Kemp buried him in the primary. Well, despite all of the things that happened in 2020, Brian Kemp and his Republican-dominated legislature passed further voting restrictions. And what CNN and MSNBC told us about was that you could get arrested if you brought somebody a bottle of water or a pizza while they're waiting in line to vote. But there was much worse, more toxic uh, legislation in this this new law. And one of them, which is highlighted in Palast's new movie called Vigilante, is that any voter in Georgia can challenge the vote, not of just any single other voter, but large numbers of them. So Palast interviews this woman who's wearing a gouty top and uh, has a, a a Trump button on. And he says, well, you submitted a list that blocked 32,000 voters in Georgia from voting. They showed up at their polling place and their name wasn't on the list because you blocked them. Wow. And there is no penalty for blocking people on a false basis. There's another person featured in the film who (laughs) is a white guy And Palace got him on camera uh, trying to pull his pistol out of the holster. But the little leather strap that goes over the the firing pin, uh, the guy couldn't get it loose. So he he not only couldn't shoot straight, but he couldn't draw his gun straight. Right. And he's he's a little old white guy who uh, is kind of a piker at this. He he only blocked 4000 votes. So Palast, who's very good at this kind of thing, he tracks down one of the African-Americans whose vote was blocked by the guy who can get his gun out of the the holster. And he puts the two together on camera. And the African-American guy is uh, an officer in the Air Force. And he, you know, is somebody who feels very strongly about his right to vote because his father was not allowed to vote under Jim Crow. And so this man, uh, you know, kind of confronts the white guy who gives a really lame apology. Well, I'm sorry if it was difficult for you to vote. And the guy said, no, it wasn't difficult. You stopped me from voting altogether. 
And so that Air Force guy was able to sue with seven other people and their right to vote was restored. But let, that left uh, 3,993 in that single group that, you know, were not able to vote in the primary and may not be on the rolls uh, for the November midterms. So we have to be very concerned, even though the early voting, particularly in Georgia, is at a higher level than in the 2018 midterms. That's a good thing. And the national breakdown of early voting uh, favors the Democrats by one and a half points. It's 51 something to 48 something. Uh, but the polling shows that it is the economy that is leading people to decide who they're going to vote for. And the other piece I want to mention was front paged on Sunday's New York Times, because the gray lady has finally discovered and reported to its readers the ongoing barrage of deep denunciation of Democrats that the Republicans use on a daily basis. And, you know, what the Times is reporting is accurate, but it's not new. It's not really news. Uh, it's news to readers of the Times because they haven't bothered to really share this with their readers. But the article opens with a, a description of a congresswoman, a Republican from Illinois named Mary Miller. And when she was first elected, she was a mild-mannered so-and-so. And apparently, uh, she got a Twitter account, and then <laughs> she got message points fed to her from somewhere. And this is what the Times could have reported but failed to. I'll take you back to 1994 when Newt Gingrich engineered the Republican uh, landslide taking control of the House. Gingrich at the time used state-of-the-art cassette technology, <laughs> and he recorded these audio cassettes that all Republican members of the House and potential uh, members, candidates, uh, received, and they were told, listen to these tapes as you are traveling to campaign events, and then use the language that, that Frank Luntz has poll-tested for us. For example, the most famous is that it's not an estate tax, it's a death tax. So the use of extreme partisan language, which the uh, Times quotes as devil terms, has reached a new height. And we have to be fair, the Democrats, particularly those who tweet a lot, uh, used a lot of extreme language, language, at least from a right-wing point of view, in describing Trump his tweets, his policies, his appointments, uh, all of that stuff. But the Times uh, availed themselves of some new high-tech system. It's, it's AI of some sort. But they were able to use computers to review 3.7 million uh, Facebook ads, tweets, newsletters, and congressional speeches. And this won't really translate on the screen, but if you go to the Times website or if you have the print edition, you can see that the biggest offenders now are election deniers and those who participated or supported the events of January 6th. 
But average Republicans are very active and Democrats pale by comparison. And David, I, I read your uh, weekly newsletter from last week. Thank you. Where you had advised <clears throat> Democrats that, you know, trying to work on policy differences at this stage, trying to appeal to saving democracy, uh, these things are not getting traction with Democratic voters. And so you advocate that uh, we've got to do what the Republicans do, and that is activate hate. The problem is that for Democrats, that is a bit of a reach or a stretch. And the kind of milder form of motivation is fear. So going back to the stolen election of 2000, the Democrats have used fear of the Republicans in every uh, major election since then. And it didn't work against Trump. It didn't work <laughs> against Bush in 2004. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm very concerned that Democrats really have, in many cases, they've given up. They don't buy into the messages that their own leaders uh, uh, send them. The kind of daily uh, traffic that you get in your email account. Uh, I mean, uh, Gretchen Whitmer running for governor re-election in Michigan. She e emails me with these desperate messages three times a day. And I tune it out. It goes to my spam folder and I have to go there to look for it. But most people have the same kind of filter. And so they know that while the Democrats are running on abortion rights, that there is no immediate path to codifying Roe versus Wade as Biden finally just promised. And we know that he's personally opposed to abortion. And so he has to, you know, he, he uses language like I support Roe versus Wade. He will not utter the phrase, I support abortion rights. Right. He's afraid of that. So people know, as I said earlier, that they're being buffaloed and that the Democrats simply do not have the power. And the party is divided. They supported Henry Quellar in Texas, uh, uh, you know, uh, an, an anti-abortion Democrat. And so people know that that's not a real uh, or a realistic goal of the Democratic Party. And the Republicans promise their base <laughs> all kinds of things, and they don't care because they have been so programmed to believe that Democrats are evil, socialist, communist, Marxist, and that the rest of it doesn't matter that Trump is this, uh, you know, chosen by Christ to save America from the evils of the left. And let me give you a quick snapshot. I went to the grocery store a couple of hours ago, and Mark Levin is a right-wing radio host. Mm -hmm. So on my way to the store, he was uh, indulging Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who was permitted to lie about his uh, uh, 
unaffiliated. He doesn't have a Democratic opponent. He has an independent. And Levin was setting him up to describe what a victim he is of this centrist, independent guy who has accepted the endorsement of the Democratic Party. I mean, Democrats in Utah, (laughs) that endorsement doesn't really mean very much. Uh, But Mike Lee made it out like, you know, uh, it was a, 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 a nail driven into his heart. And Levin's just slobbering all over him. And then, uh, you know, telling people how they can contribute to Mike Lee. And before I go to the next segment, I want to point out that on these syndicated radio shows, they have an obligation, or at least the radio stations that carry the programs, to offer equal time to the Democratic candidates who are being smeared on these right-wing radio shows. And they never do it. And the Democrats never pursue any claims of a violation of the FCC rules to try to level the playing field a little so bit. The, I'm sorry. I, I know they got rid of the fairness doctrine under Reagan, but I didn't know that they having a candidate. I thought you, if you have a candidate on your show, then you have to offer equal time to another candidate. But do they have to offer up equal time if somebody's talking about a candidate? Well, I mean, no. So if Mark Levin talks about uh, Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker, there's no equal time uh, requirement that is triggered. But if you interview a candidate, um, then you, under the law, have to offer equal time to his or her opponent. On that show or that station? The obligation is on the licensed radio station, not the syndicator. And they don't even make a modest attempt to do that. And there are several ways they could do it. They could have a local host interview Herschel Walker, uh, I'm sorry, or interview Mike Lee's opponent. Right. Uh, But they they don't make any effort to comply with that. And it is still an active regulation under the Communications Act of 1934. All right. So I go to the store, I get back in the car, and... Mark Levin is slobbering all over Herschel Walker and saying how he's been smeared by the Democrats. And, of course, no mention of his uh, children, the girlfriend, the abortion claim. Uh, Abortion wasn't mentioned during Mm -hmm. the segment that I heard. But he set up Herschel, told him he did a great job in the debate last week. I watched that debate. And you need you need real time translation for whatever right. Herschel Walker is trying to say. Right. Uh, and and so one of the things where Warnock um, fumbled in the debate with Walker was that Walker was programmed to attack the Ebenezer Baptist Church because apparently it owns some low income housing, and there is some. Uh, controversy that's been covered by the Atlanta newspapers and other media that some of the people have been evicted from the housing owned by Ebenezer Baptist Church. When Warnock was asked about this, he very clearly didn't even attempt to answer the question. And I don't know what the truth is. I don't know if people really have been evicted. Walker says they're being evicted because they owe $38. Uh, 
And I don't know that Warnock is any has any direct role in the management of the Ebenezer Baptist Church while he's in the Senate. So there's a lot I don't know, but I can tell you that Warnock's answer was quite unsatisfactory. So Walker is trying to drive a wedge into that. Levin is helping him. And so then uh, Walker says that today, for the first time, he called Warnock a Marxist. He offered no evidence (laughs) of Marxism embraced by the Reverend Senator uh, Raphael Warnock. But that is the way they are playing the game. They are victims of the assault by Democrats on everything American. And then they turn around and attack the Democrats using the same, uh, if not worse, uh, methodology and language. So my bottom line to your question about the midterms is that, you know, Fetterman has to debate Oz and he has to use some sort of a closed captioning system. So that's going on tomorrow night, right? I believe you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Georgia race is too close. It, It should not be this close. And so the potential for Democrats to pick up additional seats in the Senate while holding everything they have um, is questionable at this point. The House, I think, is a lost cause. I don't see any way that they can pull out uh, uh, the votes and, and the wins that they need to keep Pelosi as speaker. And that ripples through that the January 6th uh, committee will be disbanded uh, on January 6th right. <laughs> when, when uh, Kevin McCarthy becomes the new Speaker of the House. And then it's- so I hope I'm I hope I'm wrong about this stuff, David. I, I, I don't say this in some kind of reverse psychology to manipulate your uh, your audience into doing something beyond what they were planning to do. But I think people need to be prepared that um, it's not going to be a happy night on election night. Although earlier, Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny was saying Michael Moore thinks it's going to be a blue wave. And he was right about Trump in 2016. The polls, I'm... Mike, and and I know Michael Moore, uh, going back to the 80s when he was the editor of Mother Jones, I interviewed him. Uh, when Roger and me was out, uh, I have you know been in contact with him sporadically since then. But he, he debased himself in 2016 because he was trying to con Bernie voters into uh, supporting Hillary. And he did it in a way that uh, really rankled me. And I saw him uh, with your old buddy Bill Maher uh, recently. And, you know, Marr was teeing him up to say these things that he's saying now. And uh, I, I don't share his, uh, his optimism. I, I think that in some ways he's become a bit of a shill. Well, the polls I'm reading is it, it opened up uh, like two weeks ago with the Republicans taking a lead. But the polls I'm seeing in the past two days, it's going back. It's tightening up again. Uh, So, but that, 
we, we may be looking at different polls. Like I, I see, like there's going to be a runoff, right, between Warnick and Herschel Walker. I don't know. I think that I, I think that somebody could win that on election night, or you know, whenever all the votes are counted. Tuesday will be an interesting night, much more interesting than 2020, because uh, each race is different mm -hmm. and each one goes long. So uh, I'm looking forward to what might be the last election we ever have here in the United States. <laughs> Peter? I hope I hope that's not the case, but uh, there is a lot on the line and uh, we can't soft pedal that. Yeah. Uh, there's some scary people. Carrie Lake is scary. I watched those interviews with her, and yeah. she is she's on a completely different frequency, and she's got well. That. She she has a very um, extreme message discipline, and she is programmed to. I mean, she's better at it than Trump, really, because uh, she, I think has more control um and she just has all that experience as a tv news anchor so it's very easy for her to look in the lens and lie professor marianne are you there do you want to respond to any of this before uh well it really does kind of look that the senate may just very well be 50 50 again only we're going to lose a Democratic senator from De Nevada, and we might pick up one from Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And that maybe and Ohio, Georgia, Georgia. I don't know. It's just like, you know, the Democratic Party is so tone deaf. And it's like, you know, and I think because most of them are rich, most of their consultants are rich. They don't understand that inflation real inflation and is is really devastating to like people who are barely making it in the first place and barely getting out of covid i mean for people who are, are the professional managerial class it's just annoying you know you don't like to pay that much for avocados or something but you you know when it's really i already saw the first elect you know the, the electric bill the first gas bill i'm going oh this is going to be a long winter I can handle it, uh, but it's just, you know, and whatever happened to at least, at least Clinton understood how to be a politician. He was a horrible neoliberal, as it's turned out, but boy, you know, Slick Willie knew how to, like, he knew how to play the room. He played the room just as well as Trump plays his room. And yes, he was a gigantic brain that just... Uh, I think just had a lot of bad assumptions. And thank God, again, for Monica Lewinsky, because apparently on the verge of that happening, uh, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich came to an understanding about how to start privatizing Social Security. And the Monica Lewinsky saga kind of interfered with their little game plan there. And, oh yeah, and, and uh, uh, Biden, I think, he tapped earlier this year, he tapped somebody to head up the social security, to, to head up social security team that is been a lifelong opponent of social security wants to privatize, quote, you know, reform that system too. And we're already privatizing Medicare. 
So when the Democrats go on about, and people know this, I mean, people have direct experience, you know, when they have to, even on Medicare, you know, deal with uh, in some, some of these direct, what do they call them? They call them direct um, something entities that are, it's, it's a sort of another backdoor into, it's not Medicare Advantage, it's people who did not choose Medicare Advantage, but you have a, um, a system where people accounts are being managed by private insurers and they did that they didn't sign up for. And then suddenly they can't see their doctor or suddenly they're not covering this, that, or the other. I mean, it's, you know, the, yeah, uh, Republicans might want to cut Medicare, you know, but the Democrats, they might even bring, put more money into Medicare and it's going to the insurance companies that they're beholden to. I mean, well, and after, Obama shepherded the Affordable Care Act into law mm-hmm. by uh, ensuring that the insurance industry would continue to maintain its 30 percent margin on health care. Uh, he turned around and in his second term, he talked about a grand bargain, which was to sell Social Security and Medicare down that river that's right next to Wall Street. Yeah. Well, you know, so, um, yeah, I think there is just look, as I just uh, uh, typed in the chat a few minutes ago, you know, we're in a really bad spot. I mean, these Democrats are horrible and these Republicans are even scarier. But this is where voting blue, no matter who, has gotten us. This is being a loyal Democrat and making no demands of the party. And making and just being, you know, cheering for your team and not demanding that they do anything like you're giving. We give our votes away and we've been systematically giving our votes away for nothing. Because where are we going to go? As Lawrence O'Donnell said, if the if if the left wants the party to move in its direction, it has to be willing to not vote for them and make that explicit and that's painful when you're in a bad situation like that. But on the other hand, the Democrats, if for stuff that really matters and for any long-term trajectory, are are no better. They just make people feel better in the interim. You know, you're not so freaked out. It's just they kind of lull the masses into, oh, no, you know, they say all the right things, you know. You know, they've got, <coughs> they got fascism now marching in the U.K., but it's with a diversity quota. they've got like a pakistani muslim mayor of london you know they've got people with vaginas all over the place but as jonathan pye said she's got dark skin she's got a vagina she's for public flogging i think he was referring to the gal who's responsible for uh julian assange you know still being in prison and uh, willing to be handed over to the U.S. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. But, you know, we got all this, you know, performative stuff. I mean, we used to have another word for it. We used to call it tokens, tokenism, Mm -hmm. you know. The white guys, the racist, sexist white guys pick, you know, their favorite gal or guy of color and now maybe their favorite LGBTQ guy or gal. And uh, that are going to do basically somebody they control. So, you know, it's a 
And people are sensing this. And, you know, it's not the end. Well, the end of democracy, you know, that that horse left the barn, as I said, long time ago. But we will have elections and it will never be a Republican or Democratic permanent takeover because neither party is going to give people what they want. So it's just going to be pinging back and forth. You know, like people are getting fed up with the Republicans. They're going to vote them out. And then they get fed up with the Democrats who do nothing and vote them out. And that's the way the owners like it. Then we have these really tough fights. You've got to give us money, you know, or else it's the end of the world. And it's fighting over very, very narrow political terrain. You know, people getting furious over that. People hating each other for being on the opposite side that isn't very far apart. But they're on the opposite side of this wall over here in the area of allowed political discussion. You know, and Marianne, nothing fundamentally Marianne, I, I only... Um differ slightly on one of your points there, and that is that because of uh, gerrymandering and because of the way once the Republicans get power, uh, particularly we've seen it play out at the state level, uh, Wisconsin is a good example. Scott Walker uh, really converted a Democratic stronghold into a purple state where the Republicans control everything except uh, the governorship. Now, how was he able to do that? I wonder. Because well, you had they, compliant Democrats. <laughs> well, but they, they actually ran a pretty effective attempt to recall him. Um, yeah, they did. But they didn't didn't have the vote. But I actually but here's the thing. I was actually I got on a train to Kenosha and I was going door to door for Tammy Baldwin you know, during this this whole thing or right after this this recall election had happened. So I'm in the campaign office and going, well, what the hell happened? I thought, you know, like Wisconsin was a really, you know, blue state, you know, the Farm Labor Party. Oh, I think that's Minnesota. But uh, but somebody said, look, you know, the problem is, is that like a lot of other places, uh, places like Kenosha were industrial places. There were good jobs there. And you can see what Kenosha looks like. You know, it's mm -hmm. definitely, you know, ripe for gentrification. But it's kind of a, a it, it's kind of a depleted economical uh, economic era. So all these people, both factory jobs and family farms, people who had good livings, who used to look down on people like teachers with their modest salaries and modest pensions, mm -hmm. modest benefits. But now it's just like, whoa, you know, who has any of that? And so they get resentful and the Democrats just, you know, kind of do the easy thing. They just, you know, go back to the unions and the people that support them. And they and they're not really addressing. I mean, Bernie Sanders just you know, obliterated Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin, you know, when he ran, because, mm -hmm. you know, he, he did better than Trump, way better than Trump in the primaries in Wisconsin, because he spoke exactly to the problem. That most Democrat Democrats never question the system that allows all this stuff to happen. They just go over there. Those Republicans, they're the problem. Well, well, how come it is we've got a system that allowed this to happen? You know, they never question the underlying problems. You know, the neoliberalism, the trade deals. You know, the that the parties are both owned by big money. And so, well, and just one example of that, Marianne, is, uh, you know, Biden took a baby step in the direction of uh, 
trying to forgive student loans. But no Democrat has championed uh, an end to the usury, the incredible high interest rates that the government extracts uh, from the students who borrow directly from the government. Mm -hmm. And they enable the high interest rates of the private lenders who provide student loans. And, and, and by the way, nobody out, ever. Go ahead. It turns out that if your loan happens to be through a private lender and nobody knows the difference when you're a young student applying for, you know, a student loan, that the private that that uh, forgiveness of ten thousand dollars did not apply to private loans. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a lot of loans. Yes, sure is. Yeah. But it, I, I'm just mentioning that to underscore your point that the Democrats just, you know, look at surface issues and they're trying to use marketing instead of uh, political achievements to attract their voters. Yep. And it's a problem when all the people doing the marketing and the analysis and the consulting are all in the same class. You know, mm -hmm. they just yep. don't get out much. Um, and, and that's that's a problem. And so, you know, um, by the way, Greg Palast has just done yeoman's work in, mm -hmm. the, in the field of the real election fraud and the real election fraud. He said, yes, there's a concern for all these voting machines with their proprietary code. But he says the single biggest problem and it's rampant all over the country is just these voter lists and the mm -hmm. purging. And he says, uh, you know, and, and by the way, it's both sides do it. It's just that Democrats do it in the primaries. I mean, twice in 2016 and 2020, he wrote extensively about how Bernie Sanders was cheated out of maybe over 700,000 votes in California in 2016 and well over 500,000 votes in 2020. That's a significant uh, number of delegates. And it's just basically because they were... Uh, against state law, people who were crossover voters, you know, that did not have a particular affiliation, you could, they were given instead of crossover ballots, which are counted, almost all of them were given provisional ballots, which are not unless you go back and do some rigmarole. And so, you know, he wrote about that. He's like, it was just unbelievable. And people were reporting this. Poll watchers were reporting that this was going on all over the state at the time. So, but, you know. I, I have a slight uh, different view of that from Greg. He, he's correct that uh, particularly first-time voters who had registered as Democrats uh, might not be aware that they needed to ask for the crossover ballot. Uh, but well, if you register as Democrats, you could vote. If your registration was Democratic, you, you know. Oh, you're you correct vote. on that. Yeah. But. I'm I'm a an independent in California. We're okay. called no party preference. Right. And, right. And I know that if I want to vote in the Democratic Party, I have to ask for that ballot. Um, so it, it's not quite the equivalent of a poll tax or that kind of a barrier that's erected. But it is uh, the way we play the game in California. Mm -hmm. And it also was an effort to lock out the Green Party. Uh, so that you know, by the Democrats who run the state. The other thing that's really important to note that uh, the night before the 2016 primary in California, the Associated Press called the election for Hillary. Mm -hmm. And that 
was a, a really cynical and uh, unforgivable move on their part because it was really just based on um, extrapolation from a partial poll of delegates and, and super delegates were included in that, that group. Oh, yeah. And so th- th- there's a real, you know, malpractice of journalism by AP in calling that election just hours before the polls opened. And that hurt Bernie a lot as well. Well, you know, we know it's stacked. It, it, it's, it's just the way it is. My, my problem with Bernie is that his sheepdogging his followers into the Democratic Party after all this went on in 2016 and 2020, and he just didn't seem to get anything out of that. I, I could see, you know, doing a distasteful thing. If you get some concrete results, we got nothing. We, we got well, nothing out of all of that. All that money spent on the on the squad and all of that effort to get people elected. You know, it's it's you, you can kind of uh, understand why people are discouraged. Well, the other piece was that after 2016, uh, Norman Solomon and a group of others from California conducted their own autopsy of the 2016 primary and general. And they made a series of recommendations to the Democratic National Committee. And this was the point where Obama intervened to keep um, uh, Keith, uh, Keith, uh, Minnesota, Keith Ellison from becoming chair of the party and plugged in Tom Perez. Do you you know another vote siphoner and that whole business? For the party, who was also running for uh, the the party chair, was a guy by the name of Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he dropped out and urged <laughs> all of his people to, of course, you know, back Tom Perez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. small world, huh? And Bernie <laughs> did not embrace the findings of the autopsy, and didn't real really make any move to try to change the process for twenty twenty. And he he ran again without the benefit of being the only opponent of Hillary that he had in 16. He was up against 24 other, whatever the number was. And he tried to use the same strategy without addressing the toxic underpinnings of the Democratic Party's primary process. Yeah, but of course, that was probably one of his deals that, you know, he's got to support who's ever the Democratic Party. I mean, that's why I'd wish to God he had run as an independent. It had been, been a much interesting, much more interesting race. Um, and, you know, I, I would think he had a much better chance doing that than, uh, than running in the Democratic primary. But, you know, I think he's stubborn. He... he you know, he's an, he is an insider and he really thinks that he can move the Democratic Party because it's worked before. He's been able to get amendments into bills and he's worked the system and it's but to take it to the next level and have a real political evolution. Um, no, I mean, the people in the Democratic Party, like people in the Republican Party, you look at these people, you think, my God, these guys are stupid. They're not stupid. They've got power. We don't. <laughs> You know, they're very, very good at doing whatever it takes for them to still be in the position of making all of these decisions. 
I mean, Nancy Pelosi can barely speak. Why is she Speaker of the House? Well, uh, she speaks for the owners of the party. That's why she is the money spigot. Basically, the Democrats and Republicans are, are doing now openly and legally what Tom DeLay essentially got nailed for many, many years ago. <laughs> you know, he was like nailed for money laundering, you know, like mm-hmm. the collecting all over uh, the country, you know, washing it through the uh, Republican, the, the National Committee in, in D.C., and then doling it out to people who he liked, you know. Um, and then, of course, I think some law changed. I wasn't exactly sure which. But on an appeal, on appeal, he was acquitted. He was convicted. He's, you know, waiting a sentencing. He's he's waiting for appeal. He appears on Dancing with the Stars and all this stuff. And, you know, it's 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 great entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I but, you know, I think that things I think that's why it's important there are two people that I am working to get elected here in Illinois on the state level. And I think it will be important if we try uh, to get people like Michelle Vallejo down to Texas 15th. And I believe you had somebody on earlier, David, that was in California. Yes. I think he was. Marshall. He was yeah. You know, maybe these people really are willing to not have a crew to, you know, be a one-term person to at least, you know, do some disruption in the house to change something. Maybe we can do it that way. But otherwise, you know, uh, you can run, if you run people for state, Senate, or house, you can have a lot more effect locally on what happens. Hell, you can run for park district commissioner, have a lot of effect. (laughs) But, um, But that's the kind of thing that you've got to, if you do that, and if you get people not only just, raw rawing every four years for president, but then they themselves involved in campaigns locally or running locally. You develop much more of an active culture rather than a passive political culture, which I think many people just kind of, you know, mistake opining on Twitter or Facebook as political activism. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's it's going to take effort. I mean, it, being a citizen takes effort. Than mere being a mere civilian, so, um, but again, we all thought life was over when Reagan got elected over forty years ago. I thought this was it. The planet had a few years at best tops, you know. And we're still muddying, muddling through. So there, there, there is some sanity. I mean, I mean, at least, at least all the. Uh, Heads of the armies of Russia and the United States and and England and France and Turkey are talking to each other. Right. And Pramila I mean, Jaya- there's some hope there. And Pramila Jayapal wrote a letter to President Biden, the Progressive Caucus. I saw that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they're look, they know. And some of the people who are in the intelligence committees has to know that all the stuff they're talking about, oh, Russell's ready to collapse any day now. Their economy is nothing. They're a gas station parading around as a country, blah, blah, blah. I think most people have been disabused of that notion when you understand in terms of real economy. I mean, Russia is doing very well. Gee, you know, like producing stuff that people actually need, like energy and food. <laughs> so... You know, I, I think that they're probably seeing that this is 
not going to go well. And it might be that the Russians are still willing to, you know, sit down and negotiate. They might be a little more, the, the Donbass regions that they want might be a little more swollen than their original asks. But, you know, any sane person, and this was John Kerry, the Republicans, the Democrats, up until the, these crazed neocons in the, the State Department always understood that no way was Russia ever going to give up on Crimea. There was no way that Russia was going to tolerate there being like military, NATO military installations, you know, within 100 miles of their border in Ukraine. You know, it was just people who understood a little bit of history, like could understand that the Russians had been pretty consistent in their concerns. And with 30 years of NATO aggravation and hostility and planes in planes flying over Russian airspace and their vessels getting attacked by British destroyer and their own. I mean, there were there's been many, many things that have happened, incidents that could be interpreted as as, as acts of war on other circumstances, but right. the Russians chose not to escalate at that time. But now we're in the situation that everyone from Chomsky to that maniac Douglas McGregor has been worrying about for years, you know? And well, I've, only, I've only seen this reported, and it's attributed to CBS News, but I've only seen it from one independent oh. media outlet that 5,000 troops from the 101st Airborne mm. have been deployed to the uh, Ukraine border. They're in Poland. Mm -hmm. And that they are considered to be on a war footing. Uh, so. I thought they were know, in I, Romania. I thought those guys. Okay. Doesn't matter. They're on the border ready to like, you know, yeah. charge, so to speak. Okay, well, Romania is what Anne Lee says, so I, I will yeah. yield to that because the story I read didn't actually say where. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But, yeah. you know, close by, at the ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I think that it's pretty, I, I mean, I think it's long been clear that you know, Russians aren't fighting Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine. Russia is fighting the combined might of NATO and has been doing it for a while. It's just that regular U.S. troops have not been in there. However, there are all these videos posted apparently on Telegram, if you get posted on Facebook, of Americans uh, <clears throat> near Kharkiv, and they might be special forces. They might be Blackwater dudes. Who knows who they are? But, yeah, there's probably. So, you know, um, the right. story that's been going around. But here was the story. And I'd like your opinion of that because it's kind of an interesting story. So uh, apparently last week. Who is this guy, Ben, um, the, 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 the British uh, defense minister, has um, took a, suddenly flew to Washington to talk to Lloyd Austin. And he claimed it's because he's afraid that the, uh, the so-called secure lines between UK and US have been compromised and bugged. And like, I, I, why would you even admit that, even though it's true? But anyway, he goes and he talks <laughs> And that initiates a phone call. And I think it's because this latest, uh, there was this little latest altercation in the Black Sea where um, there was a British drone. It was in international waters, but a British drone was being shot at by Russian jets. And, uh, and uh, you know, 
I guess he had been he had been talking to Shigu, the the Russian who, who said of their equivalent of the of the defense minister in Russia, head of general staff, I think is his name is his title. But uh, and then Austin calls Shigu after that, and I think it's like, <laughs> all right, was this really is this really true? Is this? A, I think basically the speculation was is that things settled down that Shigu sort of. Uh, assured him that th- th- this was just kind of a mistake, you know, but it's probably good. It's probably not a good idea for the British or the United States to be flying their planes in that area. Um, anyway. And I'm uh, sure that Austin made that call on a secure line. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's who knows? I mean, look, if, there, if there's a leak from a defense uh, from our defense department, I'm sure it's a completely authorized leak at this point. But but however, so that was the one phone, that was one phone call that they had. However, uh, that Shigu had called like a couple of days ago. It was over the weekend. So I'm trying to get the timeline straight in this. But he had called. It was Shigu that called uh, the defense minister in UK, in France, in Turkey and Lloyd Austin, in the United States. And the speculation there, as a matter of fact, they, the uh, the uh, what I've read about the Russian side basically kind of sidewise confirming it that um, there was a concern that uh, over Zelensky's interview with I think an Australian like BBC uh, reporter about you know um, Ukraine making uh, having the capacity for dirty bombs or something you know we are urging our scientists to look into this capability. A dirty bomb is a conventional bomb that has a nasty case of something around it, usually radioactive cobalt or other some something that it, it isn't a fusion or a fission explosion, but the explosion, right. you know, just sprays all this toxic crap all over the place. So um, anyway, I think that there then Zelensky is after that, he's going around talking, you know, uh, talking about the Ukraine intelligence getting word that Russia, you know, may may be thinking of dropping using tactical nukes. Now, Russia doesn't have to. I mean, their little display over the last week and a half has pretty much shown the world that Russia could wipe out Ukraine in a week with just conventional weapons if they wanted to, if that was, you know, their real intention. So, but I think that um, there was enough, uh, I think there was enough of a concern on the part of the Russians that the Ukrainians may actually do something like, you know, a false flag for the dirty with a dirty bomb. And they I guess he just wanted to let everybody know we're not going to use nukes. All right. <laughs> so, all right. And in, in that sense, it's actually a little hopeful because, you know, in contrast to the insane neolibs over in the State Department, I mean, the Defense Department people have been much more reserved in their pronouncements because they know they've got some educated people there, people who have taken physics and gone to study war at graduate school, chemistry, electrical engineering and all this stuff. I mean, they have real knowledge about what war really is and what that will mean. So maybe with everybody talking to each other and then, OK, so that's all that's all sideways reassuring to me. But then when Jayapal comes out and makes this statement today. All right. 
she's not stepping out being a leader or anything. Jamie Raskin was with her. Huh? Jamie Raskin was with her. Oh, okay. So she's got permission from the establishment to go out and do this, which probably means that, you know, the Defense Department has told them, you don't want to have full-out war out there. You think it's a bad, you know, uh, economic situation now? The Russians can batten down the hatch a lot better than Americans can in terms of, you know, just uh, weathering a war. And there's just too many un- what, unstable actors in there, you, even even under the best of circumstances. And I think the, uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis was brought, was brought up. At the time, people tell me that mutually assured destruction, you know, kind of made people think that no one would ever initiate any nuclear strike. Right. And now we know. That, you know that that a nuclear war was avoided because one commander out of three nuclear submarine commanders refused to agree to launch fairly small nukes, but nukes on the east onto the eastern seaboard of the United States, which would have just initiated, you know, just all-out nuclear war. So. Mm-hmm. And that how tenuous that was, you know, one guy, and of course, Noam Chomsky has talked for years, he's read through declassified documents and has found several incidences of like one guy suddenly going, wait a minute, we're not going to do this. You know, it's so tenuous, but, uh, you know, sooner or later, the, the odds are not in our favor. So, and especially when people feel that nuclear war and all this nonsense coming out of, you know, people around the Biden administration suggesting that nuclear war was perfectly containable. Yeah. Who's going to stop once it starts? You know, who's going to be the one to stop if, if somebody's lobbing nuclear bombs at your cities? Uh, you know, it's, it's just it's insane talk. And I, I, I don't know what to say. I'm just, you know, I'm a helpless bystander. But the fact that Jayapal came out tells me that something went down. You know, something has changed. As I said, Jayapal. It is it is an interesting development. Uh, Barbara Lee from Oakland, who was Mm -hmm. the only one who voted against uh, the blank check to invade Iraq, uh, is part of this group. Apparently, 30 members of the Progressive Caucus have signed on to the letter and they are calling for a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. Well, I really welcome this. Uh, we haven't heard, you know, except for Kevin McCarthy saying that he may may not want to continue to fund the war. Uh, he's not asking for a ceasefire. He is looking for a wedge issue um, mm-hmm. to use in the in this midterm election. Um, and well, it does take some courage of these Democrats to speak up right before the midterm. Or, you know, I'd like to see the polling. Yes, where, I think like, the polling the war comes up. Oh, sorry, David. Yeah, no, the polling is that Americans are souring on this. Of course they are. Well, what are the top five or I mean, four or five issues? Not Ukraine. You know, Depending on, I'm sure they're different whether you're Republican or Democrat, but I'm sure that there are some issues in common like inflation, 
like affordability. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of issues that people have. And as I said, I think it's hard for people in that political class, Democrat or Republican, to really understand how eviscerating inflation is to people. You know, it's just it's it's wiped out any gains people have made. Um, you know, even the people mm-hmm. that got unless they only had ten thousand dollars in student loan debt or less, you know, um, the usually the high, higher debt is disproportionately owed by people of color on student loans. And I mean, you know, ten thousand dollars wiped out. That's great. But the, if the interest gets jacked up you know, like two or three percentage points, then that gets wiped out in interest payments over the next two years. Right. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's just, it, and, but the big thing I saw, God, I watched a little bit of Chuck Todd, but not directly. I, I go to uh, Katie Halper's program, Useful Idiots, you know, who they do a rundown there, uh, so we don't have to, but, uh, you know, when 71% of the country thinks the country is going in the wrong direction and only 20% think it's going the right direction and similar numbers think, you know, that the country is only going to get worse from here on out. Not good for the Democrats. It it doesn't, no matter who's in power, it doesn't, it usually doesn't favor the people who are in power. Well, we we have and everything's jacked things up, but you know, yeah. Fascinating. We have to wrap it up. Oh, so no doctor, no Professor oh, Mike. Oh, Professor Mike isn't feeling well. He's got, oh, no. he's got, yeah, okay. he's got, yeah. I'm going to be in Denton, Texas next week. Really? Uh, yeah, on a little conference. Well, I he, hope he's well enough to visit. Yeah, that would be but fantastic. He, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah, it's the University of North Texas there. Wow. Uh, that, 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 what, what day? What day of the week? It's, uh, well, it's, it's like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It's a little uh, industry research, uh, industry and research accelerator conference. So. Well, I think he'll be better. He was he almost did the show today, but then he said he Yeah, he, but if you're stuffed up, you know, yeah, probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Peter B. Collins is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. Go to Peter B. Collins to hear conversations like this and his radio shows, his podcasts and his interviews. Great job. Thank you so much. I hope to, see, to you. see you both. Thank you. OK. And Professor Marianne Cummings. You can follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. I appreciate that. Thank you. Great job. That is our show. I want to thank uh, our mods. Oh, Rodrigo is here. I didn't see. Here we go. Rodrigo. Let's go to Rodrigo. While we're waiting for Rodrigo, please subscribe to this show wherever you listen to it. If you're watching us right now on YouTube, please subscribe to this channel. Hello, Rodrigo. Hi, David. Uh, only short updates today because I was sick this weekend. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. In the UK, 63% of voters want Rishi Sunak to call a general election, and the Conservatives are torn. On one hand, 
They hate Sunak's name and color. On the other, if there was a general election, whoever Keir Starmer picked would become prime minister. Keir Starmer, on top of an official policy of accusing pro-Palestine Labour members, including Jews, of anti-Semitism, is backing stiffer sentences against climate protesters who block roads. Many people are talking about Liz Truss getting £115,000 a year for being prime minister for 44 days, but it's important to point out she's entitled to tax refunds when she provides proof that her receipts are related to political work expenses. The top 10 retailers have posted $99 billion in profits last year. I don't mean income or inflation-adjusted income. I mean $99 billion after paying for everything that went up in their costs. According to Accountable.us, pre-tax profits last year soared 25% from 2020 far outpacing the increase in consumer prices. For those of you wondering what this means, companies say they have to raise prices because of inflation and supply chain issues, then they add a 50% on top and refuse to raise salaries. Katie Porter explained it very well in Congress a few days ago. The National Labor Relations Board has admitted it no longer has the resources to do its job. There's armed people watching a voter drop box in Mesa, Arizona, intimidating voters. In Grand Michigan, racist white parents had a meltdown because a Latina girl made a mural in the school to make people feel included as she put a trans flag on a kid's shirt, plus several images from games, and a sign that apparently protects against the evil eye. Stephen Colbert, friend of David Feldman, apparently prank-called Herschel Walker, I haven't seen that. It seems that extremely woke Marxist Joe Biden has begun to return refugees to Haiti among the moves he's making to support the 100 mostly white families that own everything on the island against the people. And I mean all the people who have been protesting for eight or nine weeks, and only a few left in media are covering this. Israel has shot missiles near Damascus, the Syrian capital, which I'm told they don't usually do during the day. Sorry if I've not already mentioned this. Kanye's fans and assorted racists have turned up the heat against the Jews, putting signs on bridges and mailing anti-Semitic propaganda to people. I honestly forget if I told you about Amurant before. She's a Twitch streamer who has leaned hard into sexual ASMR, including pretending to be a horse. Recently, she said her husband has been making her do it and lied about being married. Many of her fans have gone full incel complaining that their pretend online girlfriend was not exclusively dating them. There's people who do weirder stuff, but not without breaking Amazon's terms of service for Twitch. I wish her well. Pfizer has hiked the price of the COVID-19 vaccine to 10,000 times above cost. For everyone losing their minds over the girls who threw soup in a, on a painting protected by a glass and glued their hands to the wall, the photographer arrested on suspicion of being in league with the girls was allowed to go after getting arrested, and a UK court acquits climate scientists who glued their hands to a government building. Meanwhile, the right-wing Swedish government shuttered the environment ministry. 
millions, millions, sorry, will lose Medicaid and SNAP slash food stamps when the medical emergency quote ends, end quote. Someone accused a chess player of cheating on chess.com by wearing an anal bead connected to Wi-Fi that helped him win in a game. He is now suing for a total of $400 million. He will have to prove one, that he never wore an anal bead during a game, and two, that everyone who repeated the rumor knew it was false when they said it. The interesting part for me is that he's suing because the rumor has destroyed his playing career. But the reason I mentioned this on the show is that several people on the show play chess on chess.com and lightchess.org and we've never heard these wild stories about people getting accused of wearing anal beads to cheat. Thank you. Thank you. It, yeah, uh, we've talked about that. Thank you, Rodrigo. I want to thank uh, all our guests tonight. They were uh, John Ross, Sir Arthur Greeb Striebling, Derek Marshall. Please donate to Derek Marshall. Uh, Howie Klein, David Cobb, uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein, the Quizmaster, Dan Frankenberger, Peter B. Collins, and Professor Mary Ann Cummings. Hopefully, uh, Professor Mike Steinau will be with us next Monday. This show is produced by Dan Frankenberger. Uh, Rodrigo is now helping out with the show. Dan Frankenberger, Rodrigo, along with Professor Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Grace Jackson, and Joe in Norway, and we have two uh, chat rooms going at the same time. Moderating our YouTube chat room are the mods, and they are Autumn Leaves, Midi Doctors, Bob Carmody, M. Toussaint, Choking on Ashes, Lexi444, S. Scout is taken, Dent F., Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and, of course, The Invisible Ninja. Please go to my website to sign up for my newsletter and subscribe to this show wherever you get podcasts. If you're listening right now, please subscribe to this podcast. Smash, as they say, the like button. If you're watching us right now on YouTube, please uh, subscribe to our channel. Go to rahima.org. Donate to Rahima. Org. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Every night in the USA of distraction. 
They keep us all distracted So we never notice that our data has been extracted We're living every day, we're living every night In the USA of distraction All right Defunded and dismantled. We've been diminished 
infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day, yeah. Well, we're living every night in the USA. A distraction. 